Part 2 Okinawa The Final Triumph Chapter 7 Rest and Rehabilitation Early next morning, the Sea Runner, in convoy with other ships, including those carrying the survivors of the 7th Marines, put out for Pavuvu. I was glad to be aboard ship again, even a troop ship. I drank gallons of ice-cold water from the electrically cooled scuttlebutts. Most of my old friends in rifle companies had been wounded or killed. It was terribly depressing, and the full realization of our losses bore down heavily on me as we made inquiries. The survivors on board gave us all the details regarding our friends who hadn't made it through Palolu. We thanked them and moved on. After a few of the visits and bad news about lost friends, I began to feel that I hadn't been just lucky, but was a survivor of a major tragedy. One day, afternoon chow, a friend and I were sitting on our racks, discussing things in general. The conversation drifted off, and we fell silent. Suddenly he looked at me with an intense, pained expression on his face, and said, Sledgehammer, why the hell did we have to take Palaloo? I must have looked at him blankly, because he began to argue that our losses on Palaloo had been useless and hadn't helped the war effort at all, and that the island could have been bypassed. Hell, the army landed troops on Moratai, Netherlands East Indies, with light opposition the same day, we landed on Palaloo. And we caught hell. And the damn place still ain't secured. And while we were still on Palaloo, MacArthur hit Leyte in the Philippines 20 October and walked ashore standing up. I just don't see where we did any good, he continued. I replied gloomily. I don't know. He just stared at the bulkhead, and sadly shook his head. He was the same friend who had been with me the time we saw the three terribly mutilated Marine dead. I could imagine what he was thinking. Despite these momentary lapses, the veterans of Palaloo knew they had accomplished something special. That these Marines had been able to survive the intense physical exertion of weeks of combat on Palaloo in that incredibly muggy heat gave ample evidence of their physical toughness. That we had survived emotionally, at least for the moment, was and is ample evidence to me that our training and discipline were the best. They prepared us for the worst, which is what we experienced on Palaloo. On 7 November 1944, Three days after my 21st birthday, the Sea Runner entered McQuitty Bay. After passing familiar islets, she dropped anchor off Pavuvu's steel pier. I was surprised at how good Pavuvu looked after the desolation of Palaloo. We picked up our gear and debarked shortly. On the beach, we walked over to one of several tables set up nearby. There I saw, of all things, an American Red Cross girl. 
she was serving grapefruit juice in small paper cups. Some of my buddies looked at the Red Cross woman sullenly, sat on their helmets, and waited for orders. But together, with several other men, I went over to the table where the young lady handed me a cup of juice, smiled, and said she hoped I liked it. I looked at her with confusion as I took the cup and thanked her. My mind was so benumbed by the shock and violence of Peleliu that the presence of an American girl on Pavuvu seemed totally out of context. I was bewildered. What the hell is she doing here, I thought. She's got no more business here than some damn politician. As we filed past aboard trucks, I resented her deeply. Next to a table, counting off the men to board the trucks, stood a brand spanking new boot second lieutenant. He was so obviously fresh from the state's and officer's candidate school that his khakis were new. And he wasn't even suntanned. As I moved slowly by the table, he said, Okay, Sonny, move out. Since my enlistment in the Marine Corps, I had been called about everything imaginable. Printable and unprintable. But fresh off of Peleliu, I was unprepared for Sonny. I turned to the officer and stared at him blankly. He returned my gaze and seemed to realize his mistake. He looked hurriedly away. My buddy's eyes still carried that vacant, hollow look, typical of men recently out of the shock of battle. Maybe that's what the young lieutenant saw in mine, and it made him uncomfortable. The trucks sped past neat tent areas, much improved since we had last seen Pavuvu. We arrived at our familiar camp area to find numerous self-conscious replacements sitting and standing in and around the tents. We were the old men now. They appeared so relaxed and innocent of what lay ahead of us that I felt sorry for them. We took off our packs and settled into our tents. In the best way we could, we tried to unwind and relax. Shortly after we arrived back at Pavuvu, and on an occasion when all the replacements were out of the company area on work parties, First Sergeant David P. Bailey yelled, K Company, fall in! As the survivors of Peleliu straggled out of their tents into the company street, I thought about how few remained out of the 235 men we started with. Dressed in clean khakis and with his bald head shining, Bailey walked up to us and said, At ease, men. He was a real old-time salty marine and a stern disciplinarian, but a mild-mannered man whom we highly respected. Bailey had something to say, and it wasn't merely a pep talk. Unfortunately, I don't remember his exact words, so I won't attempt to quote him. But he told us, We should be proud. He said we had fought well in as tough a battle as the Marine Corps had ever been in.
and we had upheld the honor of the Corps. He finished by saying, You people have proved you are good Marines. Then he dismissed us. We returned silently and thoughtfully to our tents. I heard no cynical comments about Bailey's brief remarks. Words of praise were rare from the heart of such a stern old salt who expected every man to do his best and tolerated nothing less. His straightforward, sincere praise and statement of respect and admiration for what our outfit had done made me feel like I had won a medal. His talk was not the loud harangue of a politician or the cliché-studded speech of some rear echelon officer or journalist. It was a quiet statement of praise from one who had endured the trials of Peleliu with us. As far as being a competent judge of us, there was nobody better qualified than an old combat marine and a senior NCO like Bailey, who had observed us and endured the fight himself. His words meant a lot to me, and they apparently did to my comrades too. One of our first activities after getting settled in our Pavuvu tents was to renew our old feud with the rats and land crabs. Our sea bags, cots, and other gear had been stacked around the center tent pole while we were gone. The land crabs had moved in and made themselves at home. When several of my tent mates and I started unstacking the items around the tent pole, the crabs swarmed out. The men started yelling, cursing the crabs, and smashing them with bayonets and entrenching tools. Some characters sprayed cigarette lighter fluid on a crab as it ran into the company street and then threw a match at it. The flaming crab moved a couple of feet before being killed by the flames. Hey, you guys, did you see that? That crab looked just like a burning Jap tank. Good-o, yelled another man, as Marines rushed around trying to find more cans of lighter fluid to spray on the hated land crabs. Men started taking orders for cans of lighter fluid and raced off to the 5th Marine's PX tent to buy up all they could find. We killed over a hundred crabs from my tent alone. One evening, after chow, as I sprawled on my cot, wishing I were back home, I noticed one of Company K's two surviving officers carrying some books and papers down the company street in the twilight. He passed my tent and went to the 55-gallon oil drum that served as a trash can. The lieutenant tossed some maps and papers into the can. He held up a thick book and with obvious anger slammed it into the trash can. He then turned and walked slowly back up the street. Curious, I went out to have a look. The maps were combat maps of Peleliu. I dropped them back into the trash and have since regretted I didn't salvage them for future historical reference. Then I found the book. It was a large, hardback volume of about a thousand pages, bound in dark blue, obviously not a GI field manual or book of regulations. Always seeking good reading material, I looked at the spine of the book and read its title, Men at War by Ernest Hemingway. This is interesting history, 
I thought, and was puzzled as to why the lieutenant had thrown it so violently into the trash. I opened the cover. In the twilight, I saw written, in a bold, strong hand, A. A. Haldane. A lump rose in my throat as I asked myself why I'd want to read about war when Peleliu had cost us our company commander and so many good friends. I, too, slammed the book down into the trash can in a gesture of grief and disgust over the waste of war I had already experienced firsthand. After we had been back on Pavuvu about a week, I had one of the most heartwarming and rewarding experiences of my entire enlistment in the Marine Corps. It was after taps. All the flambeau were out, and all of my tentmates were in their sacks with mosquito nets in place. We were all very tired, still trying to unwind from the tension and ordeal of Peleliu. All was quiet except for someone who had begun snoring softly when one of the men, a Gloucester veteran who had been wounded on Peleliu, said in steady, measured tones, You know something, Sledgehammer? What? I answered. I kind of had my doubts about you, he continued, and how you'd act when we got into combat and the stuff hit the fan. I mean, your old man being a doctor and you haven't been to college and being sort of a rich kid compared to some guys. But I kept my eye on you on Peleliu. And by God, you did okay. You did okay. Thanks, old buddy, I replied, nearly bursting with pride. Many men were decorated with medals they richly earned for their brave actions in combat. Medals to wear on their blouses for everyone to see. I was never awarded an individual decoration, but the simple, sincere personal remarks of approval by my veteran comrade that night after Peleliu were like a medal to me. I have carried them in my heart with great pride and satisfaction ever since. As Christmas approached, rumor had it we were going to have a feast of real turkey. There were several days out of the year when the Marine Corps tried to give us good chow. 10 November, the Marine Corps' birthday, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. The rest of the time, in the Pacific War, chow was canned or dehydrated. Refrigeration facilities for large quantities of food were not available, at least not to a unit as mobile and as lacking in all luxuries as a combat division in the Fleet Marine Force. But the scuttlebutt was that there were frozen turkeys for us in the big refrigerators on Banica. We had special Christmas Eve church services in the palm-thatched regimental chapel that had been constructed skillfully by Russell Island natives. That was followed by a special Christmas program at the regimental theater where we sat on coconut logs and sang carols. I enjoyed it a great deal, but felt pretty homesick. Then we had our roast turkey, and it was excellent. New Year's celebration was even more memorable for me. On New Year's Eve after chow, I heard some yelling and the other commotion over at the battalion mess hall. The mess men 
had just about finished squaring away the galley for the night, when a sentry shouted, Corporal of the guard, fire at post number three. I saw cooks and mess men in the mess hall, who were cleaning up by lamplight, all rush outside to a fire burning in a grove of trees near the galley. I thought one of the gasoline heaters that boiled water in tubs where we cleaned our mess kits had caught fire. By the light of the flames, I could see men running around the galley yelling, and I could hear the mess sergeant cursing and shouting orders. I also saw two figures slide through the shadows toward our company street, but paid them little heed. In a few minutes, the fire was put out, just a can of gasoline some distance from the mess hall that had somehow caught fire, somebody said. A friend of mine appeared at my tent and said in a low voice, Hey, you guys, Howard says come on down to his tent. Plenty of turkey for everybody. We followed him on the double. As I entered the tent, there sat Howard Neese on his cot, a flambeau flickering beside him, and a towel on his lap, under a huge, plump, roast turkey. Happy New Year, you guys, Howard said, with his characteristically broad grin. We filed past him as he deftly sliced off huge slabs of turkey with his razor-sharp K-bar, and placed them into our open hands. Others came in, and we broke out our two cans of warm beer that each had been issued. Someone produced a can of jungle juice that had been working. A guitar, a fiddle, and a mandolin struck up the Spanish Fandango as Howard sliced turkey until the carcass was cleaned. Then he directed the music using his K-bar as a baton. Howard told us the burning can of gasoline had been merely a diversion to distract the mess sergeant while he and a couple of other daredevils entered the galley and made a moonlight requisition of two turkeys. We, the survivors of that recent bloodbath on Peleliu, forgot our troubles and howled with laughter at the story. Enjoying the comradeship forged by combat, we had the finest New Year's Eve party I've ever attended. The 11th Marines fired an artillery salute at midnight as a peaceful gesture. It was typical of Howard that he pulled off his turkey requisition so neatly, and just as typical that he shared it with as many of his buddies as he could. He was one of those wonderfully buoyant souls, always friendly and joking, cool-headed in combat, and though much admired, very modest. When Howard was killed by a Japanese machine gun in the early days of the Okinawa battle, his third campaign, every man who knew him was deeply saddened. By his example, he taught me more than anyone else the value of cheerfulness in the face of adversity. One of my most treasured memories is the mental picture of Howard Nace sitting on his bunk, carving a huge turkey on his lap with his K-bar by the light of the flambeau in his tent under Pavuvu's palms on New Year's Eve 1944, grinning and saying, Happy New Year, Sledgehammer. I profited greatly from knowing him. Our new division commander, Major General Pedro del Valle, former commander of the 11th Marines, ordered regular close-order drills, parades, and reviews. This was better than work parties moving rotting coconuts, 
and added a spit and polish to our routine that helped morale. A regular beer ration of two cans a man each week also helped. During close-order drill, we dressed in clean khakis, which each man pressed under his mattress pad on his canvas bunk. As we marched back and forth on the neat coral-covered parade ground, I thought about home, or some book I was reading, and wasn't at all bored. One day, we had a 5th Regiment parade. Decorations and medals were awarded to those cited for outstanding service on Peleliu. Many of our wounded had returned from the hospitals by then. When the Purple Heart Medal was awarded to those who had been wounded, there weren't many of us who didn't qualify for it. During those parades, we took great pride in seeing our regimental flag carried with us. Like all the regimental flags, it had a large Marine Corps emblem on it with the United States Marine Corps emblazoned across the top. Below the emblem was 5th Marine Regiment. But the thing that made our flag unique was the number of battle streamers attached at the top of staff. These streamers, ribbons about a foot long with the names of battles printed on them, represented battles the 5th Marines had fought in and decorations the regiment had won. All the way back to Below Wood, World War I, and the Banana Wars in South America. We had just added Peleliu to the World War II collection. Those streamers represented more battles than any other Marine regiment had fought in. One buddy said our flag had so many battle streamers, decorations, and ribbons that it looked like a mop, an unsophisticated yet straight-from-the-shoulder summation of a proud tradition. After we had been back on Pavuvu several weeks, I was told one day to dress in clean khakis and to report to the company headquarters tent promptly at 0100. There was some vague reference to an interview that might lead to officers' candidate school back in the States. Hey, Sledgehammer, you'll have it made. Being an officer and all that, wheeling and dealing stateside, a buddy said as I got ready for the interview. If you're lucky, maybe you can land a desk job, another said. Some of my buddies were obviously envious as I left and walked nervously down the street. The thoughts in my head were that I didn't want or intend to leave Company K, unless as a casualty or rotated home for good. And why on earth had I been chosen for an interview regarding OCS? When I arrived at the company headquarters, I was sent to a tent a short distance away, near the battalion headquarters. I reported to the tent and was greeted cordially by a first lieutenant. He was an extremely handsome man, and, I gathered from his composure and modest self-confidence, a combat veteran. He asked me in detail about my background and education. He was sincere and friendly. I felt he was trying carefully to determine whether the men he interviewed were suitable to be Marine officers. He and I hit it off well, and I was perfectly honest with him. He asked me why I had not succeeded in the V-12 officers candidate program, and I told him how I felt about joining the Marine Corps and being sent to college. How do you feel about it now that you've been in combat? He asked. I told him it would be nice to be back in college. 
I said I had seen enough on Peleliu to satisfy my curiosity and ardor for fighting. In fact, I said, I'm ready to go home. He laughed good-naturedly and knowingly. He asked me how I liked the Marine Corps in my unit. I told him I was proud to be a member. He asked me how I liked being a 60mm mortar crewman, and I said it was my first choice. Then, he got very serious and asked, How would you feel about sending men into a situation where you knew they would be killed? Without hesitation, I answered, I couldn't do it, sir. The lieutenant looked at me long and hard in a friendly, analytical way. He asked me a few more questions, then said, Would you like to be an officer? Yes, sir. If it meant I could go back to the States, I said. He laughed, and with a few more friendly remarks, told me that was all. My buddies asked me for all the details of the interview. When I told them all about it, one said, Sledgehammer, damn if you ain't got to be as Asiatic as Haney. Why the hell didn't you snow that lieutenant so you could go into OCS? I replied that the lieutenant was experienced and too wise to fall for a snow job. That was true, of course, but I really had no desire to leave Company K. It was home to me, and I had a strong feeling of belonging to the company, no matter how miserable or dangerous conditions might be. Besides, I had found my niche as a mortarman. The weapon and its deployment interested me greatly, and if I had to fight again, I was confident of doing the Japanese far more damage as a mortarman than as a second lieutenant. I had no desire to be an officer or command anybody. I just wanted to be the best mortar crewman I could and to survive the war. There was nothing heroic or unique in my attitude. Other men felt the same way. Actually, in combat, our officers caught just as much hell as the enlisted men. They also were burdened with responsibility. As one buddy, a private, said, When the stuff hits the fan, all I have to do is what I'm told, and I can look out for just me and my buddy. Them officers, all the time, gotta be checking maps and squaring people away. We began to assimilate the new replacements into the company, and we added a third mortar to my section. The battalion ordnance section checked all weapons, and we got new issues for those worn out in the fight for Peleliu. There were some drafted marines among the new replacements, and also a sprinkling of NCOs who had been in Navy yards and other stateside duty stations. The presence of the NCOs caused some bitterness among a few of the Gloucester and Peleliu veterans, who were by then senior in their squads because of the heavy casualties on Peleliu. The latter wouldn't get promoted with new NCOs entering the company to take our leadership positions. From what I saw, however, the new NCOs were mostly men with numerous years of service, although not combat veterans. They did a good job of assuming their authority while respecting us combat veterans for our experience. The drafted Marines took a good bit of kidding about being handcuffed volunteers, from those of us who had enlisted into the Marine Corps. Some of the drafted men insisted vehemently that they were volunteers who had enlisted like most of us, 
but they were careful to conceal their records and identification because SS, for Selective Service, appeared after the serial number if a man had been drafted. The draftees sometimes had their laugh on us, though. If we griped and complained, they grinned and said, What you guys bitching about? You asked for it, didn't you? We just grumbled at them. No one got angry about it. For the most part, the replacements were good men, and the company retained its fighting spirit. Our training picked up in intensity, and rumors began to fly regarding the next blitz, a term commonly used for a campaign. We heard that the 1st Marine Division was to be put into an army to invade the China coast, or Formosa, Taiwan. Many of my buddies feared that we would lose our identity as Marines and that the Marine Corps would finally be absorbed into the U.S. Army, a fate that has caused anxiety to U.S. Marines of many generations, as history well documents. Our training emphasized street fighting and cooperation with tanks in open country. But we still didn't know the name of our objective. After we were shown maps, without names, of a long, narrow island, we still didn't know. One day, Tom F. Martin, a friend of mine in Company L, who also had been in the V-12 program and was a Peleliu veteran, came excitedly to my tent and showed me a National Geographic map of the Northern Pacific. On it, we saw the same oddly shaped island, located 325 miles south of the southern tip of the Japanese home island of Kyushu. It was called Okinawa Shima. Its closeness to Japan assured us of one thing beyond any doubt. Whatever else happened, the battle for Okinawa was bound to be bitter and bloody. The Japanese never had sold any island cheaply, and the pattern of the war until then had shown that the battles became more vicious the closer we got to Japan. We made practice landings, fired various small arms, and underwent intensive mortar training. With a third weapon added to our mortar section, I felt as though we were Company K's artillery battery. At this time, hepatitis broke out among the troops. We called it yellow jaundice, and I got a bad case. We could look at a man and tell whether he had the malady by the yellowing of the whites of his eyes. Even our deeply tanned skins took on a sallow appearance. I felt terrible, was tired, and the smell of food nauseated me. Pavuvu's muggy heat didn't help any either. I went to sick call one morning, as other Marines were doing in increasing numbers. The medical officer gave me a light-duty slip, a piece of paper officially relieving me from the intense exertion of routine training but still making me subject to minor work parties, such as picking up trash, straightening tent ropes, and the like. It was the only time during my entire service in the Marine Corps that I got out of regular duties because of illness. Had we been civilians, I'm confident those of us with hepatitis would have been hospitalized. Instead, we received APC pills from a corpsman. This medication was the standard remedy for everything except bayonet, gunshot, or shrapnel wounds. After several days, I was pronounced recovered enough for resumption of regular duties, 
and surrendered my cherished light-duty slip to an officer in sickbay. Training intensified. During January 1945, the company boarded an LCI and, in convoy with other such vessels, went to Guadalcanal for maneuvers. After a division-sized field problem, we returned to Bavuvu on 25 January. Then, we listened daily with sympathetic interest to the news reports of the terrible fighting encountered by the 3rd, 4th, and 5th Marine Divisions during the battle for Iwo Jima that began on 19 February. It sounds just like a larger version of Peleliu, a buddy of mine said one day. He didn't realize how correct he was. The new pattern of defense in depth and no bonsai charges that the Japanese had tried on the 1st Marine Division at Peleliu was repeated on Iwo Jima. When that island was declared secured on 16 March, the cost to the three Marine Divisions which fought there sounded like our Peleliu casualties magnified three times. During our training, we were told that we would have to climb over a seawall or cliff, exact height unknown, to move inland during the coming battle. Several times we practiced scaling a sheer coral cliff, about 40 feet high, across the bay from the division's camp on Pavuvu. We had no more than two ropes to get the entire company up and over the cliff. Supposedly, we would be furnished rope ladders before D-Day, but I never saw any. While we stood at the front of the cliff during those exercises, waiting our turn and watching other men struggle up the ropes to the top of the cliff with all their combat gear, I heard some choice comments from my buddies regarding the proceedings. The company officers, all new except First Lieutenant Stanley, the CO, were rushing around with great enthusiasm, urging the troops up the cliff like it was some sort of college football training routine. What a fouled-up bunch of boot lieutenants if I ever saw any. Just what the hell do they think them goddamn nips are going to be doing while we climb up that cliff one at a time, grumbled a veteran machine gunner. Seems pretty stupid to me. If that beach is anything like Peleliu, we'll get picked off before anybody gets up any cliff, I said. You said that right, Sledgehammer. And them nips ain't going to be sitting around on their cans. They're going to bracket that beach with mortars and artillery, and machine guns are going to sweep the top of that cliff, he said with melancholy resignation. Our new mortar section leader was a New Englander out of an Ivy League college. Mac was blonde, not large, but was well-built, energetic, and talkative, with a broad New England accent. He was a conscientious officer, but he irritated the veterans by talking frequently and at great length about what he was going to do to the Japanese when we went into action again. We sometimes heard such big talk from enlisted replacements who were trying to impress someone, mostly themselves, with how brave they would be under fire. But Mac was about the only officer I ever heard indulge in it. Whenever he got started with, the first time one of our guys gets hit, it's going to make me so mad that I'm going to take my K-bar between my teeth and my forty-five in my hand and charge the Japs. All the veterans would sit back and smirk. We threw knowing glances at each other and rolled our eyes, like disgusted schoolboys listening to a coach brag 
that he could lick the opposing team single-handed. I felt embarrassed for Mech, because it was so obvious he conceived combat as a mixture of football and a Boy Scout campout. He wouldn't listen to the few words of caution from some of us who suggested he had a shot coming. I agreed with a buddy from Texas who said, I hope to God that big mouth Yankee lieutenant has to eat every one of them words of his when the stuff hits the fan. The Texans' wish came true on Okinawa, and it was one of the funniest things I ever saw under fire. Before the next campaign, we had to take the usual inoculations plus some additional ones. Our arms were sore, and many men became feverish. The troops hated getting injections, and the large number, someone said it was seven, before Okinawa made us crotchety. The plague shot burned like fire and was the worst. Most of our corpsmen did a good job of making the shots as painless as possible, and this helped. But we had one arrogant corpsman who was unfeeling about other people's pain. He wasn't popular, to say the least. I hasten to add that he was the one and only U.S. Navy hospital corpsman I knew in the Marine Corps who didn't conduct himself in an exemplary manner. All other corpsmen I saw were probably more highly respected by Marines as a group and as individuals than any other group of people we were involved with. Directly in front of me, as we lined up for shots, was a buddy who was a Peleliu veteran. In front of him were several new replacements. The more new men, Doc Arrogant, stuck with the needle, the worse he became. He was just plain mean by the time he got to my buddy. Doc Arrogant was in a hurry and didn't look up to recognize my buddy as the latter stepped up to the table. It nearly cost Doc dearly. He held the needle like a dart, plunged it into my friend's arm, depressed the plunger, and said, Move out. My friend didn't flinch from the painful shot. He turned slowly, shook his fist in the corpsman's face, and said, You son of a bitch. If you want to do some bayonet practice, I'll meet you out on the bayonet course with fixed bayonets and no scabbards on the blades, and then see what you can do. Doc Arrogant looked shocked. He was speechless when he realized that the arm he had punctured so roughly wasn't attached to a meek replacement, but to a seasoned veteran. Then my friend said, If you ever give me another shot like that, I'll grab you by the stacking swivel and beat you down to parade rest. I'll whip your ass so bad, you won't even be able to make this next blitz because they'll have to award you a purple heart when I'm finished with you, wise guy. Doc Arrogant changed instantly into Doc Meek. When I stepped up for my shot, he administered it with a gentleness that would have done credit to Florence Nightingale. We started packing up our gear. Soon, we got word that we would have more maneuvers on Guadalcanal. Then shove off for our next fight, Okinawa. Chapter 8. Prelude to Invasion From the standpoint of personal satisfaction, I've always been glad that as long as we had to pull maneuvers somewhere in preparation for Peleliu and Okinawa, 
This training took place on Guadalcanal. The name of that island was embroidered in white letters down the red number one on our division patch, of which we were all very proud. Guadalcanal had great symbolic significance. I was glad I got to see some of the areas fought over by the 1st Marine Division during the campaign and got some first-hand accounts on the spot of what had taken place from veterans who had participated in making that history. During one period of maneuvers on Guadalcanal, we stayed ashore for two or three weeks and bivouacked in an area that had been the camp of the 3rd Marine Division before its troops went into the hell of Iwo Jima. We strung our jungle hammocks and made ourselves as comfortable as possible. Each day, for several days, we went out into the hills, jungles, and kunai grass fields for training. And we enjoyed a cool shower each afternoon after coming in from the field. Guadalcanal was a big base by early 1945 and had many service troops and rear echelon units on it. Across the road from us was a battalion of Seabees, Naval Construction Battalion. Late one afternoon, three or four of us went over and eased quietly into the end of their chow line. Their cooks recognized us as Marines, but didn't say anything. We loaded up on real ice cream, fresh pork chops, fresh salad, and good bread all unheard-of delicacies on Pavuvu, and sat at a clean table in a spacious mess hall. It sure beat sea rations in a bivouac area. As intruders, we expected to be thrown out at any minute. No one seemed to notice us, though. Next afternoon, we returned along with other Marines who had the same idea and enjoyed another excellent supper. Next day, we tried it again easing quietly and slowly along to the chow line, trying not to attract attention. To my amazement, a large, neatly painted white sign with blue letters and blue border had been placed above the entrance to the chow line since the previous evening. I don't remember the exact wording, but it went something close to this. Marines welcomed in this chow line after all CB personnel have been through. We were as embarrassed as we were delighted. Those CBs had been fully aware of us all along and knew exactly how many Marines were slipping into their chow line. But they were willing and glad to share their extra chow with us as long as it lasted. The sign was necessary because the CBs knew we would spread the word and more hungry Marines would swarm over their chow line each day like ants. We were elated and went through the chow line grinning and thanking the messmen. They were the friendliest bunch I ever saw, and made us feel like adopted orphans. The sign may have been made earlier for 3rd Division Marines, who liked the Seabees' food as much as we, or it may have been put up for our benefit. In any event, we appreciated the good food and good treatment. It strengthened our respect for the Seabees. The 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, had been in the assault waves of Peleliu. Therefore, in the Okinawa campaign, we were assigned as regimental reserve. For the voyage to the island, consequently, we would be loaded aboard the attack transport ship USS McCracken, instead of LSTs. Such APA transports sent troops ashore in LCVPs, small, open landing craft, known as Higgins boats 
rather than amphibious tractors. One afternoon, following landing exercises and field problems, our company returned to the beach to await the return of the Higgins boats that would pick us up and return us to the ship. Late afternoon sunlight danced on the beautiful blue waves, and a large fleet of ships stood offshore in Sealark Channel. Dozens of Higgins boats and other amphibious craft plied from the ships to shore, loading marines and ferrying them out to the ships. It looked like some sort of boating festival, except that all the craft were military. One by one, the Higgins boats picked up men, about 25 at a time, from our beach area. We waited as the sun sank low in the west. The ships formed up in convoy and moved past us, parallel to the beach. We had no rations or extra water, were tired from day-long maneuvers, and had no desire to spend the night on a mosquito-infested beach. Finally, as the last ship showed us its stern, a Higgins boat came plowing through the spray toward us. We were the only troops left on the beach. The coxswain revved his engine, ran the bow of the shallow draft boat up on the beach, and dropped the bow ramp with a bang. We clambered aboard, and someone yelled the customary, Shove off, coxswain, you're loaded. We held on to the bulwarks of the boat as he raised the ramp, reversed engines, turned, and headed out at full throttle toward the disappearing ship. The sea was rough. As usual, Snafu started getting seasick, so he lay down on his side on the deck of the boat. We were crowded. Two machine gun squads and two 60-millimeter mortar squads packed the Higgins boat, along with all our combat gear, small arms, mortars, and machine guns. A Higgins boat, like any powerful motor-driven boat under full throttle, normally settled down at the stern end, with bow elevated and moved easily over the water. But our boat was so loaded with men and equipment that, even though we crowded as far back in the stern as possible, the squared-off bow ramp wasn't elevated sufficiently to skip over the waves. It drove straight against some large waves, and water poured in through an open viewport. Usually, this three-foot-by-two-foot panel rode well above water level. The coxswain yelled instructions to close the folding steel shutters on the panel, which we did as quickly as possible. But water still sprayed over the bow ramp and in through the cracks around the panel. In the gathering twilight, we could see the stern of a transport far ahead of us. It was the last ship in the convoy that had passed from view around the end of Guadalcanal. Our coxswain made as much speed as possible to catch the transport, and we shipped more and more water. If we didn't catch up with that transport before dark, we didn't know when we would get back to our ship. Water began filling the bilges below the floor decking, so the coxswain started the pumps to keep us afloat. We stood by to bail with our helmets, but by the time the water rose above the flooring where we could get at it, the boat would probably sink because of its heavy load. The situation was grim, and I dreaded the thought of trying to swim the couple of miles through rough water to the beach. What irony, I thought, if some of us should die after surviving Peleliu by drowning on maneuvers in Iron Bottom Bay. Slowly we gained on the transport and finally drew alongside. Towering above us, 
The ship was packed with Marines. We shouted up to them for help. A Navy officer leaned over the rail and asked us which ship we were from. We told him we had missed the McCracken and requested to come aboard or we might sink. He gave orders to our coxswain to pull in close under a pair of Davids. He did so, and two cables with hooks were lowered to us. Just as the hooks were fastened to rings in the floor, our Higgins boat seemed to start sinking. Only the cables held it up. A cargo net was lowered to us, and we scrambled up and aboard the ship. We were all mighty relieved to be out of that small boat. Several hours after dark, the ship arrived at the fleet anchorage. A signalman on the bridge went to work with his blinker light, sending code to other ships. The McCracken was located, and we were soon back aboard. Where the hell you guys been so long? asked a man in my troop compartment as we fell into our racks. We went to Frisco for a beer, someone answered. Wise guy, he replied. After maneuvers were completed, our convoy sailed from the Russell Islands on 15 March, 1945. We were bound for Ulithi Atoll, where the convoy would join the gathering invasion fleet. We anchored off Ulithi on 21 March and remained there until 27 March. We lined the rails of our transport and looked out over the vast fleet in amazement. We saw ships of every description, huge new battleships, cruisers, sleek destroyers, and a host of fast escort craft. Aircraft carriers were there in greater numbers than any of us had ever seen before. Every conceivable type of amphibious vessel was arrayed. It was the biggest invasion fleet ever assembled in the Pacific, and we were awed by the sight of it. Because of tides and winds, the ships swung about on their anchor chains, and each day the fleet looked new and different. When I came topside each morning, I felt disoriented. It was a strange sensation, as though I were in a different frame of reference and had to learn my surroundings anew. The first afternoon, at Ulithi, a fellow mortarman said, Break out the field glasses and let's see how many kinds of ships we can identify. We passed the mortar section's field glasses around and whiled away many hours studying the different ships. Suddenly someone gasped. Look over there at that hospital ship off the port bow. Look at them nurses. Give me them field glasses. Lining the rail of the hospital ship were about a dozen American nurses looking out over the fleet. A scuffle erupted among us over who would use the field glasses first. But we all finally had a look at the girls. We whistled and waved, but we were too far away to be heard. Aside from the huge new battleships and carriers, we talked mostly about a terribly scorched and battered aircraft carrier anchored near us. A Navy officer told us she was the Franklin. We could see charred and twisted aircraft on her flight deck, where they had been waiting, loaded with bombs and rockets, to take off when the ship was hit. It must have been a flaming inferno of bursting bombs and rockets and burning aviation gasoline. We looked silently at the battered, listing hulk until one man said, Ain't she a mess? Boy, them poor swabbies must have caught hell. Those of us who had lived through the blast and fire of Peleliu's artillery barrages could appreciate well the bravery of the sailors on the Franklin.
While we were anchored at Ulithi, we went ashore on the tiny islet of Mogmog for recreation and physical conditioning. After some calisthenics, and to the delight of all hands, our officers broke out warm beer and cokes. We had one of the most enjoyable baseball games I ever played. Everybody was laughing and running like a bunch of little boys. It was good to get off the cramped transport, stretch out our legs, and relieve the monotony. We hated to board the Higgins boats at sunset to return to the ship and our cramped quarters. At Ulithi, we received briefings on the coming battle for Okinawa. This time, there was no promise of a short operation. This is expected to be the costliest amphibious campaign of the war, a lieutenant said. We will be hitting an island about 350 miles from the Japs' home islands, so you can expect them to fight with more determination than ever. We can expect 80 to 85% casualties on the beach. A buddy next to me leaned over and whispered, How's that for boosting the troops' morale? I only groaned. The lieutenant continued, We may have trouble getting over that cliff or seawall in our sector. Also, according to G2, there is a large Jap gun, maybe 150 millimeters, emplaced just on the right flank of our battalion sector. We hope naval gunfire can knock it out. Be on the alert for a Jap paratrooper attack in our rear, particularly at night. It's pretty certain the Nips will pull off a massive counterattack probably supported by tanks, sometime during our first night ashore or just before dawn. They'll bonsai and try to push us off the beachhead. On 27 March, the loudspeaker came on with, Now hear this, now hear this. Special seat detail, stand by. Sailors assigned to the detail moved to their stations, where they weighed anchor. Well, Sledgehammer, they're raising the hook. So it won't be long before we're in it again, old buddy, a friend said. Yeah, I said, and I'm not in any hurry either. You can say that again, he sighed. The huge convoy got underway like clockwork. Just watching that host of different vessels kept my mind off what was ahead. As we proceeded, I was conscious of how cool the weather had become. We had our wool-lined field jackets with us and it was comfortable on deck, particularly at night. To those of us who had lived and fought in the sweltering tropics for months, cooler weather was very significant. Most of our voyage from Ulithi was uneventful. Each night, during the northward trip, I had noticed the beautiful Southern Cross constellation slipping lower and lower on the starlit horizon. Finally, it disappeared. It was the only thing about the South and Central Pacific I would miss. The Southern Cross formed a part of our 1st Marine Division shoulder patch and was, therefore, especially symbolic. We had intense pride in the identification with our units and drew considerable strength from the symbolism attached to them. As we drew closer to Okinawa, the knowledge that I was a member of Company K, 3rd Battalion, 5th Marine Regiment, 1st Marine Division, helped me prepare myself for what I knew was coming. Okinawa is a large island, some 60 miles long and from 2 to 18 miles wide. 
Like most islands in the Pacific, it is surrounded by a coral reef. But on the west coast, that reef lies close to shore, particularly along the invasion beaches at Hagushi. Through the center of the island runs a ridge rising some 1,500 feet in the wild, mountainous north. South of the Ishikawa Isthmus, the land levels out considerably, but is cut by several prominent streams. In 1945, as it remains today, the southern portion of the island contained the bulk of the civilian population. Of primary importance to the defense of the island were three east-west ridge systems crossing the southern part of the island. To the north and just below the invasion beaches lay the ridges of Kakazu and Nishibaru. In the middle, running west from Shuri Castle, was the most formidable of the ridges, cut by sheer cliffs and deep draws. Above the extreme southern tip of the island lay Kunishi, Yuzadake, and Yaijudake. Together, these ridges formed a series of natural defensive barriers to the American forces advancing from the north. Into these natural barriers, Lieutenant General Mitsuru Ushijima threw the bulk of his 110,000-man 32nd Japanese army. Natural and man-made barriers were transformed into a network of mutually supporting positions linked by a system of protected tunnels. Each of the ridgelines was held in great strength until it became untenable. Then the enemy withdrew to the next defense line. Thus the Japanese drew on their experiences at Peleliu, Saipan, and Iwo Jima to construct a highly sophisticated and powerful defense in depth. There they waited and fought to exhaust the will and resources of the American Tenth Army. Tensions mounted on the eve of D-Day. We received final orders to move in off the beach as fast as possible. We were also reminded that although we were in regimental reserve, we would probably get the hell kicked out of us coming on the beach. We were advised to hit the sack early. We would need all the rest we could get. A pre-dawn reveille ushered in Easter Sunday, April Fool's Day, 1945. The ship seethed with activity. We had chow of steak and eggs, the usual feast before the slaughter. I returned to our troop compartment and squared away my ammunition, combat pack, and mortar ammunition bag. The ship's crew manned battle stations and stood by to repel kamikaze attacks. Dawn was breaking, and the pre-assault bombardment of the beaches had begun. Above it, I could hear the drone of enemy aircraft inbound to the attack. I went into the head to relieve my distressed colon, cramped by fear and apprehension. On the big transport ships, the toilet facilities consisted of a row of permanent wooden seats situated over a metal trough through which ran a constant flow of seawater. There were about 20 seats. No limited facilities here, with Haney to delay us, as at Peleliu. Most of the men in my troop compartment had already been to the head, and by then had donned their gear and moved out on deck. So I was about the last one in the head. I settled comfortably on a seat. Next to me, I noticed a cage-like chute of iron mesh coming through the overhead ceiling, near one of the 40mm anti-aircraft gun tubs. It extended down, through the deck, and into the compartment below. 
Startled out of my wits by an incredibly loud sound of clattering, clanking, scraping, and rasping metal, I sprang up with a reflex born of fear and tried to bolt out of the head into the troop compartment. I knew a kamikaze had crashed into our ship right above me. My trousers around my ankles hobbled me, and I nearly fell. As I reached to pull them up, the loud clanking and clattering, like a thousand cymbals falling down stone steps, continued. I looked over at the iron mesh chute and saw dozens of empty brass 40mm shell cases cascading down from the guns above. They clattered and clanked through the chute to some collecting bin below decks. My fright subsided into chagrin. I got on my gear and joined the other men on deck to await orders. We milled around, each man sticking close to his buddy. Higgins' boats would take us to rendezvous areas and transfer us to Amtrak's, which previously had delivered the assault waves of infantry across the reef to the beach. The bombardment of the beach by our warships had grown in intensity, and our planes had joined in with strafing, rockets, and bombing. Japanese planes flew over the fleet at some distance from us. Many of our ships were firing at them. An order came for all troops to go below. This was to prevent casualties from strafing enemy planes. Loaded with our battle gear, we squeezed our way back through the door-like hatches into our compartment. Packed like sardines in the aisles between the racks, we waited in the compartment for orders to move back on deck. Sailors on deck dogged our hatches, sealed the doors by turning U-shaped handles positioned all around them. Like men locked in a closet, we waited and listened to the firing outside. The compartment wasn't large, and the air soon became foul. It was difficult to breathe. Although the weather was cool, we began to sweat. Hey, you guys, the blowers, electrical ventilating fans, are off. By God, we'll smother in this damn place, yelled one man. I was next to the hatch, and several of us started yelling at the sailors outside, telling them we needed air. They yelled back from the other side of the steel door that it couldn't be helped, because the electricity was needed to operate the gun mounts. Then by God, let us out on deck! Sorry, we've got orders to keep this hatch dog down. We all started cursing the sailors, but they were following orders, and I'm sure they didn't want to keep us locked in that stuffy compartment. Let's get the hell out of here, a buddy said. We all agreed it would be better to get strafed on deck than to suffocate in the compartment. Grasping the levers and moving them to the unlocked position, we tried to open the hatch. As fast as we turned each lever, the sailors outside turned it back and kept it dogged down. Other desperate marines joined us in trying to unclamp the hatch. There were only two sailors outside, so with our combined efforts, we finally got all the clamps open, shoved open the hatch, and burst out into the cool, fresh air. About that time, other Company K men poured out of the hatch on the other side of the compartment. One of the sailors got pushed over and rolled across the deck. In an instant, we were all outside, breathing in the fresh air. All right, you men, return to your quarters. No troops topside. That's an order, came a voice from a platform slightly aft and above us. We looked up and saw a Navy officer, an ensign, standing against the rail, glaring at us. He wore khakis 
an officer's cap, and insignia bars on his collar, in stark contrast to us dressed in green dungarees, tan canvas leggings, and camouflaged helmet covers, and loaded with battle equipment, weapons, and gear. He wore a web pistol belt with a forty-five automatic in the holster. None of our officers were in the area, so the Navy ensign had it all to himself. He swaggered back and forth, ordering us into the foul air of the troop compartment. If he had been a Marine officer, we would have obeyed his order with mutterings and mumblings. But he was so unimposing that we just milled around. Finally, he began threatening us all with court-martials if we didn't obey him. A friend of mine spoke up. Sir, we're going to hit that beach in a little while, and a lot of us might not be alive an hour from now. We'd rather take a chance on getting hit by a Jap plane out here than go back in there and smother to death. The officer spun around and headed for the bridge, to get help, we assumed. Shortly, some of our own officers came up and told us to stand by to go down the nets to the waiting boats. As far as I know, our breakout of the troop compartment for fresh air was never mentioned. We picked up our gear and moved to assigned areas, along the bulwarks of the ship. The weather was mostly clear and incredibly cool, about 75 degrees, after the heat of the South Pacific. The bombardment rumbled and thundered toward the island. Everything from battleships down to rocket and mortar boats were plastering the beaches along with our dive bombers. Japanese planes, their engines droning and whining, came in over the huge convoy, and many ships' anti-aircraft fire began bursting in the air. I saw two enemy planes get hit some distance from our ship. We were all tense, particularly with the intelligence estimate that we could expect 80 to 85% casualties on the beach. Although I was filled with dread about the landing, I wasn't nearly so apprehensive as I had been at Peleliu. Perhaps it was because I was already a combat veteran. I had survived the Peleliu landing and knew what to expect from the Japanese, as well as from myself. Climbing down the cargo net to the Higgins boat, I was still afraid. But it was different from Peleliu. In addition to the invaluable experience of being a combat veteran, the immensity of our fleet gave me courage. Combat vessels and armed transports ranged as far as we could see. I have no idea how many of our planes were in the air, but it must have been hundreds. We climbed down the net and settled into the Higgins boat. Someone said, Shove off, coxswain, you're loaded, as the last Marine climbed into our boat. The coxswain gunned the engine and pulled away from the ship. Other boats, loaded with Marines from 3-5, were pulling out all along the side of the ship. I sure hated to leave it. Amphibious craft of every description floated on the water around us. The complexity of the huge invasion was evident everywhere we looked. Our boat ran some distance from our ship, then began circling slowly in company with other boats loaded with men from our battalion. The bombardment of the Hagushi beaches roared on with awesome intensity. Sitting low in the water, we really couldn't see what was going on, except in our immediate vicinity. We waited nervously for H-hour, which was scheduled for 0830.
some of the ships began releasing thick white smoke as a screen for the convoy's activity. The smoke drifted lazily and mingled in with that of the exploding shells. We continued to circle on the beautiful blue water, made choppy by the other boats in our group. It's 08.30 now, someone said. The first wave's going in now. Stand by for a ram, Snafu said. The man next to me sighed. Yeah, the stuff's gonna hit the fan now. Chapter 9 Stay of Execution The landing is unopposed! We looked with amazement at the marine on the Amtrak with which our Higgins boat had just hooked up. The hell you say? One of my buddies shot back. It's straight dope. I ain't seen no casualties. Most of the nips must have hauled ass. I just saw a couple of mortar shells falling in the water, that's all. The guys went in standing up. It beats anything I ever saw. Images of the maelstrom at Peleliu had been flashing through my mind. But on Okinawa, there was practically no opposition to the landing. When we overcame our astonishment, everybody started laughing and joking. The release of tension was unforgettable. We sat on the edge of the Amtrak's troop compartment, singing and commenting on the vast fleet surrounding us. No need to crouch low to avoid the deadly shrapnel and bullets. It was, and still is, the most pleasant surprise of the war. It suddenly dawned on me, though, that it wasn't at all like the Japanese to let us walk ashore unopposed on an island only 350 miles from their homeland. They were obviously pulling some trick, and I began to wonder what they were up to. Hey, Sledgehammer, what's the matter? Why don't you sing like everybody else? I grinned and took up a chorus of the Little Brown Jug. That's more like it. As our wave moved closer to the island, we got a good view of the hundreds of landing boats and Amtrak's approaching the beach. Directly ahead of us, we could see the men of our regiment moving about in dispersed combat formations like tiny toy soldiers on the rising landscape. They appeared unhurried and nonchalant, as if on maneuvers. There were no enemy shells bursting among them. The island sloped up gently from the beach, and the many small garden and farm plots of the Okinawans gave it the appearance of a patchwork quilt. It was beautiful, except where the ground cover and vegetation had been blasted by shells. I was overcome with the contrast to D-Day on Peleliu. When our wave was about 50 yards from the beach, I saw two enemy mortar shells explode a considerable distance to our left. They spewed up small geysers of water, but caused no damage to the Amtraks in that area. That was the only enemy fire I saw during the landing on Okinawa. It made the April Fool's Day aspect even more sinister, because all those thousands of first-rate Japanese troops on that island had to be somewhere spoiling for a fight. We continued to look at the panorama around our Amtrak, with no thought of immediate danger, as we came up out of the water. The tailgate banged down. We calmly picked up our gear and walked onto the beach. A short distance down the beach on our right, the mouth of Bishigawa emptied into the sea. 
This small river formed the boundary between the army divisions of the 24th Corps to the south and the 3rd Amphibious Corps to the north of the river. On our side of the mouth of the river, on a promontory jutting out into the sea, I saw the remains of the emplacement containing the big Japanese gun that had concerned us in our briefings. The seawall in our area had been blasted down into a terrace-like rise a few feet high, over which we moved with ease. We advanced inland, and I neither heard nor saw any Japanese fire directed against us. As we moved across the small fields and gardens onto higher elevations, I could see troops of the 6th Marine Division heading toward the big Yontan airfield on our left. Jubilation over the lack of opposition to the landing prevailed, particularly among the Peleliu veterans. Our new replacements began making remarks about amphibious landings being easy. Lieutenant General Simon Bolivar Buckner, Jr., USA, commanded the 10th Army in the assault against Okinawa. Left north of the American landing was the 3rd Marine Amphibious Corps, led by Major General Roy S. Geiger, which consisted of the 1st and 6th Marine Divisions, with the latter on the left. To the right, south, landed the Army's 24th Corps, commanded by Major General John R. Hodge, and made up of the 7th and 96th Infantry Divisions, with the latter on the far right. Backing up the 24th Corps was the 77th Infantry Division, with the 27th Infantry Division afloat in reserve. Across the island stood the 2nd Marine Division, which had conducted an elaborate full-scale feint at the southeastern beaches. Altogether, Lieutenant General Buckner had 541,866 men at his disposal. Of the 50,000 troops ashore on D-Day, the four assault divisions lost only 28 killed, 104 wounded, and 27 missing. The plan of attack called for the four divisions to cross the island, cutting it in two. The Marines would then turn left and move north to secure the upper two-thirds of the island, while the army forces wheeled right into line and proceeded south. By late afternoon on D-Day, we were ordered to dig in for the night. My squad set up in a small field of recently harvested grain. The clay, loam soil, was just right for digging in, so we made a good gun pit. Our company's other two mortars were positioned nearby. We registered in our likely target areas to our front with a couple of rounds of HE, then squared away our ammo for the night. Everybody was expecting a big counterattack with tanks because of the open nature of the countryside. Once set up, several of us went over to the edge of the field and cautiously explored a neat, clean Okinawan farmhouse. It was a likely hiding place for snipers, but we found it empty. As we were leaving the house to return to our positions, Jim Dandridge, one of our replacements, stepped on what appeared to be a wooden cover over an underground rainwater cistern at the corner of the house. Jim was a big man and the wooden planks were rotten. He fell through, sinking in above his waist. The hole wasn't a cistern, but a cesspool for the sewage from the house. Jim scrambled out, bellowing like a mad bull and smelling worse. We all knew it might be weeks before we could get a change of dungarees, so it was no laughing matter to Jim. 
but we started kidding him unmercifully about his odd taste in swimming holes. Jim was good-natured, but he quickly had enough and chased a couple of the men back across the field to our positions. They laughed but kept out of his reach. No sooner had we gotten back to our foxholes than we heard the unmistakable drone of a Japanese aircraft engine. We looked up and saw a zero coming directly over us. The fighter was high, and the pilot apparently had bigger game than us in mind. He headed out over the beach toward our fleet offshore. Several ships began firing furiously as he circled lazily and then dove. The plane's engine began to whine with increasing intensity as the kamikaze pilot headed straight down toward a transport. We saw the smoke where he hit the ship, but it was so far away we couldn't determine what damage had been done. The troops had debarked earlier, but the ship's crew probably had a rough time of it. It was the first kamikaze I had seen crash into a ship, but it wasn't the last. In the gathering dusk, we turned our attention to our immediate surroundings and squared away for the night. We each had been issued a small bottle containing a few ounces of brandy to ward off the chill of D-Day night. Knowing my limited taste, appreciation, and capacity for booze, my buddies began trying to talk me out of my brandy ration. But I was cold after sundown and thought the brandy might warm me up a bit. I tried a sip, concluding immediately the Indians must have had brandy in mind when they supposedly spoke of firewater. I traded my brandy for a can of peaches, then broke out my wool-lined field jacket and put it on. It felt good. We waited in the clear, chilly night for the expected Japanese attack. But all was quiet, with no artillery fire nearby and rarely any rifle or machine gun fire. Stark contrast to the rumbling, crashing chaos of D-Day night on Peleliu. When Snafu woke me about midnight from my turn on watch, he handed me our Tommy submachine gun. I don't remember how, where, or when we got the Tommy gun, but Snafu and I took turns carrying it and the mortar throughout Peleliu and Okinawa. A pistol was fine, but limited at close range, so we valued our Tommy greatly. After a few minutes on watch, I noticed what appeared to be a man crouching near me at the edge of a line of shadows cast by some trees. I strained my eyes, averted my vision, and looked in all directions, but I couldn't be sure the dark object was a man. The harder I looked, the more convinced I was. I thought I could make out a Japanese fatigue cap. It wasn't a marine, because none of our people was placed where the figure was. It was probably an enemy infiltrator waiting for his comrades to get in place before acting. I couldn't be sure in the pale light. Should I fire or take a chance? My teeth began to chatter from the chill and the jitters. I raised the Tommy slowly, set it on full automatic, flipped off the safety, and took careful aim at the lower part of the figure. I mustn't fire over his head when the Tommy recoiled. I squeezed the trigger for a short burst of several rounds. Flames spurted out of the muzzle, and the rapid explosions of the cartridges shattered the calm. I peered confidently over my sights, expecting to see a Japanese knocked over by the impact of the big forty-five caliber slugs, 
Nothing happened. The enemy didn't move. Everyone around us began whispering. What's the dope? What did you see? I answered that I thought I had seen a Japanese crouching near the shadows. There were enemy in the area. For just then, we heard shouts in Japanese. A high-pitched yell. Nippon Banzai! Then, incoherent babbling followed by a burst of firing from one of our machine guns. Quiet fell. When dawn broke, the first dim light revealed my infiltrator to be a low stack of straw. My buddies kidded me for hours about a Peleliu veteran firing at a straw Japanese. Race across the island. On 2 April, D plus 1, the 1st Marine Division continued its attack across the island. We moved out with our planes overhead, but without artillery fire, because no organized body of Japanese had been located ahead of us. Everyone was asking the same question. Where the hell are the nips? Some scattered small groups were encountered and put up a fight, but the main Japanese army had vanished. During the morning, I saw a couple of dead enemy soldiers who apparently had been acting as observers in a large, leafless tree when some of the pre-landing bombardment killed them. One still hung over a limb. His intestines were strung out among the branches like garland decorations on a Christmas tree. The other man lay beneath the tree. He had lost a leg, which rested on the other side of the tree, with the leggings and trouser leg still wrapped neatly around it. In addition to their ghoulish condition, I noted that both soldiers wore high-top leather hobnail shoes. That was the first time I had seen that type of Japanese footwear. All the enemy I had seen on Peleliu had worn the rubber-soled, canvas-split-toed tabi. We encountered some Okinawans, mostly old men, women, and children. The Japanese had conscripted all the young men as laborers and a few as troops, so we saw few of them. We sent the civilians to the rear, where they were put into internment camps so they couldn't aid the enemy. These people were the first civilians I had seen in a combat area. They were pathetic. The most pitiful thing about the Okinawan civilians were that they were totally bewildered by the shock of our invasion, and they were scared to death of us. Countless times, they passed us on the way to the rear with fear, dismay, and confusion on their faces. The children were nearly all cute and bright-faced. They had round faces and dark eyes. The little boys usually had close-cropped hair, and the little girls had their shiny jet-black locks bobbed in the Japanese children's style of the period. The children won our hearts. Nearly all of us gave them all the candy and rations we could spare. They were quicker to lose their fear of us than the older people, and we had some good laughs with them. One of the funnier episodes I witnessed involved two Okinawan women and their small children. We had been ordered to halt and take ten, a ten-minute rest, before resuming our rapid advance across the island. My squad stopped near a typical Okinawan well, constructed of stone and forming a basin about two feet deep and about four feet by six feet on the sides. Water bubbled out of a rocky hillside. 
We watched two women and their children getting a drink. They seemed a bit nervous and afraid of us, of course. But life had its demands, with children about. So one woman sat on a rock, nonchalantly opened her kimono top, and began breastfeeding her small baby. While the baby nursed, and we watched, the second child, about four years old, played with his mother's sandals. The little fellow quickly tired of this and kept pestering his mother for attention. The second woman had her hands full with a small child of her own, so she wasn't any help. The mother spoke sharply to her bored child, but he started climbing all over the baby and interfering with the nursing. As we looked on with keen interest, the exasperated mother removed her breast from the mouth of the nursing baby and pointed it at the face of the fractious brother. She squeezed her breast, just as you would milk a cow, and squirted a jet of milk into the child's face. The startled boy began bawling at the top of his lungs while rubbing the milk out of his eyes. We all roared with laughter, rolling around on the deck and holding our sides. The women looked up, not realizing why we were laughing, but began to grin because the tension was broken. The little recipient of the milk in the eyes stopped crying and started grinning too. Get your gear on, we're moving out came the word down the column. As we shouldered our weapons and ammo and moved out amid continued laughter, the story traveled along to the amusement of all. We passed the two smiling mothers and grinning toddler, his cute face still wet with his mother's milk. Moving rapidly toward the eastern shore, we crossed terrain often extremely rugged with high, steep ridges and deep gullies. In one area, a series of these ridges lay across our line of advance. As we labored up one side and down the other of each ridge, we were tired but glad the Japanese had abandoned the area. It was ideal for defense. During another halt, we spent our entire break rescuing an Okinawan horse. The animal had become trapped in a narrow flooded drainage ditch about four feet deep. He couldn't climb out or move forward or backward. When we first approached the animal, he plunged up and down in the water, rolling his eyes in terror. We calmed him, slipped a couple of empty cartridge belts beneath his belly, and heaved him up out of the ditch. We had plenty of help, because Texans and horse lovers gravitated to the scene from all over our battalion, which ranged in columns along the valley and surrounding ridges. The city men looked on and gave useless advice. When we got the little horse out of the ditch, he stood on wobbly legs as the water dripped off him, shook himself, and headed for a patch of grass. No sooner had we washed the mud off the cartridge belts than the word came to move out. We didn't get any rest during that break, and we were tired, but we had the satisfaction of knowing that little horse wouldn't starve to death, bogged down in the ditch. The clear, cool weather compensated for our rapid advance over the broken terrain. Those of us with experience in the tropics felt as though we had been delivered from a steam room. The hills and ridges on Okinawa were mostly clay, but it was dry, and we didn't slip or slide with our heavy loads. Pine trees grew everywhere. I had forgotten what a delicious odor 
the needles gave off. We also saw Easter lilies blooming. Completing the initial assignment of the 1st Marine Division to cut the island in two, we reached the east coast in an area of marshes and what appeared to be large freshwater reservoirs. Offshore was a bay called Chimuan. We arrived on the afternoon of 4 April, some 8 to 13 days ahead of schedule. Our rapid movement had been possible, of course, only because of the widely scattered opposition. These first four days had been too easy for us. We were confused as to what the Japanese were doing. We knew they weren't about to give up the island without a fierce, drawn-out fight. And we didn't have to wait long to find out where the enemy was. Later that day, rumors began that the army divisions were meeting increasingly stiff opposition as they tried to move south. We knew that sooner or later, we'd be down there with them, in the thick of it. We also learned that our namesake company in the 7th Marines had been ambushed to the north of us, near the village of Hizayona, and had suffered losses of three killed and 27 wounded. Thus, despite the relative ease with which our division had moved across the center of the island, the Japanese were still there, and still hurting the Marines. The 1st Marine Division spent the remainder of April mopping up the central portion of Okinawa. Elements of the division, including the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, conducted a shore-to-shore amphibious operation toward the end of the month to secure the eastern islands which lay on the outer edge of Chimuwan Bay. The purpose was to deny them to the Japanese as an operating base in the rear of the American forces, much the same reason 3-5 had assaulted Ngesibus during the fight for Peleliu. The 6th Marine Division moved north during April and captured the entire upper part of the island. The task wasn't easy. It involved a rough, costly seven-day mountain campaign against strongly fortified Japanese positions in the heights of Motobu Peninsula. Meanwhile, three army divisions were coming up short against fierce Japanese resistance in the Kakazu-Nishibaru ridgeline, the first of three main enemy defense lines in the southern portion of the island. Stretched from left to right across Okinawa, the 7th, 96th, and 27th infantry divisions were getting more than they could handle and were making little progress in their attacks. Patrols Hardly had we arrived on the shore of Chimiwan Bay, then we received orders to move out. We headed inland and north into an area of small valleys and steep ridges, where we settled into a comfortable bivouac area and erected our two-man pup tents. It was more like maneuvers than combat. We didn't even dig foxholes. We could see Yontan Airfield in the distance to the west. Rain fell for the first time since we had landed five days earlier. The next day, our company began patrolling through the general area around our bivouac site. We didn't need the mortars because of the scattered nature of the enemy opposition. Stowing them out of the weather in our tents, those of us in the mortar section served as riflemen on the patrols. Mac, our new mortar section leader, led the first patrol I made. Our mission was to check out our assigned area for signs of enemy activity. Bergen was our patrol sergeant. I felt a lot more comfortable with him than with Mac. On a clear, chilly morning, 
with the temperature about 60 degrees, we moved out through open country on a good, rock-surface road. The scenery was picturesque and beautiful. I saw little sign of war. We had strict orders not to fire our weapons unless we saw a Japanese soldier or Okinawans we were certain were hostile. No shooting at chickens and no target practice. Mac, where are we headed? Someone had asked before we left. Izuna, the lieutenant answered without batting an eye. Jesus Christ, that's where K Company 7th got ambushed the other night, one of the new replacements said. Do you mean us few guys are supposed to patrol that place? Yeah, that's right, Hood, Bergen answered. We had nicknamed a big square-jawed man from Chicago, Hoodlum, because of the notorious gangs of John Dillinger and others in that city during the days of Prohibition. My reaction on hearing our destination had been to thrust my Tommy gun toward another new man, who wasn't assigned to the patrol, and say, Take this. Don't you want to go in my place? Hell no, he replied. So off we went, with Mac, striding along like he was still in OCS back in Quantico, Virginia. The veterans among us looked worried. The new men, like Mac, seemed unconcerned. Because of the strange absence of anything but scattered opposition, some of the new men were beginning to think war wasn't as bad as they had been told it was. Some of them actually chided us about giving them an exaggerated account of the horrors and hardships of Peleliu. Okinawa in April was so easy for the 1st Marine Division that the new men were lulled into a false sense of well-being. We warned them. When the stuff hits the fan, it's hell but they grew more and more sure that we veterans were snowing them. Mac didn't help matters either by his loud pronouncements of how he would take his K-bar in his teeth and his forty-five in hand and charge the Japanese as soon as one of our guys got hit. The April stay of execution tended to lull even the veterans into a state of wishful thinking and false security, although we knew better. Soon, however, our idyllic stroll on that perfect April morning was broken by an element of the horrid reality of the war that I knew lurked in wait for us somewhere on that beautiful island. Beside a little stream below the road, like a hideous trademark of battle, lay a Japanese corpse in full combat gear. From our view above, the corpse looked like a gingerbread man in a helmet with his legs still in the flexed position of running. He didn't appear to have been dead many days then, but we passed that same stream many times throughout April and watched the putrid remains decompose gradually into the soil of Okinawa. I was thankful the windswept road with the sweet, fresh smell of pine needles filling our nostrils was too high for us to sense his presence in any way but visually. As we patrolled in the vicinity of Hizuna, we moved through some of the area where Company K-7th Marines had been ambushed a few nights before. The grim evidence of a hard fight lay everywhere. We found numerous dead Japanese where they had fallen. Bloody battle dressings, discarded articles of bloody clothing, and bloodstains on the ground indicated where Marines had been hit. Empty cartridge cases were piled where various Marine weapons had been. I remember vividly 
an Okinawan footpath across a low hillock where the marine column apparently had been attacked from both sides. On the path were empty machine gun ammo boxes, ammo clips for M1 rifles, and carbine shell cases, discarded dungaree jackets, leggings, and battle dressings, and several large bloodstains, by then dark spots on the soil. Scattered, a short distance on both sides of the path, were about a score of enemy dead. The scene was like reading a paragraph from a page of a history book. The Marines had suffered losses, but they had inflicted worse on the attacking Japanese. We saw no Marine dead. All had been removed when the relief troops had come in and aided K-37 to withdraw from the ambush. As I looked at the flotsam of battle scattered along that little path, I was struck with the utter incongruity of it all. There, the Okinawans had tilled their soil with ancient and crude farming methods. But the war had come, bringing with it the latest and most refined technology for killing. It seemed so insane, and I realized that the war was like some sort of disease-afflicting man. From my experience at Peleliu, I had unconsciously come to associate combat with stifling hot, fire-swept beaches, steaming mangrove-choked swamps, and harsh, jagged coral ridges. But there, on Okinawa, the disease was disrupting a place as pretty as a pastoral painting. I understood then what my grandmother had really meant when she told me as a boy that a blight descended on the land when the South was invaded during the Civil War. While a buddy and I were looking over the area, Bergen told us to check out a section of sunken roadway nearby. The sunken portion was about 30 yards long and about 10 feet deep. The banks were steep and sloping. Heavy bushes grew along their edges at ground level, so all we could see was the sky overhead and the sloping road in front and behind us. When we were about halfway along the sunken road, carbine shots rang out from where we had left Bergen and Mac. Ambush, snarled my buddy, a veteran with combat experience stretching back to Cape Gloucester. We went into a low crouch instinctively, and I put my finger on the safety catch of the Tommy. Hurrying over to the bank toward the sound of the shots, we scrambled up and peered cautiously through the bushes. We both knew we wouldn't have a chance if we got pinned down in that ditch-like road where we could be shot from above. My heart pounded, and I felt awfully lonely as I looked out. There, where we had left him, stood Mac in the farmyard, calmly pointing his carbine straight down toward the ground by his feet at some object we couldn't see. My comrade and I looked at each other in amazement. What the hell? My buddy whispered. We climbed out of the sunken road and went toward Mac as he fired his carbine at the ground again. Other members of the patrol were converging cautiously on the area. They looked apprehensive, thinking we were being ambushed. Bergen stood a short distance behind Mac, shaking his head slowly in disgust. As we came up, I asked Mac what he had fired at. 
He pointed to the ground and showed us his target, the lower jaw of some long-dead animal. Max said he just wanted to see if he could shoot any of the teeth loose from the jawbone. We stared at him in disbelief. There we were, a patrol of about a dozen Marines, miles from our outfit, with orders not to fire unless at the enemy, in an area with dead Japanese scattered all over the place, and our lieutenant was plinking away with his carbine like a kid with a BB gun. If Mac had been a private, the whole patrol would probably have stuck his head in a nearby well. But our discipline was strict, and we just gritted our teeth. Bergen made some tactful remark to remind Mac he was the officer in charge of a patrol, and that the enemy might jump us at any time. Thereupon, Mac began spouting off, quoting some training manual about the proper way for troops to conduct themselves on patrol. Mac wasn't stupid or incompetent. He just didn't seem to realize there was a deadly war going on and that we weren't involved in some sort of college game. Strange as it seemed, he wasn't mature yet. He had enough ability to complete Marine Corps OCS, no simple task, but occasionally he could do some of the strangest things, things only a teenage boy would be expected to do. Once on another patrol, I saw him taking great pains and effort to position himself and his carbine near a Japanese corpse. After getting just the right angle, Mac took careful aim and squeezed off a couple of rounds. The dead Japanese lay on his back with his trousers pulled down to his knees. Mac was trying very carefully to blast off the head of the corpse's penis. He succeeded. As he exulted over his aim, I turned away in disgust. Mac was a decent, clean-cut man, but one of those who apparently felt no restraints under the brutalizing influence of war, although he had hardly been in combat at the time. He had one ghoulish, obscene tendency that revolted even the most hardened and callous men I knew. When most men felt the urge to urinate, they simply went over to a bush or stopped wherever they happened to be and relieved themselves without ritual or fanfare. Not Mac. If he could, that gentleman by the act of Congress would locate a Japanese corpse, stand over it, and urinate in its mouth. It was the most repulsive thing I ever saw an American do in the war. I was ashamed that he was a Marine officer. During the early part of that beautiful April in our happy little valley, while we veterans talked endlessly in disbelief about the lack of fighting, a few of us had a close view of a Japanese Zero fighter plane. One clear morning, after a leisurely breakfast of K-rations, several of us sauntered up a ridge bordering our valley to watch an air raid on Yontan Airfield. None of us was scheduled for patrols that day, and none of us was armed. We had violated a fundamental principle of infantrymen. Carry your weapon on your person at all times. As we watched the raid, we heard an airplane engine to our right. We turned, 
looked down a big valley below our ridge and saw a plane approaching. It was a zero flying up the valley toward us, parallel to and level with the crest of our ridge. It was moving so slowly it seemed unreal. Unarmed, we gawked like spectators at a passing parade as the plane came across our front. It couldn't have been more than 30 or 40 yards away. We could see every detail of the plane and of the pilot seated in the cockpit inside the canopy. He turned his head and looked keenly at our little group watching him. He wore a leather flat helmet, goggles pushed up on his forehead, a jacket, and a scarf around his neck. The instant the Zero pilot saw us, his face broke into the most fiendish grin I ever saw. He looked like the classic cartoon Japanese portrayed in American newspapers of the war years, with buck teeth, slanted eyes, and a round face. He grinned like a cat, for we were to be his mice. We were a fighter pilot's strafing dream. Enemy infantry in the open, with no anti-aircraft guns and no planes to protect us. One of my buddies muttered in surprise as the plane went on by to our left. Did you see that bastard grin at us? That slant-eyed son of a bitch. Where the hell's my rifle? It happened so fast, and we were all so astonished at the sight of a plane cruising by at eye level, we almost forgot the war. The Japanese pilot hadn't. He banked, climbed to gain altitude, and headed around another ridge out of sight. It was obvious he was coming back to rake us over. It would be difficult to avoid getting hit. No savior was in sight for us. As we started to spin around and rush back down the ridge seeking safety, we again heard a plane. This time, it wasn't the throb of a cruising engine, but the roar of a plane at full throttle. The Zero streaked past us, going down the valley in the opposite direction from which he had first appeared. He was still flying at eye level, and he was in a big hurry, as if the devil were after him. His devil was our savior, a beautiful blue marine corsair. That incredible corsair pilot bore in right behind the Japanese as they roared out of sight over the ridgetops. The planes were moving too fast to see either pilot's face, but I'm confident the Emperor's pilot had lost his grin when he saw that Corsair. On our patrols during April, we investigated many Okinawan villages and farms. We learned a lot about the people's customs and ways of life. Particularly appealing to me were the little Okinawan horses, really shaggy oversized ponies. The Okinawans used a type of halter on those horses that I had never seen before. It consisted of two pieces of wood held in place by ropes. The wooden pieces on either side of the horse's head were shaped like the letter F. They were carved out of fine-grained brown wood and were about as big around as a man's thumb. A short piece of rope or cord held the pieces together across the front, and a rope across the top of the animal's head held the pieces in place on each side of the head, just above the opening of the mouth. Two short ropes at the back of the wooden pieces merged into a single rope. When pull was exerted on this single rope, the wooden pieces clamped with gentle pressure 
against the sides of the animal's face above the mouth, and the animal stopped moving. This apparatus combined the qualities of a halter and a bridle without the need for a bit in the horse's mouth. I was so intrigued by the Okinawan halter that I took one off a horse we kept with us for several days and replaced it with a rope halter. My intention was to send the wooden halter home. I remembered that a bright piece of red cord held the front ends together, so I put it into my pack. After one May, however, it seemed increasingly doubtful that I would ever get home myself, and my equipment seemed to get heavier as the mud got deeper. Regretfully, I threw away the halter. We grew quite attached to the horse our squad had adopted, and he didn't seem to mind when we slung a couple of bags of mortar ammo across his back. When the time came, at the end of April, for us to leave our little horse, I removed the rope halter and gave him a lump of ration sugar. I stroked his soft muzzle as he switched flies with his tail. He turned, ambled across a grassy green meadow, and began grazing. He looked up and back at me once. My eyes grew moist. However reluctant I was to leave him, it was for the best. He would be peaceful and safe on the slopes of that green, sunlit hill. Being civilized men, we were duty-bound to return soon to the chaotic netherworld of shells and bullets and suffering and death. Ugly rumors began to increase about the difficulties the army troops were having down on southern Okinawa. From high ground, on clear nights, I could see lights flickering and glowing on the southern skyline. A distant rumble was barely audible sometimes. No one said much about it. I tried unsuccessfully to convince myself it was thunderstorms. But I knew better. It was the flash and the growl of guns. A Happy Landing On 13 April, 12 April back in the States, we learned of the death of President Franklin D. Roosevelt. Not the least bit interested in politics while we were fighting for our lives, we were saddened nonetheless by the loss of our president. We were also curious and a bit apprehensive about how FDR's successor, Harry S. Truman, would handle the war. We surely didn't want someone in the White House who would prolong it one day longer than necessary. Not long after hearing of Roosevelt's death, we were told to prepare to move out. Apprehension grew in the ranks. We thought the order meant the inevitable move into the inferno down south. On the contrary, it was to be a shore-to-shore -shore amphibious operation against one of the eastern islands. We learned that Company K was to land on Takabinari Island, and that there might not be any Japanese there. We were highly skeptical. But so far, Okinawa had been a strange battle for us. Anything could happen. Our battalion boarded trucks and headed for the East Coast. We went aboard Amtrak's and set out into Chimuan to make the short voyage to Takabanari. The other companies of our battalion went after other islands of the group. 
We landed with no opposition on a narrow, clean, sandy beach with a large rock mass high on our left. The rock hill looked foreboding. It was a vantage point from which flanking fire could have raked the beach. But all went well, and we pushed rapidly over the entire island without seeing a single enemy soldier. After we moved across the island and found nothing but a few civilians, we recrossed the island to the beach, where we set up defensive positions. My squad was situated partway up the slope of the steep rocky hill overlooking the beach. Our mortar was well emplaced among some rocks, so that we could fire on the beach or its approaches in the bay. A small destroyer escort was anchored offshore at the base of the hill. It had been standing by during our landing and remained with us during the several days we stayed on Takabanari. We felt important, as though we had our own private navy. The weather was pleasant, so sleeping in the open was comfortable. We had few duties other than standing by to prevent a possible enemy move to occupy the island. I wrote letters, read, and explored the area around our positions. Some of the Marines swam the short distance to the ship and went aboard, where the Navy people welcomed them and treated them to hot chow and all the hot coffee they wanted. I was content to laze in the sun and the cool air and eat K-rations. We left Takabanari after several days and returned to our bivouac on Okinawa. There, we resumed patrolling in the central area of the island. As April wore on, rumors and bad news increased about the situation the army was facing down south. Scuttlebutt ran rampant about our future employment down there. Our fear increased daily, and we finally got the word that we'd be moving south on 1 May to replace the 27th Infantry Division on the right flank of the 10th Army. About mid-April, the 11th Marines, the 1st Marine Division's artillery regiment, had moved south to add the weight of its firepower to the Army's offensive. On the 19th of April, the 27th Infantry Division launched a disastrous tank infantry attack against Kakazu Ridge. Thirty Army tanks became separated from their infantry support. The Japanese knocked out 22 of them in the ensuing fight. The 1st Marine Division's tank battalion offered the closest replacements for the tanks lost by the Army. Lieutenant General Simon B. Buckner, 10th Army Commander, ordered Major General Roy S. Geiger, 3rd Amphibious Corps Commander, to send the 1st Tank Battalion south to join the 27th Infantry Division. Geiger objected to the piecemeal employment of his Marines. So Buckner changed his orders and sent the entire 1st Marine Division south to relieve the 27th Infantry Division on the extreme right of the line just north of Machinato Airfield. During the last days of April, some of our officers and NCOs made a trip down south to examine the positions on the line that we were to move into. They briefed us thoroughly on what they saw, and it didn't sound promising. The stuff has hit the fan down there, boys. The nips are pouring on the artillery and mortars and everything they've got, said a veteran sergeant. Boys, they're firing knee mortars as thick and fast as we fire M1s. We were given instructions, issued ammo and rations, and told to square away our gear. We rolled up our shelter halves. I wished I could crawl into mine and hibernate, and packed our gear 
to be left behind with the battalion quartermaster. The first of May dawned cloudy and chilly. A few of us mortarmen built a small fire next to a niche in the side of the ridge to warm ourselves. The dismal weather and our impending move south made us gloomy. We stood around the fire, eating our last chow before heading south. The fire crackled cheerily, and the coffee smelled good. I was nervous and hated to leave our little valley. We tossed our last ration cartons and wrappers onto the fire. The area must be left cleaner than when we arrived, and a few of the men drifted away to pick up their gear. Grenade! yelled Mac as we heard the pop of a grenade primer cap. I saw him toss a fragmentation grenade over the fire into the niche. The grenade exploded with a weak bang. Fragments zipped out past my legs, scattering sparks and sticks from the fire. We all looked astonished. Mac, not the least so. No one was hit. I narrowly missed the million-dollar wound. It would have been a blessing in view of what lay ahead of us. The men, who had just moved away from the fire, undoubtedly would have been hit if they hadn't moved, because they had been standing directly in front of the niche. All eyes turned on our intrepid lieutenant. He blushed and mumbled awkwardly about making a mistake. Before we moved to board the trucks, Mac had thought it would be funny to play a practical joke on us. So we staged a well-known trick of pouring out the explosive charge from a fragmentation grenade, screwing the detonation mechanism back on the empty pineapple, and pitching it into the middle of a group of people. When the primer cap went pop, the perpetrator of the joke could watch with sadistic delight as everyone scrambled for cover, expecting the fuse to burn down and the grenade to explode. By his own admission, however, Mac had been careless. Most of the explosive charge remained in the grenade. He had poured out only part of it. Consequently, the grenade exploded with considerable force and threw out its fragments. Luckily, Mac threw the grenade into the niche in the ridge. If he had thrown it into the open, most of the Company K mortar section would have been put out of action by its own lieutenant before we ever got down south. Fortunately for Mac, the company commander didn't see his foolish joke. We regretted he hadn't. What a way to start our next fight. Chapter 10 Into the Abyss We boarded trucks and headed south over dusty roads. In this central portion of Okinawa, we first passed many bivouacs of service troops and vast ammunition and supply dumps, all covered with camouflage netting. Next, we came to several artillery positions. From the piles of empty brass shell cases, we knew they had fired a lot. And from the numerous shell craters gouged into the fields of grass, we could tell that the Japanese had thrown in plenty of counter-battery fire. At some unmarked spot, we stopped and got off the trucks. I was filled with dread. We took up a single file on the right side of a narrow coral road and began walking south. Ahead, we could hear the crash and thunder of enemy mortar and artillery shells, the rattle of machine guns, and the popping of rifles. 
Our own artillery shells whistled southbound. Keep your five-pace interval, came an order. We did not talk. Each man was alone with his thoughts. Shortly, a column of men approached us on the other side of the road. They were the Army Infantry, from 106th Regiment, 27th Infantry Division, that we were relieving. Their tragic expressions revealed where they had been. They were deadbeat, dirty and grisly, hollow-eyed and tight-faced. I hadn't seen such faces since Peleliu. As they filed past us, one tall, lanky fellow caught my eye and said in a weary voice, It's hell up there, Marine. Nervous about what was ahead, and a bit irritated that he might think I was a boot, I said with some impatience, Yeah, I know. I was at Peleliu. He looked at me blankly and moved on. We approached a low, gently sloping ridge where Company K would go into the line. The noise grew louder. Keep your five-pace interval. Don't bunch up, yelled one of our officers. The mortar section was ordered off the road to the left, in dispersed order. I could see shells bursting between us and the ridge. When we left the road, we severed our umbilical connection with the peaceful valley up north and plunged once more into the abyss. As we raced across an open field, Japanese shells of all types whizzed, screamed, and roared around us with increasing frequency. The crash and thunder of explosions was a nightmare. Rocks and dirt clattered down after each erupting shell blew open a crater. We ran and dodged as fast as we could to a place on a low gentle slope of the ridge and flung ourselves panting onto the dirt. Marines were running and crawling into position as soldiers streamed past us, trying desperately to get out alive. The yells for corpsmen and stretcher-bearers began to be heard. Even though I was occupied with my own safety, I couldn't help but feel sorry for the battle-weary troops being relieved and trying not to get killed during those few critical minutes as they scrambled back out of their positions under fire. Japanese rifle and machine gun fire increased into a constant rattle. Bullets snapped and popped overhead. The shelling grew heavier. The enemy gunners were trying to catch men in the open to inflict maximum casualties on our troops running into and out of position, their usual practice when one of our units was relieving another on the line. It was an appalling chaos. I was terribly afraid. Fear was obvious on the faces of my comrades, too, as we raced to the low slope and began to dig in rapidly. It was such a jolt to leave the quiet, beautiful countryside that morning and plunge into a thunderous, deadly storm of steel that afternoon. Going onto the beach to assault Peleliu and attacking across the airfield there, we had braced ourselves for the blows that fell, but the shock and shells of one May at Okinawa, after the reprieve of a pleasant April, caught us off balance. Fear has many facets and I do not minimize my fear and terror during that day. But it was different. I was a combat veteran of Peleliu. With terror's first constriction over, I knew what to expect. I felt dreadful fear, but not near panic. Experience had taught me what to expect from the enemy guns. More importantly, I knew I could control my fear.
the terrible dread that I might panic was gone. I knew that all anyone could do under shellfire was to hug the deck and pray, and curse the Japanese. There was the brassy, metallic twang of the small 50mm knee mortar shells as little puffs of dirty smoke appeared thickly around us. The 81mm and 90mm mortar shells crashed and banged all along the ridge. The whiz bang of the high-velocity 47mm gun shells, also an anti-tank gun, which was on us with its explosion almost as soon as we heard it whiz into the area, gave me the feeling the Japanese were firing them at us like rifles. The slower screaming, whining sound of the 75mm artillery shells seemed the most abundant. Then there was the roar and rumble of the huge enemy 150mm howitzer shell and the kaboom of his explosion. It was what the men called the big stuff. I didn't recall having recognized any of it in my confusion and fear at Peleliu. The bursting radius of these big shells was of awesome proportions. Added to all this noise was the swishing and fluttering overhead of our own supporting artillery fire. Our shells could be heard bursting out across the ridge over enemy positions. The noise of small arms fire from both sides resulted in a chaotic bedlam of racket and confusion. We were just below the crest of a low sloping section of the ridge. It was about ten feet high and on the left of our company's zone. Snafu and I began to dig the gun pit and the ammo carriers dug in with two-man foxholes. Digging in Okinawa's clay-like soil was easy, a luxury after the coral rock of Peleliu. No sooner had we begun to dig in than terrible news arrived about mounting casualties in the company. The biggest blow was the word that Private Nice and Westbrook had been killed. Both of these men were liked and admired by us all. Westbrook was a new man, a friendly curly-headed blonde, and one of the youngest married men in the outfit. I believed he wasn't yet twenty. Howard Neese was young in years, but an old salt with a combat record that started at Cape Gloucester. Many men were superstitious about one's chances of surviving a third campaign. By that time, one's luck was wearing thin, some thought. I heard this idea voiced by Guadalcanal veterans, who also had survived Gloucester, and then struggled against the odds on Peleliu. Howard's luck just ran out, that's all. Ain't no damn way a guy can go on forever without getting hit, gloomily remarked a Gloucester veteran, who had joined Company K with Nice two campaigns before Okinawa. We took the news of those deaths hard. Added to the stress of the day, it put us into an angry frame of mind as we dug in. Against whom should we pour out our anger while we were unable to fire at the enemy? Most of us had finished digging in when we suddenly noticed that our pugnacious Lieutenant Mack was still digging feverishly. He was excavating a deep one-man foxhole and throwing out a continuous shower of dirt with his entrenching shovel. While shells were still coming in, the fire had slackened a bit in our area, but Mack continued to burrow underground. I don't know who started it, but I think it was Snafu who reminded Mac of his oft-repeated promise to charge the enemy line as soon as any of our guys got hit. Once the kidding began, several of us veterans chimed in and vigorously encouraged Mac to keep his promise. Now that Nice and Westbrook been killed, 
Ain't it about time you took your K-Bar and 45 and charged them nips, Mac? Snafu asked. Mac never stopped digging. He simply answered that he had to dig in. I told him I would lend him my K-Bar. But another man said, with mock seriousness, Nah, Sledgehammer, he might not be able to return it to you. Boy, when Mac gets over to them nips, he's gonna clean house, and this blitz gonna be a pushover, someone else said. But Mac only grunted and showed no inclination to charge the enemy, or to stop digging. He burrowed like a badger. Our jibes didn't seem to faze him. We kept our comments respectful because of his rank, but we gave it to him good for all the bravado and nonsense he had been mouthing off with ever since he joined the company. Mac, if you dig that hole much deeper, they'll get you for desertion, someone said. Yeah, my mom used to tell me back home, if I dug a hole deep enough, I'd come through to China. Maybe if you keep digging, you'll get through to the States, and we can all crawl in there and go home, Mac, came one comment, accompanied by a grin. Mac could hear us, but was totally oblivious to our comments. It's hard to believe that we actually talked that way to a Marine officer. But it happened, and it was hilarious. He deserved every bit of it. When he finally got his foxhole deep enough, he began laying wooden boards from ammo boxes over all of the top except for one small opening through which he could squirm. Then he threw about six inches of soil on top of the boards. We sat in our holes, watching him and the shelling to our right rear. When he had completed the cover over his hole, which actually made it a small dugout with limited visibility, Mac got in and proudly surveyed his work. He had been too occupied to pay much heed to us, but now he explained carefully to us how the boards with soil on top would protect him from shell fragments. George Surratt, who wasn't interested in the lecture, inched up the little slope several feet and peeped over the crest to see if there were any enemy troops moving around out front. He didn't look long, because a Japanese on the next ridge saw him and fired a burst from a machine gun which narrowly missed him. As the slugs came snapping over, George jerked his head down, lost his balance, slid back down the slope, and landed on top of Mac's dugout, causing the roof to cave in. The startled lieutenant jumped up, pushing boards and soil aside, like a turtle rearing up out of a pile of debris. You ruined my foxhole, Mac complained. George apologized, but I had to bite my lip to keep from laughing. The other men smirked and grinned. We never heard any more from Mac about charging the Japanese line with his K-bar and forty-five caliber pistol. That enemy shelling had one beneficial result. It dissolved his bravado. We got our position squared away for the night and ate some K-rations as well as one could with a stomach tied in knots. More details reached us about the loss of Nice, Westbrook, and others killed and wounded. We regretted any American casualties, but when they were close friends, it was terribly depressing. They were just the first of what was to grow into a long, tragic list before we would come out of combat 50 hellish days later. Before dark, we learned there would be a big attack the next morning all along the U.S. line.
With the heavy Japanese fire poured onto us as we moved into that line, we dreaded the prospect of making a push. An NCO told us that our objective was to reach the Asadogawa, a stream about 1,500 yards south of us that stretched inland and eastward to an area near the village of Dikeshi. Rain ushered in a gloomy dawn. We were apprehensive but hopeful. There was some small arms fire along the line, and a few shells passed back and forth during early morning. The rain slackened temporarily, and we ate some K-rations. On the folding pocket-sized tripod issued to us, I heated up a canteen cup of coffee with a sterno tablet. I had to hover over it to keep the rain from drowning it out. As the seconds ticked slowly toward 0900, our artillery and ship's guns increased their rate of fire. The rain poured down, and the Japanese took up the challenge from our artillery. They started throwing more shells our way, many of which passed over us and exploded far to our rear, where our own artillery wasn't placed. Finally, we received orders to open fire with our mortars. Our shells exploded along a defilade to our front. Our machine guns opened up in earnest. Our artillery, ship's guns, and 81mm mortars increased the tempo to an awesome rate as the time for the attack approached. The shells whistled, whined, and rumbled overhead, ours bursting out in front of the ridge and the enemies exploding in our area and to the rear. The noise increased all along the line. Rain fell in torrents, and the soil became muddy and slippery wherever we hurried around the gun pit to break out and stack our ammo. I looked at my watch. It was 0900. I gulped and prayed for my buddies in the rifle platoons. Mortar, cease firing and stand by. We were ready to fire or to take up the mortars at a moment's notice and move forward. Some of our riflemen moved past the crest of the ridge to attack. Noise that had been loud now grew into a deafening bedlam. The riflemen hardly got out of their foxholes when a storm of enemy fire from our front and left flank forced them back. The same thing was happening to the battalions on our right and left. The sound of the many machine guns became one incredible rattle against a thundering and booming artillery. Rifles popped everywhere along the line, while Japanese slugs snapped over the low ridge behind which we lay. We fired some white phosphorus shells to screen our withdrawing troops. Just as we heard, cease firing, a marine came running through the mud on the slope to our right yelling, the guys pulling back need a stretcher team for mortars. Three other mortarmen and I took off on the double after the messenger. With bullets snapping and popping overhead, we ran along for about 40 yards, keeping just below the crest of the ridge. We came to a road cut through the ridge about eight feet below the crest. An officer told us to stand behind him until we were ordered to go out and bring in the casualty. This was the exact spot where Nice and Westbrook had been machine gunned the day before. Japanese bullets were zipping and swishing through the cut like hail pouring through an open window. A couple of Company K rifle squads were running back toward us from the abortive attack. They rushed along the road in small groups and turned right and left as soon as they got through the cut to get out of the line of fire. Incredibly, none got hit by the thick fire coming through the cut.
I knew most of them well, although some of the new men not as well as the veterans. They all wore wild-eyed, shocked expressions that showed only too vividly they were men who had barely escaped chance's strange arithmetic. They clung to their M1s, BARs, and Tommy guns, and slumped to the mud to pant for breath before moving behind the ridge toward their former foxholes. The torrential rain made it all seem so much more unbelievable and terrible. I hoped fervently that we wouldn't have to step out into that road to pick up a casualty. I felt ashamed for thinking this, but I knew full well that if I were lying out there wounded, my fellow Marines wouldn't leave me. But I didn't see how anyone could go out and get back now that the volume of fire was so intense. Since most of our attacking troops had fallen back, the Japanese could concentrate their fire on the stretcher teams as I had seen them do at Peleliu. They showed medical personnel no mercy. Our company gunnery sergeant, Hank Boyce, was the last man through the cut. He made a quick check of the men and announced, to my immense relief, that everyone had made it back. Casualties had been brought back farther down the line where the machine gun fire hadn't been as heavy. Boys was amazing. He had dashed out to the men pinned down in front of the ridge, where he threw smoke grenades to shield them from the Japanese fire. He returned with a hole shot through his dungaree cap. He wasn't wearing his helmet, and another through his pants leg. He had been hit in the leg with fragments from a Japanese knee mortar shell, but refused to turn in. The officer told us we wouldn't be needed as stretcher bearers and to return to our posts. As we took off on the double to the gun pits, the shells kept up their heavy traffic back and forth. But the bullets began to slacken off somewhat, with all our men by then under cover of the ridge. I jumped into the gun pit, and my temporary replacement hurried back to his hole. We crouched in our foxholes in the pouring rain, cursing the Japanese, the shells, and the weather. The enemy gunners poured fire into our company area to discourage another attack. Word came down the line that all attacking Marine units had suffered considerable casualties, so we would remain inactive until the next day. That suited us fine. The Japanese shelling continued viciously for some time. We all felt depressed about the failure of the attack, and we still didn't know how many friends we had lost, an uncertainty that always bore down on every man after an attack or firefight. From the gun pit, which contained several inches of water, we looked out on a gloomy scene. The rain had settled into a steady pelting that promised much misery. Across the muddy fields, we saw our soaked comrades crouching forlornly in their muddy holes and ducking, as we did, each time a shell roared over. This was my first taste of mud in combat, and it was more detestable than I had ever imagined. Mud in camp on Pavuvu was a nuisance. Mud on maneuvers was an inconvenience. But mud on the battlefield was misery beyond description. I had seen photographs of World War I troops in the mud, the man grinning, of course, if the picture was posed. If not posed, the faces always wore a peculiarly forlorn, disgusted expression, an expression I now understood. 
The air was chilly and clammy, but I thanked God we weren't experiencing this misery in Europe, where the foxholes were biting cold as well as wet. The shelling finally subsided, and things got fairly quiet in our area. We squatted thankfully in our holes and grumbled about the rain. The humid air hung heavily with the chemical odor of exploded shells. Shortly to our left rear, we saw a marine stretcher team bringing a casualty back through the rain. Instead of turning left behind the ridge we were on, or right behind the one further across the field, the team headed straight back between the two low ridges. This was a mistake, because we knew the Japanese could still fire on that area. As the stretcher team approached the cover of some trees, Japanese riflemen to our left front opened up on them. We saw bullets kicking up mud and splashing in the puddles of water around the team. The four stretcher bearers hurried across the slippery field, but they couldn't go faster than a rapid walk or the casualty might fall off the stretcher. We requested permission to fire 60mm phosphorus shells as a smoke screen. We were too far away to throw smoke grenades to cover the stretcher team. Permission was denied. We weren't allowed to fire across our company front because of the possibility of hitting unseen friendly troops. Thus, we watched helplessly as the four stretcher bearers struggled across the muddy field with bullets falling all around them. It was one of those terribly pathetic, heart-rending sights that seemed to rule in combat. Men struggling to save a wounded comrade, the enemy firing at them as fast as they could, and the rest of us utterly powerless to give any aid. To witness such a scene was worse than personal danger. It was absolute agony. To lighten their loads, The four carriers had put all of their personal equipment aside, except for a rifle or carbine over their shoulder. Each held a handle of the stretcher in one hand and stretched out the other arm for balance. Their shoulders were stooped with the weight of the stretcher. Four helmeted heads hung low, like four beasts of burden being flogged. Soaked with rain and spattered with mud, the dark green dungarees hung forlornly on the men. The casualty lay inert on the narrow canvas stretcher, his life in the hands of the struggling four. To our dismay, the two carriers in the rear got hit by a burst of fire. Each loosened his grip on the stretcher. Their knees buckled, and they fell over backwards onto the muddy ground. The stretcher pitched onto the deck. A gasp went up from the men around me but it turned almost immediately into roars of relief. The two marines at the other end of the stretcher threw it down, spun around, and grabbed the stretcher casualty between them. Then, each supported a wounded carrier with his other arm. As we cheered, all five assisted one another and limped and hobbled into the cover of the bushes, bullets still kicking up mud all around them. I felt relief and elation over their escape, matched only by a deepened hatred for the Japanese. Before nightfall, we received information that Company K would push again the next day. As the rain slowly diminished and then ceased, we made our grim preparations. While receiving extra ammo, rations, and water, I saw our company officers and NCOs gathering nearby. 
They stood or squatted around the CO, talking quietly. Our company commander was obviously in charge, giving orders and answering questions. The senior NCOs and the veteran officers stood by with serious, sometimes worried expressions as they listened. Those of us in the ranks watched their familiar faces carefully for signs of what was in store for us. The faces of the replacement lieutenants reflected a different mood. They showed enthusiastic, animated expressions with eyebrows raised in eager anticipation of seeing the thing through, like a successful field problem at OCS in Quantico. They were very conscientious and determined to do their best or die in the effort. To me, those young officers appeared almost tragic in their naive innocence and ignorance of what lay ahead for us all. The new officers bore a heavy burden. Not only were they going into combat with all its terrors and unknowns for the first time, conditions even the best of training couldn't possibly duplicate, but they were untried officers. Combat was the acid test. Faced with heavy responsibilities and placed in a position of leadership amid hardened, seasoned Marine combat veterans in a proud, elite division like the 1st was a difficult situation and a terrific challenge for any young lieutenant. No one I knew in the ranks envied them in the least. During the course of the long fighting on Okinawa, unlike at Peleliu, we got numerous replacement lieutenants. They were wounded or killed with such regularity that we rarely knew anything about them other than a code name and saw them on their feet only once or twice. We expected heavy losses of enlisted men in combat, but our officers got hit so soon and so often that it seemed to me the position of second lieutenant in a rifle company had been made obsolete by modern warfare. After the CEO dismissed the junior officers, they returned to their respective platoons and briefed the troops about the impending push. Mac was crisp and efficient in his orders to Bergen and the rest of the mortar section NCOs. In turn, they told us what to prepare for. It was good to see Mac divested of his cockiness. We would get maximum support from heavy artillery and other weapons. Casualties would be given swift aid. So we prepared our equipment and waited nervously. A friend came over from one of the rifle platoons that was to be in the next day's assault. We sat near the gun pit on our helmets in the mud and had a long talk. I lit my pipe, and he a cigarette. Things were quiet in the area, so we were undisturbed for some time. He poured out his heart. He had come to me because of our friendship and because I was a veteran. He told me he was terribly afraid about the impending attack. I said everybody was. But I knew he would be in a more vulnerable position than some of us because his platoon was in the assault. I did my best to cheer him up. He was so appalled and depressed by the fighting of the previous day that he had concluded he couldn't possibly survive the next day. He confided his innermost thoughts and secrets about his parents and a girl back home whom he was going to marry after the war. The poor guy wasn't just afraid of death or injury. The idea that he might never return to those he loved so much, had him in a state of near desperation. 
I remembered how Lieutenant Hillbilly Jones had comforted and helped me through the first shock of Peleliu, and I tried to do the same for my friend. Finally, he seemed somewhat relieved, or resigned to his fate, whatever it might be. We got up and shook hands. He thanked me for our friendship, then walked slowly back to his foxhole. There was nothing unique in the conversation. Thousands like it occurred every day among infantrymen scheduled to enter the chaos and inferno of an attack. But it illustrates the value of camaraderie among men facing constant hardship and frequent danger. Friendship was the only comfort a man had. It seems strange how men occupied themselves after all weapons and gear had been squared away for an impending attack. We had learned in boot camp that no pack straps should be left with loose ends dangling. Any such loose straps on a Marine's pack were called Irish pennants. Why Irish, I never knew. And resulted in disciplinary action or a blast from the drill instructor. So, from pure habit, I suppose, we carefully rolled up the loose straps and shaped up our packs. There was always a bit of cleaning and touching up to be done on one's weapon, with the toothbrush most of us carried for that purpose. A man could always straighten up his lacings on his leggings, too. With such trivia, doomed men busily occupied themselves, as though when they got up and moved forward out of their foxholes, it would be to an inspection rather than to oblivion. We were partially successful with our attack on 3 May. The knockout of the Japanese heavy machine gun by our mortars the previous day helped our companies advance to the next low ridgeline. But we couldn't hold the hills. Heavy enemy machine gun and mortar fire drove us back about a hundred yards. Thus, we gained about three hundred yards for the entire day. We moved into a quiet area, back of the front lines well before dark. Word came that because of heavy casualties over the past two days' fighting, Company K would go into battalion reserve for a while. We dug in around the battalion aid station for its defense. Our casualties were still coming back from the afternoon's action as we moved into position. Much to my joy, I saw the friend with whom I'd had the conversation the night before. He wore a triumphant look of satisfaction, shook hands with me heartily, and grinned as a stretcher team carried him by with a bloody bandage on his foot. God or chance, depending on one's faith, had spared his life and lifted his burden of further fear and terror in combat by awarding him a million-dollar wound. He had done his duty, and the war was over for him. He was in pain, but he was lucky. Many others hadn't been as lucky the last couple of days. Counterattack We settled into our holes for the night, feeling more at ease off the line and in a quiet area. My foxhole partner had the first watch, so I dropped off to sleep, confident that we would have a fairly quiet night. I hadn't slept long before he woke me with, Sledgehammer, wake up. The nips are up to something. Startled, I awoke and instinctively unholstered my forty-five automatic. I heard a stern order from an NCO. Stand by for a ram, you guys. One hundred percent alert. I heard heavy artillery and small arms firing up on the line. 
It seemed to come mostly from the area beyond our division's left flank, where army troops were located. The firing directly forward had increased too. Our artillery shells swished overhead in incredible numbers. It wasn't just the usual harassing fire against the Japanese. There was too much of it for that. What's the dope? I asked nervously. Beats me, said my buddy. But something sure the hell's going on up on the line. Nip's probably pulling a counterattack. From the increasing fire, enemy as well as friendly, it was obvious something big was happening. As we waited in our holes, hoping to get word about what was going on, heavy machine gun and mortar fire broke out, abruptly some distance to our right, to the rear of where the first marine line reached the sea. From our little mound, we saw streams of American machine gun tracers darting straight out to sea under the eerie light of 60mm mortar flares. That could only mean one thing. The enemy was staging an amphibious attack, trying to come ashore behind the right flank of the 1st Marines, which was the right-hand regiment of the 1st Marine Division's line. The Nips must be pulling a counter-landing, and the 1st Marines giving them hell, someone said tensely. Could our comrades in the 1st Marine Regiment stop that attack? That was the question on everyone's mind. But one man said confidently in a low voice, The 1st Marines will tear their ass up, betcha. We hoped he was right. With no more than we knew, it was clear that if the Japanese got ashore on our right flank and counterattacked heavily on our left and front, our entire division might be isolated. We sat and listened apprehensively in the darkness. As if things didn't seem grim enough, the next order came along. Stand by for possible Jap paratroop attack. All hands turn to. Keep your eyes open. My blood felt like ice water throughout my body, and I shuddered. We weren't afraid of Japanese paratroopers as such. They couldn't be any tougher to deal with than veteran Japanese infantry. But the fear of being cut off from other U.S. troops by having the enemy land behind us filled us with dread. Most nights on Peleliu, we had to keep a sharp lookout to front, rear, right, and left. But that night on Okinawa, we had to scan even the dark sky for signs of parachutes. We lived constantly with the fear of death or maiming from wounds. But the possibility of being surrounded by the enemy and wounded beyond the point of being able to defend myself chilled my soul. They were notorious for their brutality. A couple of Japanese planes flew over during the night. We recognized the sound of the engines and I experienced a dread I had never known before. But they passed on without dropping parachutists. They were bombers or fighters on their way to attack our ships lying offshore. The Japanese and American artillery fired to our left front, rumbled and roared on and on with frightening intensity, drowning out the rattle of machine guns and rifles. To our right, elements of the 1st Marine Regiment kept up their small arms and mortar fire out to sea for quite some time. We heard scattered rifle fire far to our rear. This was disturbing, but some optimists said it was probably nothing more than trigger-happy, rear-echelon guys firing at shadows. Rumors passed that some enemy soldiers had broken through the army's line on our left. It was a long night made worse by the uncertainty and confusion around us. I suffered extremely mixed emotions. 
glad on the one hand to be out of the fighting, but anxious for those Americans catching the fury of the enemy's attack. At first light, we heard Japanese planes attacking our ships and saw the fleet throwing up anti-aircraft fire. Despite the aerial attack, the ship's big guns began heavy firing against the Japanese on land. Toward our right and rear, the firing of our infantry units slackened. We learned that radio messages indicated the 1st Marines had slaughtered hundreds of Japanese in the water when they tried a landing behind our division's flank. The sound of scattered firing told us some enemy had slipped ashore, but the major threat was over. Our artillery increased its support fire to our front, and we were told that our division would attack during the day. We would remain in position, however, an order we found most agreeable. Word came that army troops on our left had held off the main Japanese attack, but things were still grim in that area. Some enemy had gotten through, and others were still attacking. While 3-5 remained in reserve, the 1st Marine Division began its attack to our front, and we heard that the opposition was ferocious. We received orders to be on the lookout for any enemy that might have slipped around the division's flank during the night. There were none. There was a massive enemy air attack against our fleet at this time. We saw a kamikaze fly through a thick curtain of flak and crash dive into a cruiser. A huge white smoke ring rose thousands of feet into the air. We heard shortly that it was the cruiser USS Birmingham that had suffered considerable damage and loss of life among her crew. The Japanese counterattack of the 3rd to the 4th of May was a major effort aimed at confusing the American battle plan by isolating and destroying the 1st Marine Division. The Japanese made a night amphibious landing of several hundred men on the east coast behind the 7th Infantry Division. Coordinated with that landing was another on the west coast behind the 1st Marine Division. The Japanese plan called for the two elements to move inland, join up, and create confusion to the rear while the main counterattack hit the American center. The Japanese 24th Infantry Division concentrated its frontal attack on the boundary between the American Army's 7th and 77th Infantry Divisions. The enemy planned to send a separate brigade through the gap in the American lines created by the 24th Division's attack, swing it to the left behind the 1st Marine Division, and hit the Marines as the Japanese 62nd Infantry Division attacked the 1st Marine Division's front. If the plan succeeded, the enemy would isolate and destroy the 1st Marine Division. It failed when the two American Army Divisions stopped the frontal assault, except for a few minor penetrations, with more than 6,000 Japanese dead counted. At the same time, the 1st Marines, on the right of the 1st Marine Division, discovered the enemy landing on the west coast. They killed over 300 enemy in the water and on the beach. Chapter 11 Of Shock and Shells Heavy rain began on 6 May and lasted through 8 May, a preview of the nightmare of mud we would endure from the end of the second week of May until the end of the month. Our division had reached the banks of the Asatogawa at a cost of 1,409 casualties, killed and wounded. 
I knew losses had been heavy during the first week of May because of the large number of casualties I saw in just the small area we were operating in. On 8 May, Nazi Germany surrendered unconditionally. We were told this momentous news, but considering our own peril and misery, no one cared much. So what? Was typical of the remarks I heard around me. We were resigned only to the fact that the Japanese would fight to total extinction on Okinawa, as they had elsewhere, and that Japan would have to be invaded with the same gruesome prospects. Nazi Germany might as well have been on the moon. The main thing that impressed us about VE Day was a terrific, thundering artillery and naval gunfire barrage that went swishing, roaring, and rumbling toward the Japanese. I thought it was in preparation for the next day's attack. Years later, I read that the barrage had been fired on enemy targets at noon, forged destructive effect on them, but also as a salute to VE Day. The 6th Marine Division moved into the line on our right, and our division shifted toward the left somewhat. This put us in the center of the American front. As we crouched in our muddy foxholes in the cold rain, the arrival of the 6th Marine Division, plus the massive artillery barrage, did more for our morale than news about Europe. The 5th Marines approached the village of Dekeshi and ran into a strong enemy defense system in an area known as the Awacha Pocket. Talk was that we were approaching the main Japanese defense line, the Shuri Line. But Awacha and Akeshi confronted us before we reached the main ridges of the Shuri Line. When our battalion dug in in front of Awacha, our mortars were emplaced on the slope of a little rise about 75 yards behind the front line. The torrents of rain were causing us other problems besides chilly misery. Our tanks couldn't move up to support us. Amtrak's had to bring a lot of supplies because the jeeps and trailers bogged down in the soft soil. Ammunition, boxes of rations, and five-gallon cans of water were brought up as close to us as possible. But because of the mud along a shallow draw that ran to the rear of the mortar section, all supplies were piled about 50 yards away in a supply dump on the other side of the draw. Working parties went off to carry the supplies from the dump across the draw to the rifle platoons in the mortar section. Carrying ammo and rations was something the Varens had done plenty of times before. With the others, I had struggled up and down Peleliu's unbelievably rugged, rocky terrain in the suffocating heat, carrying ammo, rations, and water. Like carrying stretcher cases, it was exhausting work. But this was my first duty on a working party in deep mud, and it surpassed the drudgery of any working party I had ever experienced. All ammunition was heavy, of course, but some was easier to handle than others. We praised the manufacturers of hand grenade and belt and machine gun ammunition boxes. The former were wooden, with a nice rope handle on each side. The latter were metal and had a collapsible handle on top. But we cursed the dolts who made the wooden cases our thirty caliber rifle ammo came in. Each box contained a thousand rounds of ammunition. It was heavy 
and had only a small notch cut into either end. This allowed only a fingertip grip by the two men usually needed to handle a single crate. We spent a great deal of time in combat carrying this heavy ammunition on our shoulders to places where it was needed, spots often totally inaccessible to all types of vehicles and breaking it out of the packages and crates. On Okinawa, this was often done under enemy fire, in driving rain, and through knee-deep mud for hours on end. Such activity drove the infantrymen, weary from the mental and physical stress of combat, almost to the brink of physical collapse. A great number of books and films about the war ignored this grueling facet of the infantrymen's war. They gave the impression that ammunition was always up there when needed. Maybe my outfit just happened to get a particularly bad dose of carrying ammo into position on Peleliu because of the heat and rugged terrain, and on Okinawa because of the deep mud. But the work was something none of us would forget. It was exhausting, demoralizing, and seemingly unending. In this first position before Awacha, those of us detailed to the working parties had made a couple of trips across the shallow draw when a Nambu light machine gun opened up from a position to our left. I was about midway across the draw, in no particular hurry, when the Japanese gunner fired his first bursts down the draw. I took off at a run, slipping and sliding on the mud, to the protected area where the supply dump was placed. Slugs snapped viciously around me. The men with me also were lucky as we dove for the protection of a knoll beside the supplies. The enemy machine gunner was well concealed up the draw to our left and had a clear field of fire any time anyone crossed where we were. We were bound to lose men to that Nambu if we kept moving back and forth. Yet we had to get the ammo distributed for the coming attack. We looked across the draw toward the mortar section and saw Redifer throw out a phosphorus grenade to give us smokescreen protection when we came back across. He threw several more grenades which went off with a muffled bump and a flash. Thick clouds of white smoke billowed forth and hung almost immobile in the heavy, misty air. I grabbed a metal box of 60mm mortar ammo in each hand. Each of the other men also picked up a load. We prepared to cross. The Nambu kept firing down the smoke-covered draw. I was reluctant to go, as were the others but we could see Redifer standing out in the draw, throwing more phosphorus grenades to hide us. I felt like a coward. My buddies must have felt the same way as we glanced anxiously at each other. Someone said resignedly, Let's go. On the double. And keep your five-pace interval. We dashed into the smoky, murky air. I lowered my head and gritted my teeth, as the machine gun slug snapped and zipped around us. I expected to get hit. So did the others. I wasn't being brave, but Redifer was, and I would rather take my chances than be yellow in the face of his risks to screen us. If he got hit while I was cringing in safety, I knew it would haunt me the rest of my life. That is, if I lived much longer, which seemed more unlikely every day. The smoke hit us from the gunner, but he kept firing intermittent bursts down the draw to prevent our crossing. Slugs popped and snapped 
but we made it across. We rushed behind the knoll and flung the heavy ammo boxes down on the mud. We thanked Redifer, but he seemed more concerned with solving the problem at hand than talking. Boy, that nip's got the best trained trigger finger I ever heard. Listen to them short bursts he gets off, a buddy said. We panted and listened to the machine gun half in terror and half in admiration of the Japanese gunner's skill. He continued to fire across the rear of our position. Each burst was two or three rounds in spaced, tat-tat, tat-tat-tat, tat-tat. Just then, we heard the engine of a tank some distance across the draw. Without a word, Redifer sped across the draw toward the sound. He got across safely. We could see him dimly through the drifting smoke as he contacted the tankers. Shortly, we saw him backing toward us slowly, giving the tankers hand signals as he directed the big Sherman across the draw. The Nambu kept firing blindly through the smoke as we watched Redifer anxiously. He seemed unhurried and reached us safely with the tank. The tankers had agreed to act as a shield for us in our hazardous crossing. With several of us crouching in the welcome protection it afforded us, the tank moved back and forth across the draw, always between us and the enemy machine gun. We loaded up on ammo and moved slowly across the machine gun swept draw, hugging the side of the tank like chicks beside a mother hen. We kept this up until all the ammo was brought safely across. The troops often expressed the opinion that whether an enlisted man was or wasn't recommended for a decoration for outstanding conduct in combat depended primarily on who saw him perform the deed. This certainly was true in the case of Redifer and what he had done to get the ammunition across the draw. I had seen other men awarded decorations for less, but Redifer was not so fortunate as to receive the official praise he deserved. Just the opposite happened. As we finished the chore of moving the ammo across the draw, a certain first lieutenant, who by some unlucky chance had been assigned to Company K after Palaloo, came up. We called him simply Shadow, a tall, skinny man. He was the sloppiest Marine, officer, or enlisted I ever saw. His dungarees hung on him like old, discarded clothes on a scarecrow. His web pistol belt was wrapped around his waist like a loose sash on a dressing gown. His map case flopped around. And every pack strap dangled more Irish pennants than any new recruit had in boot camp. Shadow never wore canvas leggings when I saw him. His trouser legs were rolled up unevenly above his skinny ankles. He didn't fit his camouflaged cloth helmet covered tightly over his helmet like most Marines. It sagged to one side, like some big stocking cap. For some reason, he frequently carried his helmet upside down in his left hand, clutched against his side like a football. On his head, he wore a green cloth fatigue cap like the rest of us wore under our helmets. But his cap was torn across the top so that his dark hair protruded like straw through a scarecrow's hat. Shadow's disposition was worse than his appearance. Moody, ill-tempered, and highly excitable, he cursed the veteran enlisted men worse than most D.I.s did recruits in boot camp. 
when he was displeased with a Marine about something. He didn't reprimand the man the way our other officers did. He threw a tantrum. He would grab his cap by the bill, fling it onto the muddy deck, stamp his feet, and curse everyone in sight. The veteran sergeant who accompanied Shadow would stand silently by during these temper displays, torn between a compulsion to reprimand us, if it seemed his duty to do so, and embarrassment and disapproval over his officer's childish behavior. In all fairness, I don't know how competent an officer Shadow was considered to be by his superiors. Needless to say, he wasn't highly regarded in the ranks, simply on the basis of his lack of self-control. But he was brave. I'll give him that. Shadow pitched a fit in reaction to what Redifer had done in facilitating our ammo transportation across the draw. It was just the first of many such performances I was to witness, and they never ceased to amaze as well as disgust me. He went to Redifer and unleashed such a verbal assault against him that anyone who didn't know better would have assumed that Redifer was a coward who had deserted his post in the face of the enemy instead of having just performed a brave act. Shadow yelled, gesticulated, and cursed Redifer for exposing himself unnecessarily to enemy fire when he was throwing the smoke grenades into the draw and when he went to contact the tank. Redifer took it quietly, but he was obviously dismayed. We looked on in disbelief having expected Shadow to praise the man for showing bravery and initiative under fire. But here was this ranting, raving officer, actually cursing and berating a man for doing something any other officer would have considered a meritorious act. It was so incredibly illogical that we couldn't believe it. Finally, having vented his rage on a Marine who rightfully deserved praise, Shadow strode off grumbling and cursing the individual and collective stupidity of enlisted men. Redifer didn't say anything. He just looked off into the distance. We growled mightily, though. As midday approached on 9 May, everyone was tense about the coming attack. Ammunition had been issued, men had squared away their gear, and had done their last-minute duties adjusting cartridge belts, pack straps, leggings, and leather rifle slings, all those forlorn little gestures of no value that released tension in the face of impending terror. We had previously registered our mortars on selected targets and had stacked HE and phosphorus shells off the mud on pieces of boxes for quick access. The ground, having dried sufficiently for our tanks to maneuver, Several stood by with engines idling, hatches open, and the tankers waiting, waiting like everyone else. War was mostly waiting. The men around me sat silently with drawn faces. Some replacements had come into the company to make up for our earlier losses. These new men looked more confused than afraid. The big guns had fired periodically during the morning but then had died away. There wasn't much noise as we waited for the pre-attack bombardment to begin. Then, the pre-assault bombardment commenced. The big shells swished overhead as each battery of our artillery 
and eight ship's guns began to shell the Japanese Awacha defenses ahead of us. At first, we could identify each type of shell, 75mm, 105mm, and 155mm artillery, along with the five-inch ship's guns, as it added to the storm of steel. We saw our planes overhead, Corsairs and dive bombers. Airstrikes began as the planes dove, firing rockets, dropping bombs, and strafing to our front. The firing thundered and rumbled until finally, even the experienced ears of the veterans could distinguish nothing, only that we were glad that all that stuff was ours. Enemy artillery and mortar shells began coming in as the Japanese tried to disrupt the attack. The replacements looked utterly bewildered amid the bedlam. I remembered my first day in combat and sympathized with them. The sheer massiveness of the pre-attack bombardment was an awesome and frightening thing to witness as a veteran, let alone as a new replacement. Soon the order came. Mortar section, stand by. We took directions from Bergen, who was up on the observation post to spot targets and direct our fire. Although our 60mm shells were small compared to the huge shells rushing overhead, we could fire close in to the company front where bigger mortars and the artillery couldn't shoot without endangering our own people. This closeness made it doubly critical that we fire skillfully and avoid short rounds. We had fired only a few rounds when Snafu began cursing the mud. With each round the recoil pushed the mortar's base plate against the soft soil in the gun pit, and he had trouble reciting the leveling bubbles to retain proper alignment of the gun on the aiming stake. After we completed the first fire mission, we quickly moved the gun a little to one side of the pit onto a harder surface and recited it. At Peleliu, we often had to hold the base plate as well as the bipod feet onto the coral rock to prevent the recoil from making the base plate bounce aside, knocking the mortar's alignment out too far. On Okinawa's wet clay soil, just the opposite happened. The recoil drove the base plate into the ground with each round we fired. This problem got worse as the rains increased during May, and the ground became softer and softer. The order came to secure the guns and to stand by. The airstrike ended, and the artillery and ship's guns slacked off. The tanks and our riflemen moved out as tank infantry teams, and we waited tensely. Things went well for a couple of hundred yards during this attack made by 3-5 and 3-7 before heavy fire from Japanese on the left flank stopped the attack. Our OP, observation post, ordered us to fire smoke because heavy enemy fire was coming from our left. We fired phosphorus rapidly to screen the men from the enemy observers. Our position got a heavy dose of Japanese 90mm mortar counter-battery fire. We had a difficult time keeping up our firing with those big 90mm shells crashing around us. Shell fragments whined through the air, and the big shells slung mud around. But we had to keep up our fire. The riflemen were catching hail from the flank and had to be supported. Our artillery began firing again at the enemy positions to our left to aid the harassed riflemen. We always knew when we were inflicting losses on the Japanese with our 60mm mortars by the amount of counter-battery mortar and artillery fire they threw back at us. If we weren't doing them any damage, 
They usually ignored us unless they thought they could inflict a lot of casualties. If the Japanese counter-battery fire was a real indicator of our effectiveness in causing them casualties, we were satisfyingly effective during the Okinawa campaign. During the attack of 9 May against Awacha, Company K suffered heavy losses. It was the same tragic sight of bloody, dazed, and wounded men being numbed with shock, being carried or walking to the aid station in the rear. There also were the dead, and the usual anxious inquiries about friends. We were all glad when the word came that 3-5 would move into reserve for the 7th Marines, for a couple of days it turned out. The 7th Marines were fighting to our right against Dakeshi Ridge. The battle against the Watcher raged on to our left. We dug in for the night in the wet ground. Our mortars weren't set up. We were to act as riflemen and to keep watch across an open, sloping valley. Above us, the other two mortar squads dug in in two parallel lines about 20 feet apart and perpendicular to the line of the crest of the embankment above us. Water and rations were issued and mail brought to us. Mail usually was a big morale booster, but not for me that time. There was a chilly, drizzling rain off and on. We were weary, and my spirits weren't the best. I sat in my helmet in the mud and read a letter from my parents. It brought news that Deacon, my beloved Spaniel, had been hit by an automobile and dragged himself home and had died in my father's arms. He had been my constant companion during the several years before I had left home for college. There, with the sound of heavy firing up ahead and the sufferings and deaths of thousands of men going on nearby, big tears rolled down my cheeks because Deacon was dead. During the remainder of the night, the sound of firing toward Dakeshi Ridge indicated that the 7th Marines were having a lot of trouble trying to push the Japanese off the ridge. Just before dawn, we could hear heavy firing off to our left front where 1-5 and 2-5 were fighting around the Awacha pocket. Stand by, you guys, and be prepared to move out, came the order from an NCO on the embankment above us. What's the hot dope? A mortarman asked. Don't know, except the Nips are counterattacking on the 5th Marine's front and the battalion, 3-5, is on standby to go up and help stop him. We greeted the news with an understandable lack of enthusiasm. We were still tired and tense from the punishment the battalion took at a watch of the day before. What's more, we didn't relish moving anywhere in the darkness. But we squared away our gear, chewed gum nervously, or gnawed on ration biscuits. The sound of firing rose and fell to our left front as we waited and wondered. Finally, during the misty gray light of early morning, the order came. Okay, you guys, let's go. We picked up our loads and moved toward the front lines. Other than occasional shells whining over in both directions, things were rather calm. Our column moved along a ridge just below the crest to the emplacements of the Marines who had been under attack. 
we found them assessing the damage they had done to the Japanese and caring for their own wounded. Some of the men told us the enemy had come into bayonet range before being repulsed. But we tore their ass up, by God, one man said to me, as he pointed out about 40 Japanese corpses sprawled beyond the marine foxholes. In the pale dawn, the air was misty and still smoky from phosphorus shells the enemy had fired to hide their approach. There was a big discussion in the ranks. Comments passed along to us from the marines in place had it that somebody had seen a woman advancing with the attacking Japanese and that she was probably among the dead out there. We couldn't see her from our positions. Then word came. About face, we're moving back. In short, our help wasn't needed, so we were to be deployed somewhere else. Back through the rain and the mud we went. All movements during most of May and early June were physically exhausting and utterly exasperating because of the mud. Typically, we moved in single file, five paces apart, slipping and sliding, up and down muddy slopes and through boggy fields. When the column slowed or stopped, we tended to bunch up, and the NCOs and officers ordered sternly, Keep your five-pace interval. Don't bunch up. The ever-present danger of shells, even far behind the lines, made it necessary that we stay strung out. However, sometimes it was so dark that in order not to get separated and lost, each man was ordered to hold on to the cartridge belt of the man in front of him. This made the going difficult over rough and muddy terrain. Often, if a man lost his footing and fell, several others went down with him, sprawling over each other in the mud. There were muffled curses and exasperated groans as they wearily disentangled themselves and regained their footing, groping about in the inky darkness to reform the column. As soon as we stopped, the order came. Move out. So the column always moved forward, but like an accordion or an inchworm, compressed, then strung out, stopping and starting. If a man put down his load for a brief respite, he was sure to hear, Pick up your gear, we're moving out. So the load had to be hoisted onto shoulders again. But if you didn't put it down, chances were you missed an opportunity to rest for a few seconds or even up to an hour, while the column halted up ahead for reasons usually unknown. To sit down on a rock or on a helmet when drunk with fatigue was like pressing a button to signal some NCO to shout, On your feet! Pick up your gear! We're moving out again! So the big decision in every man's mind at each pause in the column's forward progress was whether to drop his load and hope for a lengthy pause, or to stand there and support all the weight rather than putting it down and having to pick it up again right away. The column wound around and up and down the contours of terrain, which in May and early June was covered nearly always with slippery mud, varying in depth from a few inches to knee-deep. The rain was frequent and chilly. It varied from drizzles to wind-driven, slashing deluges that flooded our muddy footprints almost as soon as we made them. The helmet, of course, kept one's head dry, 
but a poncho was the only body protection we had. It was floppy and restricted movement greatly. We had no raincoats. So, rather than struggle over slippery terrain with our loads, encumbered further by a loose-fitting poncho, we just got soaking wet and shivered in misery. We tried to wisecrack and joke from time to time, but that always faded away as we grew more weary or closer to the front lines. That kind of movement over normal terrain or on roads would try any man's patience. But in Okinawa's mud, it drove us to a state of frustration and exasperation bordering on rage. It can be appreciated only by someone who has experienced it. Most men finally came to the state where they just stood stoically immobile with a resigned expression when halted and waited to move out. The cursing and outbursts of rage didn't seem to help, although no one was above it when goaded to the point of desperation and fatigue with halting and moving, slipping and sliding, and falling in the mud. Mud didn't just interfere with vehicles. It exhausted the man on foot who was expected to keep on where wheels or treaded vehicles couldn't move. At some point during our moves, our mortar section completely wiped out an enemy force that had held an elongated ridge for three days against repeated Marine infantry attacks supported by heavy artillery fire. Bergen was observing. He reasoned that there must have been a narrow gully running along the ridge that sheltered the Japanese from the artillery fire. He registered our three mortars so that one fired from right to left, another from left to right, and the third along the crest of the ridge. Thus, the Japanese in the gully couldn't escape. Lieutenant Mack ordered Bergen not to carry out the fire mission. He said we couldn't spare the ammo. Bergen, a three-campaign veteran and a skillful observer, called the company CP and asked if they could get us the ammo. The CP told him yes. Over the sound-powered phone, Bergen said, On my command, fire! Mac was with us at the gun pits and ordered us not to fire. He told Bergen the same over the phone. Bergen told him to go to hell and yelled, Mortar section, fire on my command. Commence firing. We fired as Mac ranted and raved. When we finished firing, the company moved against the ridge. Not a shot was fired at our men. Bergen checked the target area and saw more than 50 freshly killed Japanese soldiers in a narrow ravine, all dead from wounds obviously caused by our mortar fire. The artillery shells had exploded in front of or to the rear of the Japanese who were protected from them. Our 60-millimeter mortar shells fell right into the ravine, however, because of their steeper trajectory. We had scored a significant success with the teamwork of our mortar section, the event illustrated the value of experience in a veteran like Bergen compared with the poor judgment of a green lieutenant. The short period of rest in May helped us physically and mentally. Such periodic rests off the lines, lasting from a day to several days, enabled us to keep going. The rations were better. We could shave and clean up a bit using our helmets for a basin. Although we had to dig in because of long-range artillery or air raids, two men could make a simple shelter with their ponchos over their hole 
and be relatively, but not completely, dry on rainy nights. We could relax a little. I'm convinced we would have collapsed from the strain and exertion without such respites. But I found it more difficult to go back each time we squared away our gear to move forward into the zone of terror. My buddy's joking ceased as we trudged grim-faced back into the chasm where time had no meaning and one's chances of emerging unhurt dwindled with each encounter. With each step toward the distant rattle and rumble of that hellish region where fear and horror tortured us like a cat tormenting a mouse, I experienced greater and greater dread. And it wasn't just dread of death or pain, because most men felt somehow they wouldn't be killed. But each time we went up, I felt the sickening dread of fear itself and the revulsion at the ghastly scenes of pain and suffering among comrades that a survivor must witness. Some of my close friends told me they felt the same way. Significantly, those who felt it most acutely were the more battle-wise veterans from whom Okinawa was their third campaign. The bravest wearied of the suffering and waste, even though they showed little fear for their own personal safety. They simply had seen too much horror. The increasing dread of going back into action obsessed me. It became the subject of the most torturous and persistent of all the ghastly war nightmares that have haunted me for many, many years. The dream is always the same. Going back up to the lines during the bloody, muddy month of May on Okinawa. It remains blurred and vague, but occasionally still comes, even after the nightmares about the shock and violence of Peleliu have faded and been lifted from me like a curse. The 7th Marines secured Dekeshi Ridge on 13 May, after a bitter fight. Some of the Peleliu veterans in that regiment noted that the vicious battle resembled the fighting on Bloody Nose Ridge. We could see the ridge clearly. It certainly looked like Bloody Nose. The crest was rugged and jagged on the skyline, and had an ugly thin line of blackened, shattered trees and stumps. Our company moved into a smashed, ruined village, that an officer told me was Dakeshi. Some of us moved up to a stout stone wall where we were ordered to hold our fire while we watched a strange scene about 100 yards to our front. We had to stand there inactive and watch as about 40 or 50 Japanese soldiers retreated through the ruins and rubble. They had been flushed by men of the 7th Marines but we were in support of the 7th Marines, some elements of which were forward of us on the right and left, out of our field of vision. We couldn't risk firing for fear of hitting those Marines. We could only watch the enemy trotting along, holding their rifles. They wore no packs, only crossed shoulder straps, supporting their cartridge belts. As they moved through the rubble with helmets bobbing up and down, a man next to me fingered the safety catch on his M1 rifle and said in disgust, Look at them bastards out there in the open. And we can't even fire at them. Don't worry. The 7th Marines will catch them in a crossfire farther on, an NCO said. That's the word, said an officer confidently. Just then, 
A swishing, rushing sound of shells passing low overhead made us all duck reflexively, even though we recognized the sound as our own artillery. Large, black, sausage-shaped clouds of thick smoke erupted in the air over the Japanese as each of those deadly 155-millimeter bursts exploded with a flash and a karump. The artillery men were zeroed in on target. The Japanese broke into a dead run, looking very bow-legged to me, as they always did when running. Even as they ran away under that deadly hail of steel, showing us their backs, I felt there was an air of confident arrogance about them. They didn't move like men in panic. We knew they simply had been ordered to fall back to other strongly prepared defensive positions to prolong the campaign. Otherwise, they would have stayed put or attacked us, and in either case, fought to the death. More of our 155 swished over, erupting over the Japanese. We stood in silence and watched as the artillery fire took its toll on them. It was a grim sight, still vivid in my mind. The survivors moved out of sight through drifting smoke as we heard the rattle of marine machine guns on our right and left front. We received orders to move out along a little road bordered by stone walls. We passed through the ruins of what had been a quaint village. What had been picturesque little homes with straw-thatched or tiled roofs were piles of smoldering rubble. After bitter fighting, the Iwacha defenses and then those around Takeshi fell to our division. Yet between us and Shuri, there remained another system of heavy Japanese defenses. Wana. The costly battle against them would become known as the battle for Wana draw. Chapter 12 Of Mud and Maggots The boundary between the 3rd Amphibious Corps, Marines, and the 24th Corps, Army, ran through the middle of the main Japanese defensive position on the heights of Shuri. As the Marines moved southward, the 1st Marine Division remained on the left in the 3rd Amphibious Corps' zone of action, with the 6th Marine Division on the right. Within the 1st Marine Division's zone of action, the 7th Marines occupied the left flank and the 5th Marines the right. The 1st Marines was in reserve. Beyond Awacha Dakeshi, the Marines next faced Wana Ridge. On the other side of Wana Ridge lay Wana Draw, through which meandered the Asato Gawa. Forming the southern high ground above Wana Draw was yet another ridge, this one extending eastward from the city of Naha and rising to the Shuri Heights. This second ridge formed a part of the main Japanese defensive positions, the Shuri Line. Wana Draw aimed like an arrow from the northwest, directly into the heart of the Japanese defenses at Shuri. Within this natural avenue of approach, the Japanese took advantage of every difficult feature of terrain. It couldn't have provided a better opportunity for their defense if they had designed it. The longest and bloodiest ordeal of the battle for Okinawa now faced the men of the 1st Marine Division. For the attack against Wana on the 15th of May, 1945, the 5th Marines sent 2-5 forward, with 3-5 in close support. The 1st Battalion came behind in reserve. Before 2-5's attack began, we moved into a position behind that battalion. <laughs> 
We watched tanks firing 75s and M7s firing 105s thoroughly shell the draw. The tanks received such heavy Japanese fire in return that the riflemen of 2-5 assigned to attack with the tanks had to seek any protection they could in ditches and holes while they covered the tanks from a distance. No man on his feet could have survived the hail of shells the enemy fired at the tanks. And the tanks couldn't move safely beyond the cover the riflemen provided because of Japanese suicide tank destroyer teams. Finally, we saw the tanks pull back after suffering some hits. Our artillery and naval gunfire threw a terrific barrage at the Japanese positions around the draw. Shortly after that, the tanks withdrew. Then, an airstrike was made against the draw. The bombardment of the draw seemed very heavy to us, but it wasn't anything compared to what was to become necessary before the draw was taken. We moved from one position to another behind 2-5 until I was so confused I had no idea where we were. Late in the afternoon, we halted temporarily along a muddy trail running along the treeless slope of a muddy ridge. Marines of 2-5 moved past us, going the other direction. Japanese shells whistled across the ridge and burst to the rear. Our artillery roared and swished overhead, the explosions booming and thundering out in the draw across the ridge. Nearby, our regimental Protestant chaplain had set up a little altar made out of a box from which he was administering Holy Communion to a small group of dirty Marines. I glanced at the face of a Marine opposite me as the file halted. He was filthy like all of us, but even through a thickly mud-caked, dark beard, I could see he had fine features. His eyes were bloodshot and weary. He slowly lowered his light machine gun from his shoulder, set the handle on his toe to keep it off the mud, and steadied the barrel with his hand. He watched the chaplain with an expression of skepticism that seemed to ask, What's the use of all that? Is it going to keep them guys from getting hit? That face was so weary, but so expressive that I knew he, like all of us, couldn't help but have doubts about his God in the presence of constant shock and suffering. Why did it go on and on? The machine gunner's buddy held the gun's tripod on his shoulder, glanced briefly at the muddy little communion service, and then stared blankly off toward a clump of pines to our rear, as though he hoped to see home back there somewhere. Move out, came along their file. The machine gunner hoisted the heavy weapon onto his shoulder as they went slipping and sliding around a bend in the trail into the gathering dusk. We were told to spread out, take cover, and await further orders. Some of us found holes. Others scooped out what they could. Soon, several Japanese shells exploded not far from me. I heard a shout for a corpsman and then, Hey, you guys! Doc Caswell got hit! I forgot about the shells and felt sick. I ran in the direction of the shout to look for Kent Caswell, praying with every step that he wasn't hurt badly. Several other Marines were already with Doc, and a fellow corpsman was bandaging his neck. Doc Caswell lay back in the foxhole and looked up at me as I bent over him and asked him how he was doing. 
no doubt a stupid question. My throat was constricted with grief. He opened his lips to speak, and blood trickled out from between them. I was heartbroken, because I didn't see how he could possibly survive. I feared that vital blood vessels in his neck had been severed by the shell fragments. Don't talk, Doc. They'll get you out of here, and you'll be okay. I managed to stammer. Okay, you guys. Let's bring him out of here, the corpsman said as he finished his aid. As I said so long to Doc and got up to leave, I noticed a clover leaf of 60-millimeter mortar shells lying on the side of the foxhole. A shell fragment had sliced a gash through the thick black metal end plate. I shuddered as I wondered whether it had passed first through Doc's neck. Our massive artillery, mortar, naval gunfire, and aerial bombardment continued against Wana Draw on our front and Wana Ridge on our left. The Japanese continued to shell everything and everybody in the area, meeting each tank infantry attack with a storm of fire. A total of 30 tanks, including four flamethrowers, blasted and burned Wana Draw. Our artillery, heavy mortars, ships' guns, and planes then plastered the enemy positions all over again until the noise and shock made me wonder what it was like to be in a quiet place. We had been under and around plenty of heavy stuff at Peleliu, but not on nearly so massive a scale or for such unending periods of time as at Wana. The thunderous American barrages went on and on for hours and then days. In return, the Japanese threw plenty of shells our way. I had a continuous headache I'll never forget. Those thunderous, prolonged barrages imposed on me a sense of stupefaction and dullness far beyond anything I ever had experienced before. It didn't seem possible for any human being to be under such thunderous chaos for days and nights on end and be unaffected by it. Even when most of it was our own supporting weapons, and we were in a good foxhole. How did the Japanese stand up under it? They simply remained deep in their caves until it stopped and then swarmed up to repulse each attack, just as they had done at Peleliu. So our heavy guns and airstrikes had to knock down, cave in, or otherwise destroy the enemy's well-constructed defensive positions. At some time during the fight for Wanna Draw, we crossed what I supposed was the draw itself, somewhere near its mouth. To get to that point, we fought for days. I had lost count of how many. Marines of 2-5 had just gone across under fire, while we waited in an open field to move across. We eased up to the edge of the draw to cross in dispersed order. An NCO ordered three men and me to cross at a particular point, and to stay close behind the two five troops directly across the draw from us. The other side looked mighty far away. Japanese machine guns were firing down the draw from our left, and our artillery was swishing overhead. Haul ass, and don't stop for anything till you get across, said our NCO. We could see other marines of our battalion starting across on our right. He told me to leave my mortar ammo bag and that someone else would bring it. I had the Thompson submachine gun slung over my shoulder. We left the field and slid down a ten-foot embankment 
to the sloping floor of the draw. My feet hit the deck running. The man ahead of me was a Company K veteran whom I knew well, but the other two were replacements. One I knew by name, but the other not at all. I ran as fast as I could and was glad I was carrying only my Tommy, pistol, and combat pack. The valley sloped downward toward a little stream and then upward to the ridge beyond. The Japanese machine guns rattled away. Bullets zipped and snapped around my head. The tracers, like long white streaks. I looked neither right nor left, but with my heart in my throat raced out, splashed across the little stream, and dashed up the slope to the shelter of a spur of a ridge projecting out into the draw to our left. We must have run about 300 yards or more to get across. Once behind the spur, I was out of the line of machine gun fire, so I slowed to a trot. The veteran ahead of me and a little to my right slowed up too. We glanced back to see where the two new men were. Neither one of them had made more than a few strides out into the draw from the other side. One was sprawled in a heap, obviously killed instantly. The other was wounded and crawling back. Some Marines ran out, crouching low, to drag him to safety. Jesus, that was close, Sledgehammer, said the man with me. Yeah, I gasped. That was all I could say. We went up the slope and contacted a couple of riflemen from 2-5. We got a kid right over there just got hit. Can you guys get him out? One of them said. There's some corpsmen set up in a ravine along the ridge there. He pointed out the location of the casualty and then the dressing station. We hailed two Company K men coming along the ridge, and they said they would help. One ran back along the ridge to get a stretcher. The other three moved up the ridge and into some brush where we found the wounded Marine. He lay on his back, still clutching his rifle. As we came up, he said, Boy, am I glad to see you guys. You hit bad? I asked as I knelt beside him. Look out, you guys. Nip's right over there in the bushes. I unslung my Tommy and, watching where he had indicated the Japanese were, I talked to him. My two buddies knelt beside us with their weapons ready, watching for enemy soldiers through the bush while we waited for the stretcher. Where are you hit? I asked the wounded Marine. Right here, he said, pointing to the lower right portion of his abdomen. He was talkative and seemed in no pain, obviously still shocked and dazed from his wound. I knew he would hurt badly soon, because he was hit in a painful area. I saw a smear of blood around a tear in his dungaree trousers, so I unhooked his cartridge belt and then his belt and his trousers to see how serious the wound was. It wasn't the round, neat hole of a bullet, but the gash characteristic of a shell fragment, about two inches long, it oozed a small amount of blood. What hit you? I asked. Our company 60 mortars, answered the wounded Marine. I felt a sharp twinge of conscience and thought some 60mm mortarmen in the poor guy's own company fouled up and dropped some short rounds. Almost as though he had read my thoughts, he continued. It was my own damn fault I got hit, though. We were ordered to halt back there away and wait while the mortars shelled this area. But I saw a damn nip, and I figured if I got a little closer, I could get a clear shot of the son of a bitch.
When I got here, the mortars came in, and I got hit. Guess I'm lucky it wasn't worse. I guess the nip slipped away. You better take it easy now, I said as the stretcher came up. We got the young Marine on the stretcher, put his rifle and helmet alongside him, and moved back down the ridge a little way to a corpsman. Several corpsmen were at work in a deep ravine cut into the ridge by erosion. It had sheer walls and a level floor and was perfectly protected. About a dozen wounded, stretcher cases, and walking wounded were there already. As we set our casualty onto the floor of the ravine, he said, Thanks a lot, you guys. Good luck. We wished him luck and a quick trip to the States. Before we left, I paused and watched the corpsman a moment. It was admirable how efficiently they handled the wounded. With more coming in continuously as stretcher teams left for evacuation centers with those already given field first aid. We split up, moved apart a little, and sought shelter along the slope to await orders. I found a commodious two-man standing foxhole, commanding a perfect wide view of the draw for a long distance right and left. It obviously had been used as a defensive position against any movement in the draw, and probably had sheltered a couple of Japanese riflemen, or perhaps a light machine gunner. The hole was well dug in dry clay soil. The ridge sloped up steeply behind it. But the hole and its surroundings were devoid of any enemy equipment or trash of any kind. There wasn't so much as an empty cartridge case or ammo carton to be seen. But there were enemy tracks in the soft soil thrown out of the hole. Tracks of Tabby sneakers and hobnail sole field shoes. The Japanese had become so security conscious they not only removed their dead when possible, but sometimes even picked up their expended brass, just as we did on a rifle range. Sometimes, all we found were bloodstains on the ground where one had been killed or wounded. They removed everything they could when possible to conceal their casualties. But when they removed even empty cartridge cases, and we found only tracks, we got an eerie feeling, as though we were fighting a phantom enemy. During their battle on the Motabu Peninsula in April, Marines of the 6th Division had seen evidence of increased security consciousness on the part of the Japanese. But we had seen nothing like it on Peleliu, and Guadalcanal veterans had told me nearly every Japanese they field-stripped had a diary on him. The same was said about Gloucester. After sitting out another thunderous barrage of friendly artillery fire, the three of us shouldered our weapons and moved along the ridge to rejoin Company K. Once together, our company formed into extended file and headed westward toward the regimental right flank. I lost track of the date as we moved about for several days. The shell-blasted terrain was treeless and increasingly low and flat. We dug in, were shelled off and on, and were thoroughly bewildered as to where we were. Other than we were said to be still somewhere in Wanna Draw. Shuri loomed to our left front. About that time, Bergen was wounded. He was hit in the back of the neck by a shell fragment. Fortunately, he wasn't killed. Bergen was a Texan, 
and as fine a sergeant as I ever saw. He was a Gloucester veteran whose luck had run out. We would miss him from the mortar section and were delighted when he returned later after 18 days of convalescence. The weather turned cloudy on 21 May, and the rains began. By midnight, the drizzle became a deluge. It was the beginning of a 10-day period of torrential rains. The weather was chilly, and mud, mud, mud was everywhere. We slipped and slid along the trails with every step we took. While the 1st Marine Division was fighting the costly, heartbreaking battle against the Wana positions, the 6th Marine Division, on the right and slightly forward, had been fighting a terrible battle for Sugarloaf Hill. Sugarloaf and the surrounding pieces of prominent terrain, the Horseshoe and Half Moon, were located on the main ridge running from Naha to Shuri. Like Wana, they were key Japanese defensive positions in the complex that guarded the Shuri Heights. During the morning of the 23rd of May, the boundary between the 1st Marine Division and the 6th Marine Division shifted to the right, west, so the latter could rearrange its lines. The 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, went into line on the right to take over the extended front. I remember the move vividly because we entered the worst area I ever saw on a battlefield. And we stayed there more than a week. I shudder at the memory of it. We shouldered our weapons and gear, and the column telescoped its way circuitously through muddy draws, slipping and sliding along the slopes of barren hills to avoid observation and consequent shelling by the enemy. It rained off and on. The mud got worse the farther we went. As we approached our destination, the Japanese dead scattered about in most areas since 1 May, became more numerous. When we had dug in near enemy dead and conditions permitted, we always shoveled soil over them in a vain effort to cut down the stench and to control the swarming flies. But the desperate fighting for ten days against and around Sugarloaf Hill and the continued, prolonged Japanese artillery and mortar fire had made it impossible for the Marine units there to bury the enemy dead. We soon saw that it also had been impossible to remove many Marine dead. They lay where they had fallen, an uncommon sight even to the veterans in our ranks. It was a strong Marine tradition to move our dead, sometimes even at considerable risk, to an area where they could be covered with a poncho and later collected by the Graves registration people. But efforts to remove many Marines killed in the area we entered had been in vain, even after Sugarloaf Hill had been captured following days of terrible fighting. The rains had begun 21 May, almost as soon as Sugarloaf Hill had been secured by men of the 6th Marine Division. Because of the deep mud, the able-bodied could scarcely rescue and evacuate their wounded and bring up vital ammo and rations. Regrettably, the dead had to wait. It couldn't have been otherwise. We slogged along through a muddy draw around the base of a knoll. On our left, we saw six marine corpses. They were lying face down against a gentle, muddy slope where they apparently 
had hugged the deck to escape Japanese shells. They were bunched up. In a row, side by side, scarcely a foot apart. They were so close together that they probably had all been killed by the same shell. Their browning faces lay against the mud in an even row. One could imagine the words of fear or reassurance that had been passed among them as they lay under the terror of the shelling. Each clutched a rusting rifle, and every sign indicated that those tragic figures were new replacements, fresh to the shock of combat. The first man's left hand was extended forward, palm down. His fingers clutched the mud in a death grip. A beautiful, shiny gold watch was held in place around the decaying wrist by an elaborate gold metal stretch band. Most of the men I knew, and myself, wore plain, simple, luminous dial, waterproof, shockproof wristwatches with a plain green cloth wristband. How strange, I thought, for a Marine to wear a flashy, conspicuous watch while on the front lines. Stranger still that some Japanese hadn't slipped out during a dark night and taken it. As we filed past the dead Marines, each of my buddies turned his head and gazed at the horrible spectacle with an expression that revealed how much the scene inwardly sickened us all. I had heard and read that combat troops in many wars became hardened and insensitive to the sight of their own dead. I didn't find that to be the case at all with my comrades. The sight of dead Japanese didn't bother us in the least, but the sight of Marine dead brought forth regret, never indifference. Half Moon Hill While the artillery swished and whined overhead in both directions, we moved to our new positions in the westernmost extension of Wana Draw. By twos and threes, the company K-men forming the front line eased onto a barren, muddy, shell-torn ridge named Half Moon Hill and into the foxholes of the company we were relieving. Our mortar section went into place behind a low rise of ground below the ridge and about a hundred yards back of the front lines. The terrain between us and Half Moon was nearly flat. The little elevation behind which we emplaced our guns was so low that when we stood up beside the gun pit, we could see clearly up to the company's forward lines on the ridge. Readily visible beyond that, to the left front, were the still higher, smoke-shrouded Shuri Heights, the heart of the Japanese defensive system. That ominous and formidable terrain feature was constantly under bombardment of varying intensity from our artillery, heavy mortars, and gunfire support ships. No matter, though. It didn't seem to deter the enemy observers from directing their artillery and heavy mortars and shelling our whole area frequently, every day and every night. We faced south on Half Moon. A narrow-gauge railroad track lay a short distance to our right and ran south through a flat area between Half Moon and a ridge to our right known as the Horseshoe. Beyond that, it swung westward toward Naha. An officer told us that the ridge to our right, west, 
and slightly to our rear, across the railroad, was Sugarloaf Hill. Company K was on the right flank of 3-5 and moved up onto the western part of the base of Half Moon. The Japanese still occupied caves in both of the southward-pointing tips of the crescent. The right flank foxhole of our company was dug on the crest at the western edge of the end of the base of Half Moon. Below it to the right, the ridge dropped away to low, flat ground. Our company CP was situated in the sunken railroad bed to the right of our mortar section's position. A nice tarpaulin was stretched over the CP from one side of the railroad embankment to the other. This kept the post snug and dry, while torrents of chilly rain kept shivering riflemen, machine gunners, and mortarmen soaked, cold, and miserable day and night in open foxholes. The rain greeted us as we moved into our assigned area. The almost continuous downpour that started on the 21st of May turned Wana Draw into a sea of mud and water that resembled a lake. Tanks bogged down, and even Amtraks could not negotiate the morass. Living conditions on the front lines were pitiful. Supply and evacuation problems were severe. Food, water, and ammunition were scarce. Foxholes had to be bailed out constantly. The men's clothing, shoes, feet, and bodies remained constantly wet. Sleep was nearly impossible. The mental and physical strain took a mounting toll on the Marines. Making an almost impossible situation worse were the deteriorating bodies of Marines and Japanese that lay just outside the foxholes where they had fallen during the five days of ferocious fighting that preceded Company K's arrival on Half Moon. Each day's fighting saw the number of corpses increase. Flies multiplied and amoebic dysentery broke out. The men of Company K, together with the rest of the 1st Marine Division, would live and fight in that hell for ten days. We dispersed our guns and dug gun pits as best we could in the mud. Snafu and I took compass readings and set aiming stakes based on the readings from our observer. As soon as we fired a couple of rounds of HE to register in my gun, it was obvious we had a bad problem with the base plate of our mortar being driven farther into the soft soil with the recoil of each shell. We reasoned the rain would soon stop, however, or if it didn't, a couple of pieces of ammo box under the base plate would hold it firm. What a mistake. After digging in the gun, registering in on the aiming stakes, and preparing ammo for future use, I had my first opportunity to look around our position. It was the most ghastly corner of hell I had ever witnessed. As far as I could see, an area that previously had been a low, grassy valley with a picturesque stream meandering through it was a muddy, repulsive, open sore on the land. The place was choked with the putrefaction of death, decay, and destruction. In a shallow defilade to our right, between my gun pit and the railroad, lay about twenty dead Marines, each on a stretcher and covered to his ankles with a poncho, a commonplace, albeit tragic, scene to every veteran. Those bodies had been placed there to await transport to the rear for burial. At least those dead were covered from the torrents of rain that had made them miserable in life 
and from the swarms of flies that sought to hasten their decay. But as I looked about, I saw that other marine dead couldn't be tended properly. The whole area was pocked with shell craters and churned up by explosions. Every crater was half full of water, and many of them held a marine corpse. The bodies lay pathetically, just as they had been killed, half submerged in muck and water, rusting weapons still in hand. Swarms of big flies hovered about them. Why ain't them poor guys been covered with ponchos? mumbled my foxhole buddy as he glanced grimly about with a distraught expression on his grizzled face. His answer came the moment he spoke. Japanese 75mm shells came whining and whistling into the area. We cowered in our hole as they crashed and thundered around us. The enemy gunners on the commanding Shuri Heights were registering their artillery and mortars on our positions. We realized quickly that any time any of us moved out of our holes, the shelling began immediately. We had a terrible time getting our wounded evacuated through the shell fire and mud without the casualty and stretcher bearers getting hit. Thus, it was perfectly clear why the marine dead were left where they had fallen. Everywhere lay Japanese corpses killed in the heavy fighting. Infantry equipment of every type, U.S. and Japanese, was scattered about. Helmets, rifles, BARs, packs, cartridge belts, canteens, shoes, ammo boxes, shell cases, machine gun ammo belts, all were strewn around us, up to and all over Half Moon. The mud was knee-deep in some places, probably deeper in others if one dared venture there. For several feet around every corpse, maggots crawled about in the muck and then were washed away by the runoff of the rain. There wasn't a tree or bush left. All was open country. Shells had torn up the turf so completely that ground cover was non-existent. The rain poured down on us as evening approached. The scene was nothing but mud, shellfire, flooded craters with their silent, pathetic, rotting occupants, knocked out tanks and Amtraks, and discarded equipment. Utter desolation. The stench of death was overpowering. The only way I could bear the monstrous horror of it all was to look upward, away from the earthly reality surrounding us, watch the leaden gray clouds go scudding over, and repeat over and over to myself that the situation was unreal. Just a nightmare. That I would soon awake and find myself somewhere else. But the ever-present smell of death saturated my nostrils. It was there with every breath I took. I existed from moment to moment, sometimes thinking death would have been preferable. We were in the depths of the abyss, the ultimate horror of war. During the fighting around the Umerbragel pocket on Peleliu, I had been depressed by the wastage of human lives. But in the mud and driving rain before Shuri, we were surrounded by maggots and decay. Men struggled and fought and bled in an environment so degrading, I believed, 
we had been flung into hell's own cesspool. Not long after 3-5 took over Half Moon, several of us were on a work party, struggling through knee-deep mud to bring ammo from the rear up to the mortar positions. We passed near the company CP in the railroad bed. Hey, you guys, look at there. Stumpy's in bad shape, said a Marine in an excited low voice. We all stopped and looked toward the CP. There was our CO, Stumpy Stanley, just outside the edge of the tarpaulin, trying to stand by himself. But he had to be supported by a man on each side. He looked haggard and weary and was shaking violently with malarial chills. He could barely hold up his head. The men supporting him seemed to be arguing with him. He was objecting as best he could, but it was a feeble effort because he was so sick. Paul Stumpy got that goddamn bug so bad, he can't hardly stand up. But look at there. He's all man by God. He don't want to be evacuated, said Snafu gravely. He's a damn good Joe, someone else said. We thought highly of Stumpy and respected him greatly. He was a good skipper, and we had confidence in him. But malaria made him too ill to stay on his feet. The chilly rain, the emotional stress, and the physical exertion and strain of those days were enough to make a well-man collapse. Obviously, those who had malarial infections couldn't possibly keep going. So, for the second time in May, we lost our commanding officer. Stumpy was the last of our Peleliu officers, and his evacuation ended an era for me. He was the last tie to Captain Andy Haldane. For me, Company K was never the same after that day. As we feared, Shadow became the CO. It's best that I don't record what we said about that. At daybreak, the morning after we took over the line on Half Moon, George Soret and I went up onto the ridge to our observation post. Half Moon was shaped like a crescent, with the arms pointing southward. Our battalion line stretched along the crest of the ridge as it formed the base of the crescent. The arms extended outward beyond our front lines, and Japanese occupied caves in the reverse slopes of those arms particularly the one on the left, east. They made our line a hot spot. To our front, the ridge sloped down sharply from the crest, then more gently, all the way to a big road embankment, approximately 300 yards out and running parallel to our lines. A large culvert opened toward us, through the embankment. The area to our front was well-drained and as bare as the back of one's hand. It wasn't heavily cratered. Two shallow ditches, about 50 yards apart, ran across the area between the southern tips of the half moon. These ditches were closer to the road embankment than to our lines. The sloping area leading to the culvert resembled an amphitheater bordered by the base of the crescent where we were to the north. The arms of the crescent extended southward, and the high road embankment running east and west at the southern end. Our visibility within the amphitheater was perfect. 
except for the reverse slopes of the arms of the crescent. Marines of 2-4 had warned us as they departed that the Japanese came out of the caves in the reverse slopes of the crescent's arms at night and generally raised hell. To combat that, our ships kept star shells aloft and our 60mm mortars kept flares burning in the wet sky above the ridge all night, every night we were there. As the dawn light grew brighter, we could see the lay of the land through the drizzle and thin fog. So we registered the mortar section's three guns with an aiming stake on one of each of the three important terrain features. We had one gun register in on the reverse slope of the left-hand extension of the half-moon. A second mortar we registered on the reverse slope of the road embankment. We registered the third gun to cover the area around the mouth of the culvert. No sooner had we registered the guns than we got a reaction. Big, 90-millimeter Japanese mortar shells began crashing along the crest of the ridge. They came so thick and so fast, we knew an entire enemy mortar section was firing on us, not an isolated gun. They were zeroed in on the ridge and traversed along the crest from my left to the far right end of the company's line. It was an awful pounding. Each big shell fluttered and swished down and went off with a flash and an ear-splitting crash. Shrapnel growled through the air, and several men were wounded badly. Each shell threw stinking mud around when it exploded. The wounded were moved down behind the ridge with great difficulty because of the slippery, muddy slopes. A corpsman gave them aid, and they were carried to the rear, shocked, torn, and bleeding. An uneasy quiet then settled along the line. Suddenly, someone yelled, There goes one. A single Japanese soldier dashed out of the blackness of the culvert. He carried his bayonet rifle and wore a full pack. He ran into the open, turned, and headed for shelter behind the tip of the southern end of the crescent arm on our left front. It looked as though he had about a 30-yard dash to make. Several of our riflemen and BAR men opened up, and the soldier was bowled over by their bullets before he reached the shelter of the ridge. Our men cheered and yelled when he went down. As the day wore on, more Japanese ran out of the culvert in ones and twos and dashed for the shelter of the same ridge extension. It was obvious they wanted to concentrate on the reverse slope there, from where they could launch counterattacks, raids, and infiltration attempts on our front line. Obviously, it was to our best interest to stop them as quickly as possible. An enemy soldier who made it in behind that slope might become one's unwelcome foxhole companion some night. When the Japanese ran out of the culvert, our men fired on them and nearly always knocked them down. The riflemen, BAR men, and machine gunners looked on it as fine target practice because we received no return small arms fire and the Japanese mortars were quiet. I was kept busy with the field glasses, observing, adjusting range, and calling fire orders onto the slope and the road embankment. I had the Tommy with me, but it wasn't as steady and accurate at the two to three hundred yard range as an M1 Garand rifle. We had an M1 and an ammo belt in our OP, though, and I wanted to throw down that phone and the field glasses and grab up that M1 every time an enemy popped into view. 
As long as our mortar section was firing a mission, I had no choice but to continue observing. The Japanese kept up their efforts to move behind the slope. Some made it, because our men missed them. Our 60mm mortar shells crashed away steadily on the target areas. We could see Japanese emerge from the culvert and be killed by our shells. The longer this action continued without our receiving any return fire, the more relaxed my buddies became. The situation began to take on certain aspects of a rifle range, or more likely, an old-fashioned turkey shoot. My buddies started making bets about who had hit which Japanese. Lively arguments developed, but with rifles, BARs, and several machine guns firing simultaneously, no one could tell for sure who hit which enemy soldier. The men yelled and joked more and more in one of their few releases from weeks of tension under the pounding of heavy weapons. So they began to get careless and to miss some of the Japanese scurrying for the slope. Shadow saw this. He ran up and down our firing line, cursing and yelling at everybody. Then the men settled down and took more careful aim. Finally, the enemy stopped coming, and I received orders to call cease firing to our mortars. We sat and waited. During the lull, I moved over into the machine gun emplacement next to our mortar OP to visit with the gunner. It contained a Browning 30 caliber water-cooled heavy machine gun manned by a gunner who had joined Company K as a replacement after Peleliu. On Pavuvu, he and I had become good friends. We called him Kathy, after a chorus girl he knew in California. He was married and very much in love with his wife, so he bore a heavy burden of guilt because he had had an affair with Kathy on his way overseas and couldn't get her out of his mind. As we sat alone in the machine gun pit, he asked me whether I wanted to see a picture of Kathy. I said yes. He carefully and secretively picked up his rain-soaked combat pack and took out a waterproof plastic map holder. Folding back the canvas cover, he said, Here she is. My eyes nearly popped out of my head. The 8 by 10 inch photo was a full-length portrait of one of the most beautiful girls I ever saw. She was dressed, or undressed, in a scanty costume, which exposed a good portion of her impressive physical endowments. I gasped audibly, and Kathy said, Isn't she a beauty? She really is, I told him, and added, You've got a problem on your hands with a girl like that chorus girl and a wife you love? I kidded him about the possible danger of getting the letters to his wife and his girl crossed up and in the wrong envelopes. He just laughed and shook his head as he looked at the photo of the beautiful girl. The scene was so unreal, I could barely believe it. Two tired, frightened young men sitting in a hole beside a machine gun in the rain on a ridge, surrounded with mud. Nothing but stinking mud, with so much decaying human flesh buried or half-buried in it, that there were big patches of wriggling fat maggots marking the spots where Japanese corpses lay. Looking at the picture of a beautiful, semi-nude girl. She was a pearl in a mud hole.
Viewing that picture made me realize with a shock that I had gradually come to doubt that there really was a place in the world where there were no explosions and people weren't bleeding, suffering, dying, or rotting in the mud. I felt a sense of desperation that my mind was being affected by what we were experiencing. Men cracked up frequently in such places as that. I had seen it happen many times by then. In World War I, they had called it shell shock, or, more technically, neurasthenia. In World War II, the term used was combat fatigue. Strange that such a picture provoked such thoughts, but I vividly recall grimly making a pledge to myself. The Japanese might kill or wound me, but they wouldn't make me crack up. A peaceful civilian back home who sat around worrying about losing his mind probably didn't have much to occupy him. But in our situation, there was plenty of reason for the strongest-willed individuals to crack up. My secret resolve helped me through the long days and nights we remained in the worst of the abyss. But there were times at night during that period when I felt I was slipping. More than once, my imagination ran wild during the brief periods of darkness when the flares and star shells burned out. There comes another one, somebody yelled. Kathy quickly stowed his picture in his pack, spun around, gripped the machine gun handle in his left hand, poised his trigger finger, and grabbed the aiming knob with his right hand. His assistant gunner appeared from out of nowhere and jumped to his post to feed the ammo belt into the gun. I started back to the OP hole, but saw that George had phone in hand, and the mortars were still secured. So I grabbed up an M1 rifle Kathy had in the machine gun emplacement. I saw enemy soldiers rushing out of the culvert. Our line started firing as I counted the 10th Japanese to emerge. Those incredibly brave soldiers formed a skirmish line abreast with a few yards between each other and started trotting silently toward us across open ground about 300 yards away. Their effort was admirable, but so hopeless. They had no supporting fire of any kind to pin us down or even to make us cautious. They looked as though they were on maneuvers. They had no chance of getting close to us. I stood up beside the machine gun, took aim, and started squeezing off shots. The Japanese held their rifles at port arms and didn't even fire at us. Everybody along our line was yelling and firing. The enemy soldiers wore full battle gear with packs, which meant they had rations and extra ammo. So this might be the beginning of a counterattack of some size. Within seconds, eight of the ten enemy soldiers pitched forward, spun around, or slumped to the deck, dead where they fell. The remaining two must have realized the futility of it all, because they turned around and started back toward the culvert. Most of us slackened our fire and just watched. Several men kept firing at the two retreating enemy soldiers, but missed, and it looked as though they might get away. Finally, one Japanese fell forward near one of the shallow ditches. The surviving soldier kept going. Just as Kathy got his machine gun sight zeroed in on him, the order cease firing came along the line. 
but the machine gun was making so much noise, we didn't hear the order. Kathy had his ammo belts loaded so that about every fifth cartridge was a tracer. He squeezed off a long burst of about eight shots. The bullets struck the fleeing Japanese soldier in the middle of his pack and tore into him between his shoulders. I was standing directly behind Kathy, looking along his machine gun barrel. The tracers must have struck the man's vertebrae or other bones and been deflected, because I clearly saw one tracer flash up into the air out of the soldier's right shoulder and another tracer come out of the top of his left shoulder. The Japanese dropped his rifle as the slugs knocked him face down into the mud. He didn't move. I got him! I got the bastard! Kathy yelled, jumping around, slapping me on the back, and shaking hands with his assistant gunner. He had reason to be proud. He had made a good shot. The enemy soldier who fell near the ditch began crawling and flopped into it. Some of the men started firing at him again. The bullets kicked up mud all around the soldier as he slithered desperately along in the shallow ditch which didn't quite hide him. Machine gun tracers ricocheted off the ground like vicious red arrows as the Japanese struggled along the shallow ditch. Then, on one of the rare occasions I ever saw compassion expressed for the Japanese by a Marine who had to fight them, one of our men yelled, Knock it off, you guys. The poor bastard's already hit and ain't got a snowball's chance in hell. Someone else yelled angrily, You stupid jerk! He's a goddamn nip, ain't he? You gone Asiatic or something? The firing continued, and bullets hit the mark. The wounded Japanese subsided into the muddy little ditch. He and his comrades had done their best. They died gloriously on the field of honor for the emperor, is what their families would be told. In reality, their lives were wasted on a muddy, stinking slope for no good reason. Our men were in high spirits over the affair, especially after being pounded for so long. But Shadow was yelling, Cease firing, you dumb bastards! He came slipping and sliding along the line, cursing and stopping at intervals to pour out storms of invective on some smiling, muddy marine. He carried his helmet in his left hand and periodically took off his cap and flung it down into the mud until it was caked. Each man looked glum and Satter stood motionless until Shadow had finished insulting him and moved on. As Shadow passed the machine gun pit, he stopped and screamed at Kathy, who was still jumping around in jubilation over his kill. Knock it off, you goddamn fool! Then he glared at me and said, You're supposed to be observing for the mortars! Put that goddamn rifle down, you bastard! I wasn't impetuous, but had I thought I could get away with it, I would certainly have clubbed him over the head with that M1 rifle. I didn't, but Shadow's asinine conduct and comment did make me rash enough to say, The guns are secured, sir. We were all sent out here to kill Nips, weren't we? So what difference does it make what weapon we use when we get the chance? His menacing expression turned into surprise and then doubt. With a quizzical look on his face, he cocked his head to one side as he pondered my remark, while I stood silently with the realization that I should have kept my mouth shut.
The fine sergeant accompanying Shadow half glared and half smiled at me. Suddenly, without another glance, Shadow strode off along the ridge crest, cursing and yelling at the Marines in each foxhole as he passed them. I resolved to keep my mouth shut in the future. As daylight waned, I looked out to our front through the drizzling rain falling through the still foul air. A wisp of smoke rose straight up from the pack of the Japanese soldier Kathy had shot. The tracers had set something on fire. The thin finger of smoke rose high and then spread out abruptly to form a disc that appeared to rest on the column. So delicate and unreal, the smoke stood in the stagnant, fetid air like a marker over the corpse. Everything out there was motionless. Only death and desolation among the enemy bodies. George and I got orders to return to our mortar gun pits. Someone else would man the OP for the night. Getting back to the mortar emplacements from the company's front line was a major effort and an extremely dangerous one. From the moment we stepped to the rear of the crest of the ridge to descend the muddy slope, it was like trying to walk down a greased slide. A large and unknown number of Japanese all over the ridge had been killed during the early counterattacks. They had been covered with soil as soon as possible, and Japanese were still being killed out front. Infiltrators also were being killed all along the ridge at night. Our men could only spade mud over them. The situation was bad enough, but when enemy artillery shells exploded in the area, the eruptions of soil and mud uncovered previously buried Japanese dead and scattered chunks of corpses. Like the area around our gun pits, the ridge was a stinking compost pile. If a Marine slipped and slid down the back slope of the muddy ridge, he was apt to reach the bottom vomiting. I saw more than one man lose his footing and slip and slide all the way to the bottom only to stand up horror-stricken as he watched in disbelief while fat maggots tumbled out of his muddy, dungaree pockets, cartridge belt, legging lacings, and the like. Then, he and a buddy would shake or scrape them away with a piece of ammo box or a knife blade. We didn't talk about such things. They were too horrible and obscene, even for hardened veterans. The conditions taxed the toughest I knew, almost to the point of screaming. Nor do authors normally write about such vileness, unless they have seen it with their own eyes. It is too preposterous to think that men could actually live and fight for days and nights on end under such terrible conditions and not be driven insane. But I saw much of it there on Okinawa, and to me, the war was insanity. Chapter 13 Breakthrough The rains became so heavy that at times we could barely see our buddies in the neighboring foxhole. We had to bail out our gun pit and foxholes during and after each downpour, or they filled with water. Snafu and I dug a deep foxhole, close to the gun pit, and placed pieces of wooden ammo crates across braces set on the muddy clay at the bottom. At one end of this foxhole, beyond the extension of the boards, we dug a sump, 
As the surface water poured into our foxhole and down under the boards, we bailed out the sump with a sea ration can for a day or two. But the soil became so saturated by continued downpours that water poured in through the four sides of the foxhole as though it were a colander. We then had to use a discarded helmet to bail out the sump because the ration can couldn't take out water fast enough to keep up with that pouring in. The board floor kept us out of the water and mud, provided we worked diligently enough at the bailing detail. Necessity being the mother of invention, we had reinvented the equivalent of duckboards commonly used in flooded World War I trenches. The duckboards, pictured and described in 1914-18 in Flanders, were, of course, often prefabricated in long sections and then placed in the trenches by infantrymen. But the small board floor we placed in our foxhole served the same function. Continued firing finally caused my mortar's base plate to drive the pieces of wood supporting it deep into the mud in the bottom of the gun pit. We couldn't sight the gun properly. We tugged and pulled the gun up out of the mud. Then, it was a choice of emplacing it either on some firmer base in the gun pit or on the surface outside. The latter prospect would have meant sure death from the enemy shelling. So we had to come up with something better in a hurry. Somebody got the bright idea of building a footing on which to rest the base plate. So in the bottom of the gun pit, we dug out a deep square hole larger than the base plate and lined it with boards. We next placed several helmets full of coral gravel we found in the side of the railroad bed into the footing. We set the mortar's base plate on the firm coral footing, resided the gun, and had no more trouble with recoil driving the base plate into the mud. I suppose the other two squads in our mortar section fixed their gun's base plates in the same manner. The Japanese infantry kept up their activity to our front and tried to infiltrate our lines every night, sometimes with success. Snafu made good about then on the threat he had made to the CP on Peleliu about any enemy headed toward the company KCP. On Peleliu, one night after we came off the lines, Snafu shot two Japanese with his Thompson. He had killed one and fatally wounded the other. A sergeant made Snafu bury the dead soldier. Snafu objected strenuously because he said, and rightfully so, if he hadn't shot the Japanese, they would have kept on going right into the company CP. Sarge said maybe so, but the corpse had to be buried, and since Snafu had shot it, he must bury it. Snafu promised he would never shoot another enemy soldier headed for the CP. One day, as dawn broke, with a thin fog and a pelting rain, Snafu woke me out of the nearest thing to sleep that could be attained in that miserable place with, Halt! Who goes there? What's the password? Jolted out of my fatigued stupor, I saw Snafu's face silhouetted against the gray sky. Rain poured off his helmet, and drops of moisture on the end of each whisker of the thick, stubbly beard on his jutting square jaw caught the dim light like glass beads. I snatched the Tommy up off my lap as he raised his forty-five pistol and aimed it toward two dim figures striding along about twenty yards away.
Visibility was so poor in the dim light, mist, and rain that I could tell little about the shadowy figures other than they wore U.S. helmets. At the sound of Snafu's challenge, the two men speeded up instead of halting and identifying themselves. Halt or I'll fire, he yelled. The two took off for the railroad bed as fast as they could on the slippery ground. Snafu fired several shots with his forty-five, but missed. Shortly, we heard a couple of American grenades explode in the railroad bed. Then, a buddy yelled that the Japanese had been killed by his grenades. Daylight came rapidly, so we went over to the railroad embankment to ask what had happened. When Snafu and I got to the foxhole by the railroad embankment, we found two marine snipers grinning and laughing. The grenade explosions had scared awake the marines in the dryness, under the tarpaulin in the company CP, and had chased them out into the rain. They were drifting back to the shelter as we arrived. We waved, but got only glares in return. We took a look at the dead enemy before returning to our foxhole. They had been wearing marine helmets, but otherwise were dressed in Japanese uniforms. A grenade had exploded in the face of one. There was no face and little head remaining. The other wasn't as badly mangled. Snafu and I returned to our hole and got settled just in time to see Hank come stalking along from the CP. He was stopping at every foxhole along the way to find out who had been so negligent as to let the Japanese soldiers get past them and almost to the CP. Hank arrived at our foxhole and asked us why we hadn't seen the two soldiers pass if one of us was on watch as we were supposed to be. Snafu spoke up immediately and said, Hell, I saw him go right by here, but I reckoned they were headed for the company CP. He didn't mention his challenging the Japanese or firing at them. Hank looked astonished and said, What do you mean, Snafu? Snafu swelled with indignation and answered, You remember when they made me bury that nip I shot on Palaloo? When them two was headed for the CP? Yeah, so what? Answered Hank in a low, menacing voice. Well, I told them then, if they made me bury him, then by God, next time I seen a nip heading for the CP, I wasn't gonna stop him. I groaned in a low voice. Oh, shut up, Snafu. One didn't talk like that to a senior NCO and get away with it. Hank was a very formidable person and merited the tremendous respect we felt for him. But woe be unto the Marine, who didn't do a task properly and incurred his wrath. Hank treated us with respect and compassion. If we followed orders and did our best, I had no desire to see what he would do to someone who didn't, but I thought I was about to. So I turned my head and half closed my eyes, as did all the awestruck men in the foxholes with an earshot who had been watching Snafu and Hank. Nothing happened. I glanced at Snafu and Hank as they stood there glaring at each other. A bantam rooster glaring up at a mighty eagle. Finally, Hank said, You better not let that happen again. He turned and stalked back to the CP. Snafu mumbled and grumbled. 
the rest of us sighed with relief. I fully expected Hank at least to order Snafu to bury the two Japanese down there on the railroad, and then Snafu, as my corporal, would order me onto the burial detail, as had happened on Peleliu. But he didn't, and someone else spaded mud over the two corpses. Much later, when Hank was leaving Company K for home, after an outstanding record in three campaigns, I asked him what he had thought about that incident. He just looked at me and grinned, but wouldn't say anything about it. His grin revealed, however, that he respected Snafu and knew he wasn't lax in any way, and probably that he himself had been ordered by some officer to look into the affair. Because of the surroundings, our casualties during the stalemate on Half Moon were some of the most pathetic I ever had seen. Certainly, a beautiful landscape didn't make a wound less painful or a death less tragic. But our situation before Shuri was the most awful place conceivable for a man to be hurt or to die. Most of the wounds resulted from enemy shell fragments, but it seemed to me we had more than the usual number of cases of blast concussions from exploding shells. That was understandable because of the frequent heavy shellings we were subjected to. All the casualties were muddy and soaking wet like the rest of us. That seemed to accentuate the bloody battle dressings on their wounds and their dull expressions of shock and pain, which made the horror and hopelessness of it all more vivid as we struggled through the chilly driving rain and deep mud to evacuate them. Some of the concussion cases could walk and were helped and led, some seemed to have no sure sense of direction, to the rear like men walking in their sleep. Some wore wild-eyed expressions of shock and fear. Others whom I knew well, though could barely recognize, wore expressions of idiots or simpletons knocked too witless to be afraid anymore. The blast of a shell had literally jolted them into a different state of awareness from the rest of us. Some of those who didn't return probably never recovered, but were doomed to remain in mental limbo and spend their futures in a veterans' hospital as living dead. The combat fatigue cases were distressing. They ranged in their reactions from a state of dull detachment seemingly unaware of their surroundings, to quiet sobbing, or all the way to wild screaming and shouting. Stress was the essential factor we had to cope with in combat. Under small arms fire, and in warding off infiltrators and raiders during sleepless, rainy nights for prolonged periods. But being shelled so frequently during the prolonged surety stalemate seemed to increase the strain beyond that which many otherwise stable and hardened marines could endure without mental or physical collapse. From my experience, of all the hardships and hazards the troops had to suffer, prolonged shellfire was more apt to break a man psychologically than anything else. In addition to the wounded, quite a number of men were evacuated and described in the muster rolls simply as sick. Some of them suffered attacks of malaria. Others had fever, respiratory problems, or were just exhausted and seemed to have succumbed to the rigors of exposure and the chilly rains. There were numerous cases of pneumonia, 
Many men weren't evacuated, although they suffered serious ailments resulting from the cold rains and being soaking wet for more than a week. Most of us had serious trouble with our feet. An infantryman with sore feet was in miserable shape under the best of living conditions. During a period of about 14 or 15 days, as near as I can calculate the time, from 21 May to 5 June, my feet and those of my buddies were soaking wet, and our boondockers were caked with sticky mud. Being up on the line and frequently shelled prevented a man from taking off his boondockers to put on a pair of dry socks. And even if he had dry socks, there was no way to clean and dry the leather boondockers. Most of us removed our mud-caked canvas leggings and tucked our trouser cuffs into our sock tops, but it didn't help our feet much. Consequently, most men's feet were in bad condition. My feet were sore, and it hurt to walk or run. The insides of my boondockers gave me the sensation of being slimy when I wiggled my toes to try to warm my feet with increased circulation. The repulsive sensation of slippery, slimy feet grew worse each day. My sore feet slid back and forth inside my soaked boondockers when I walked or ran. Fortunately, they never became infected. A miracle in itself. Sore feet, caused by prolonged exposure to mud and water, was called immersion foot, I learned later. In World War I, they called the same condition trench foot. To me, it was an unforgettable sensation of extreme personal filth and painful discomfort. It was the kind of experience that would make a man sincerely grateful for the rest of his life for clean, dry socks. As simple a condition as dry socks seemed a luxury. The almost constant rain also caused the skin of my fingers to develop a strange, shrunken, and wrinkled appearance. My nails softened. Sores developed on the knuckles and backs of both hands. These grew a little larger each day and hurt whenever I moved my fingers. I was always knocking the scabs off against ammo boxes and the like. Similar sores had tormented combat troops in the South Pacific campaigns and were called jungle rot or jungle sores. Our own mail came up to us in canvas bags, usually with ammo and rations. It was of tremendous value in boosting sagging morale. On several occasions, I actually had to bend over my letters and read as rapidly as possible to shield them from the torrents of rain before the ink was smeared across the soggy paper and the writing became illegible. Most of us received letters from family and civilian friends, but occasionally we received letters from old Company K buddies who had returned to the States. Their early letters expressed relief over being back with family or with wine, women, and song. But later, the letters often became disturbingly bitter and filled with disillusionment. Some expressed a desire to return if they could get back into the old battalion. Considering the dangers and hardships those men had been through, before they were sent home, and considering our situation in front of Shuri, the attitudes of our buddies who had returned stateside puzzled us. They expressed themselves in various ways, but the gist of their disillusionment 
was a feeling of alienation from everyone but their old comrades. Although there was gasoline and meat rationing back in the States, life was safe and easy. Plenty of people were ready to buy a Marine combat veteran wearing campaign ribbons and battle stars a drink or a beer any time. But all the good life and luxury didn't seem to take the place of old friendships forged in combat. There was talk of war profiteers and able-bodied men who got easy duty at the expense of others. Some letters said simply that folks back in the States just don't understand what the hell it's all about because they have had it so easy. I heard more than one buddy express the opinion, as we sat in the mud, that civilians would understand if the Japanese or the Germans bombed an American city. Some men thought that would have been a good idea if no American civilians got killed, just scared. But nobody wanted it to be his hometown. It was hard to believe that some of our old friends who had wanted so much to return home actually were writing us that they thought of volunteering again for overseas duty. Some actually did. They had had enough of war, but they had greater difficulty adjusting to civilians or to comfortable stateside military posts. We were unable to understand their attitudes until we ourselves returned home and tried to comprehend people who griped because America wasn't perfect or their coffee wasn't hot enough or they had to stand in line and wait for a train or bus. Our buddies who had gone back had been greeted enthusiastically, as those of us who survived were received later on. But the folks back home didn't, and in retrospect, couldn't have been expected to, understand what we had experienced, what in our minds seemed to set us apart forever from anyone who hadn't been in combat. We didn't want to indulge in self-pity. We just wished that people back home could understand how lucky they were and stop complaining about trivial inconveniences. Siegfried Sassoon, an English combat infantry officer and poet in World War I, experienced the same feeling when he returned home. He summed it up in the following verse. You smug-faced crowds, with kindling eye, who cheer when soldier lads march by. Sneak home and pray you'll never know the hell where youth and laughter go. The poet might just as well have been referring to Peleliu or to the mudfields in front of Shuri as to France in World War I. Some of the younger replacements who came to us then had trouble adjusting and not just to the shelling. That was enough to shake up the strongest veteran, but they were utterly dismayed by our horrible surroundings. Numerous Marine replacements for combat units on Okinawa never had their names added to their unit's muster rolls because they got hit before notice of their transfer from their replacement draft to the combat unit ever reached headquarters, U.S. Marine Corps so they were listed on the casualty rolls as members of various replacement drafts. It was also common throughout the campaign for replacements to get hit before we even knew their names. They came up confused, frightened, and hopeful, got wounded or killed, 
and went right back to the rear on the route by which they had come, shocked, bleeding, or stiff. They were forlorn figures, coming up to the meat grinder and going right back out of it like homeless waifs, unknown and faceless to us, like unread books on a shelf. They never belonged to the company or made any friends before they got hit. Of course, those replacements who got hit right away with the million-dollar wound were actually fortunate. Our food usually consisted of a cold can of sea rations and, rarely, a canteen cup of hot coffee. When we could brew it up, it was a treat. It was difficult to warm anything with our little heat tablets because of the almost constant rain. Sometimes, I had to hunch over and shield a can of sea ration stew from the rain because the can would fill up with rainwater as fast as I spooned the cold stew into my mouth. We ate only because hunger forced us to do so. No other stimulus could have forced me to eat when my nostrils were so saturated with the odor of decay that I frequently felt sick. I ate little during that period, but drank hot coffee or bouillon at every opportunity. The constant rain caused our weapons to rust. Most of us lined the holsters for our forty-five automatic pistols with the green plastic covers we were issued. These came in long, sleeve-like pieces and could be placed over carbines, rifles, and tommy guns. We kept a plastic hood draped over our mortar when it wasn't in use. This plastic cover was issued to be placed over ourselves while crouching down to avoid being sprayed with mustard gas, should that weapon have been used by the Japanese. We kept our weapons heavily oiled and actually had little trouble with them considering the battlefield conditions. Field sanitation was non-existent because of the shelling and the mud. Each man simply used a grenade canister or ammo carton and threw his own waste out into the already foul mud around his foxhole. By day, the battlefield was a horrible scene, but by night, it became the most terrible of nightmares. Star shells and flares illuminated the area throughout the nights, but were interspersed with moments of chilling, frightening blackness. Sleep was almost impossible in the mud and cold rain, but sometimes I wrapped my wet poncho around me and dozed off for brief periods while my foxhole mate was on watch and bailing out the hole. One usually had to attempt sleep while sitting or crouching in the foxhole. As usual, we rarely ventured out of our foxholes at night, unless to care for wounded or to get ammunition. When a flare or star shell lighted the area, everyone froze just as he was, then moved during the brief periods of darkness. When the area lighted up with that eerie greenish light, the big raindrops sparkled like silver shafts as they slanted downward. During a strong wind, they looked as though they were being driven along almost horizontal to the deck. The light reflected off the dirty water in the craters and off the helmets and weapons of the living and the dead. I cataloged in my mind the position of every feature on the surrounding terrain. There was no vegetation, so my list consisted of mounds and dips in the terrain, foxholes of my comrades, craters, corpses, and knocked-out tanks and Amtraks. We had to know where everyone, living and dead, was located. 
If one of us fired at an enemy infiltrating or on a raid, he needed to know where his comrades were so as not to hit them. The position and posture of every corpse was important because infiltrating Japanese also would freeze when illuminating shells lit up, so they might go unnoticed among the dead. The longer we stayed in the area, the more unending the night seemed to become. I reached the state where I would awake abruptly from my semi-sleep, and if the area was lit up, note with confidence my buddy scanning the terrain for any hostile sign. I would glance about, particularly behind us, for trouble. Finally, before we left the area, I frequently jerked myself up into a state in which I was semi-awake during periods between star shells. I imagined Marine dead had risen up and were moving silently about the area. I suppose these were nightmares, and I must have been more asleep than awake, or just dumbfounded by fatigue. Possibly, they were hallucinations, but they were strange and horrible. The pattern was always the same. The dead got up slowly out of their waterlogged craters or off the mud and, with stooped shoulders and dragging feet, wandered around aimlessly, their lips moving as though trying to tell me something. I struggled to hear what they were saying. They seemed agonized by pain and despair. I felt they were asking me for help. The most horrible thing was that I felt unable to aid them. At that point, I invariably became wide awake and felt sick and half-crazed by the horror of my dream. I would gaze out intently to see if the silent figures were still there, but saw nothing. When a flare lit up, all was stillness and desolation, each corpse in its usual place. Among the craters off the ridge, to the west was a scattering of marine corpses. Just beyond the right edge of the end foxhole, the ridge fell away steeply to the flat, muddy ground. Next to the base of the ridge, almost directly below me, was a partially flooded crater, about three feet in diameter and probably three feet deep. In this crater was the body of a marine, whose grisly visage has remained disturbingly clear in my memory. If I close my eyes, he is as vivid as though I had seen him only yesterday. The pathetic figure sat with his back toward the enemy and leaned against the south edge of the crater. His head was cocked and his helmet rested against the side of the crater so that his face, or what remained of it, looked straight up at me. His knees were flexed and spread apart. Across his thighs, still clutched in his skeletal hands, was his rusting B.A.R. Canvas leggings were laced neatly along the sides of his calves and over his boondockers. His ankles were covered with muddy water, but the toes of his boondockers were visible above the surface. His dungarees, helmet, cover, and 782 gear appeared new. They were neither mud-spattered nor faded. I was confident that he had been a new replacement. Every aspect of that big man looked much like a Marine taking ten on maneuvers before the order to move out again. He apparently had been killed early in the attacks against the Half Moon, before the rains began, 
Beneath his helmet brim, I could see the visor of a green cotton fatigue cap. Under that cap were the most ghastly, skeletal remains I had ever seen, and I had already seen too many. Every time I looked over the edge of that foxhole, down into that crater, that half-gone face leered up at me with a sardonic grin. It was as though he was mocking our pitiful efforts to hang on to life in the face of the constant violent death that had cut him down. Or maybe he was mocking the folly of the war itself. I am the harvest of man's stupidity. I am the fruit of the Holocaust. I prayed like you to survive. But look at me now. It is over for us who are dead. But you must struggle and will carry the memories all your life. People back home will wonder why you can't forget. During the day, I sometimes watched big raindrops splashing into the crater around that corpse and remembered how as a child I had been fascinated by raindrops splashing around a large green frog as he sat in a ditch near home. My grandmother had told me that elves made little splashes like that, and they were called water babies. So I sat in my foxhole and watched the water babies splashing around the green dungaree-clad corpse. What an unlikely combination. The war had turned the water babies into little ghouls that danced around the dead instead of little elves dancing around a peaceful bullfrog. A man had little to occupy his mind at Shuri, just sit in muddy misery and fear, tremble through the shellings, and let his imagination go where it would. One of the very few humorous incidents I saw during those terrible days before Shuri occurred toward the end of the awful stalemate. Two Marines from the other mortar squad were dug in to the left of my gun pit. One morning, at the first pale light of dawn, I heard a commotion in their foxhole. I could hear a poncho being flung aside as someone began thrashing around. There were grunts and swearing. I strained my eyes through the steaming rain and brought the Tommy gun up to my shoulder. From all indications, one or more Japanese had slipped up on the weary occupants of the foxhole, and they were locked in a life-and-death struggle. But I could do nothing but wait and alert other men around us. The commotion grew louder, and I could barely make out two dark figures struggling in the foxhole. I was utterly helpless to aid a buddy in distress, because I couldn't identify who was Marine and who was Japanese. None of us dared to leave his own foxhole and approach the two. The enemy soldier must have already knocked one of the Marines and was grappling with the other, I thought. The dark figures rose up, standing toe-to-toe. They leaned into each other and exchanged blows with their fists. Everyone's eyes were fixed on the struggling figures, but could see little in the semi-darkness and pouring rain. The mumblings and swearing became louder and understandable, and we heard, You dumb jerk! Give me that range card! It's mine! I recognized the voice of a man who had come into Company K before Okinawa. No, it's not! It's mine! You better give me it! I don't take no crap from nobody! The latter was the familiar voice of Santos, a Peleliu veteran. We all started in surprise. Hey, you guys, what the hell's going on over there? Growled Nencio. 
The two struggling figures recognized his voice and immediately stopped hitting each other. You two eight balls, the NCO said as he went over to them. It would have served you right if we had shot you both. We figured a nip had got in your foxhole. Each of the two battlers protested that the other was the cause of all the trouble. The light was good by then, and some of us went over to their foxhole to investigate. What's all the row about? I asked. This, by God, nothing but this, snarled the NCO as he glared at the two sheepish occupants of the foxhole and handed me a range card. I was puzzled why two Marines would squabble over a range card, but when I looked at the card, I saw it was special and unique. Impressed on it, in lipstick, was the ruby-red imprint of a woman's lips. The men had found the unique card in a canister while breaking out ammo for the guns the previous afternoon and had argued all night about who would keep it. Toward dawn, they came to blows over it. The NCO continued to chew them out as I handed the card back to him and returned to my foxhole. We all got a good laugh out of the episode. I often wondered what that woman back in the ammunition factory in the States would have thought about the results of her efforts to add a little morale booster for us in a canister of mortar ammo. During the last few days of May, we received several small but vicious counterattacks from the Japanese soldiers, who had been occupying the caves in the reverse slope of Half Moon's left-hand arm. One morning, we got a message that a large number of enemy was massing behind the crescent. I was ordered to leave the OP and return to the gun pit in preparation for a big fire mission. I moved down the ridge and across the reeking, shell-pocked wasteland to the gun pits without mishap. Once there, we squared away the 360mm mortars to fire on the reverse slope of the left crescent arm. The firing pattern of the mortars was arranged to box in the Japanese and prevent their escape while our three guns shelled the area heavily in an attempt to wipe them out. Consequently, we had to fire rapid fire, searching and traversing the target area. The ammo carriers were kept busy breaking out more HE shells, but I was so busy on my mortar, I didn't have time to notice them. The tube, barrel, became intensely hot. We wrapped a dungaree jacket around the lower half of it, and one of the ammo carriers poured helmets full of water taken from a shell crater over the cloth to cool the steaming barrel while we continued rapid fire. We fired I don't know how many hundreds of shells before the order came to cease firing. My ears rang. I was exhausted and had a roaring headache. Beside each of the three gun pits was a huge stack of empty HE canisters and ammo crates from the large number of shells we had fired. We were anxious to know the results of our firing, but our observers couldn't see the target area because it was on the reverse slope of the ridge. A few days later, when our regiment went forward in the attack, we didn't move through the target area, so we still didn't see the effects of the fire mission. But one company KNCO, who did see the area, told us that he had counted more than 200 enemy dead, who apparently had been trapped and killed by our fire. I assume he was right, because after our barrage, the Japanese ceased activity along the ridge. Shuri
the rain began to slacken, and rumors spread that we would attack soon. We also heard that the main enemy force had withdrawn from the Shuri line, but the Japanese had left a strong rear guard to fight to the death, so we could expect no signs of weakness. The Japanese had been spotted retreating from Shuri under cover of the bad weather. Our naval guns, artillery, heavy mortars, and even a few airplanes had thrown a terrific bombardment into them. But withdrawal or not, Shuri wasn't going to fall easily. We anticipated a hard fight once the weather cleared. On a quiet day or two, before the 5th Marines moved out for the big push against Shuri, several Marines from the Graves Registration Section came into our area to collect the dead. Those dead already on stretchers presented no problem, but the corpses rotting in shell craters and in the mud were another matter. We sat on our helmets and gloomily watched the Graves Registration people trying to do their macabre duty. They each were equipped with large rubber gloves and a long pole with a stiff flap attached to the end, like some huge spatula. They would lay a poncho next to a corpse, then place the poles under the body and roll it over onto the poncho. It sometimes took several tries, and we winced when a corpse fell apart. The limbs or head had to be shoved onto the poncho like bits of garbage. We felt sympathy for the graves registration men. With the corpses being moved, the stench of rotting flesh became worse, if possible, than ever before. Apparently the enemy had withdrawn guns and troops from Shuri to the extent that their shelling of our area had all but stopped. A miserable drizzling rain commenced again. Almost out on my feet with fatigue, I decided to take advantage of the quiet. I unfolded an unused stretcher, set it on some boards, lay down on my back, and covered my head and body with my poncho. It was the first time in two months since leaving my canvas rack aboard ship on one April D-Day that I had been able to lie down on anything but hard ground or mud. The canvas stretcher felt like a deluxe bed, and my poncho shielded all by my mud-caked boondockers and ankles from the rain. For the first time in about ten days, I fell into a deep sleep. How long I slept, I don't know. But after a while, I became aware of being lifted upward. At first I thought I was dreaming, but then I awoke fully and realized someone had picked up the stretcher. Throwing the poncho away from me, I sprang off the stretcher, spun around, and saw two clean, neatly shaven marines looking at me in utter astonishment. Several of my grimy buddies squatting on their muddy helmets nearby began to laugh. The two strangers were Graves registration men. They had picked up the stretcher, thinking I was just another poncho-covered corpse. It never occurred to them that instead, I was just a weary marine, trying to catch a nap on a comfortable stretcher who had covered himself to keep off the rain. They grinned when they realized what had happened. I accused my buddies of telling the two men to pick up my stretcher, but they only laughed and asked why my nap had ended so abruptly. I was left with an eerie feeling from the incident, but my buddies enjoyed the joke thoroughly. Dawn broke, clearly without rain, on 28 May, and we prepared to attack later in the morning.
About 10.15, we attacked southward against long-range mortar and machine gun fire. We were elated that the opposition was so light and that the sun was shining. We actually advanced several hundred yards that day, quite an accomplishment in that sector. Moving through the mud was still difficult, but we were all glad to get out of the stinking, half-flooded garbage pit around the half-moon. That night we learned that we would continue the attack the next day by moving directly against the Shuri Ridge. About mid-morning on 29 May, 3-5 attacked the Shuri with Company L in the lead and Companies K and I following closely. Earlier in the morning, Company A, 1st Battalion, 5th Marines, had attacked eastward into the reign of Shuri Castle and had raised the Confederate flag. When we learned that the flag of the Confederacy had been hoisted over the very heart and soul of Japanese resistance, all of us Southerners cheered loudly. The Yankees among us grumbled, and the Westerners didn't know what to do. Later, we learned that the stars and stripes that had flown over Guadalcanal were raised over Shuri Castle, a fitting tribute to the men of the 1st Marine Division who had the honor of being first into the Japanese citadel. We all were filled with a sense of accomplishment that night as we dug in somewhere around Shuri Castle. We in the ranks were well aware of its strategic importance to the progress of the campaign. Although the whole place was in ruins, we could still see that the area around Shuri Castle had been impressive and picturesque before its destruction by the incessant U.S. bombardment. Shuri Castle itself was a mess, and I couldn't tell much about its former appearance. It had been an ancient stone building surrounded by a moat and what appeared to have been terraces and gardens. As we picked our way through the rubble, I looked at the terraced stonework and shattered blackened tree stumps. I thought it must have been a pretty place once. We dug in that night with the knowledge that even though we were at last in Shuri Castle, there were strong, entrenched Japanese still north of us in Wana Draw, east of us and south of us. The lines were terribly confused to many of us in the ranks, and we assumed that the enemy could come at us from almost any direction. But they remained quiet during the night, except for the usual raiders. We attacked again the next day and got shelled badly. I was totally confused as to where we were for several days and can't clarify it now in my mind even after careful study of the notes and references at my disposal. At dusk, on one of those last few days of May, we moved into a muddy, slippery ridge and were told to dig in along the crest. One of the three 60mm mortar squads was to set up its gun down behind the ridge, but my squad and the remaining squad were ordered to dig in along the ridge crest and to function as riflemen during the night. The weather turned bad again, and it started raining. Mac, our mortar section leader, was nowhere to be seen. But Duke, who had been our section leader on Peleliu, and who was by then leading the battalion's 81mm mortar platoon, came up to take charge. He ordered an NCO to have us dig two-man foxholes five yards apart along the crest of the ridge. My buddy went off down the ridge to draw ammo and chow while I prepared to dig. The ridge was about a hundred feet high, quite steep, and we were on a narrow crest. 
Several discarded Japanese packs, helmets, and other gear lay scattered along the crest. From the looks of the muddy soil, the place had been shelled heavily for a long time. The ridge was a putrid place. Our artillery must have killed Japanese there earlier, because the air was foul with the odor of rotting flesh. It was just like being back at Half Moon Hill. Off toward our front, to the south, I had only a dim view through the gathering gloom and curtain of rain of the muddy valley below. The men digging in on both sides of me cursed the stench and the mud. I began moving the heavy, sticky clay mud with my entrenching shovel to shape out the extent of the foxhole before digging deeper. Each shovelful had to be knocked off the spade because it stuck like glue. I was thoroughly exhausted and thought my strength wouldn't last from one sticky shovelful to the next. Kneeling on the mud, I had dug the hole no more than six or eight inches deep when the odor of rotting flesh got worse. There was nothing to do but continue to dig, so I closed my mouth and inhaled with short, shallow breaths. Another spadeful of soil out of the hole released a mass of wriggling maggots that came welling up as though those beneath were pushing them out. I cursed and told the NCO as he came by what a mess I was digging into. You heard him. He said put the holes five yards apart. In disgust, I drove the spade into the soil, scooped out the insects, and threw them down the front of the ridge. The next stroke of the spade unearthed buttons and scraps of cloth from a Japanese army jacket buried in the mud, and another mass of maggots. I kept on doggedly. With the next thrust, metal hit the breastbone of a rotting Japanese corpse. I gazed down in horror and disbelief as the metal scraped a clean track through the mud along the dirty, whitish bone and cartilage with ribs attached. The shovel skidded into the rotting abdomen with a squishing sound. The odor nearly overwhelmed me as I rocked back on my heels. I began choking and gagging as I yelled in desperation, I can't dig in here! There's a dead nip here! The NCO came over, looked down at my problem and at me, and growled. You heard him. He said put the holes five yards apart. How the hell can I dig a foxhole through a dead nip? I protested. Just then Duke came along the ridge and said, What's the matter, Sledgehammer? I pointed to the partially exhumed corpse. Duke immediately told the NCO to have me dig a little to the side, away from the rotting remains. I thanked Duke and glared at the NCO. How I managed not to vomit during that vile experience, I don't know. Perhaps my senses and nerves had been so dulled by the constant foulness for so long that nothing could evoke any other response but to cry out and move back. I soon had a proper foxhole dug to one side of the site of my first attempt. A few spades full of mud thrown back into that excavation did little to reduce the horrid odor. My buddy returned, and we began to square away our gear for the coming light. There was some small arms fire to our left, but all was quiet around us. Duke was down at the foot of the ridge, behind us with a map in his hand. 
He called us to come down for a critique and a briefing on the next day's attack. Glad to leave the stinking foxhole, I got up and carefully started down the slippery ridge. My buddy rose, took one step down the ridge, slipped, and fell. He slid on his belly all the way to the bottom, like a turtle sliding off a log. I reached the bottom to see him stand erect with his arms partially extended and looked down at his chest and belt with a mixed expression of horror, revulsion, and disbelief. He was, of course, muddy from the slide. But that was the least of it. White, fat maggots tumbled and rolled off his cartridge belt, pockets, and folds of his dungaree jacket and trousers. I picked up a stick and handed him another. Together, we scraped the vile insect larvae off his reeking dungarees. That Marine was a Gloucester veteran with whom I had often shared a hole on Peleliu in Okinawa. He was as tough and as hard as any man I ever knew. But that slide was almost too much for him. I thought he was going to scream or crack up. Having to wallow in war's putrefaction was almost more than the toughest of us could bear. He shook himself like a wet dog, however, cursed, and threw down the stick when we got him scraped free of maggots. Duke's group of eight to ten marines showed their sympathy for my buddy and their appreciation of the vileness of his accident. Muddy-bearded and red-eyed with fatigue, Duke called our attention to the map, and that helped us focus on other subjects. He showed us where we were and told us some of the plans for the next day's attack, which was supposed to break completely through the Shuri line. I was so revolted and sickened by what had just happened and so weary that I didn't remember much of what he told us. It is a pity in retrospect, because that briefing was the only time in my combat experience that an officer ever showed a group of privates a map of the battlefield and explained recent events and future attack plans. Usually an NCO simply relayed the word to us. We then followed orders as they were given, rarely knowing what was going on. We never knew why Duke held the little critique that night, whether he was ordered to do so or not. I suspect he did it on his own. He realized we wanted to know and understand our role in the overall plan. It was a historic time, and we were participating in events of key importance to the American effort on Okinawa. All eyes were on Shuri. My buddies and I were key participants at a critical juncture in one of the most epic land battles of World War II, and we were having our tiny role in that battle explained. Duke asked if there were any questions. A few were asked, which he answered clearly. I maintained my condition of near stupefaction through it all. Then we slowly climbed back up the filthy ridge after he dismissed us. That night the rain came down in torrents. It was without exaggeration the most terrific deluge I've ever seen. The wind blew fiercely, slashing the rain horizontally across the crest of the ridge and stinging our faces and hands. The star shells burst but gave little illumination because they were snatched away immediately by the unseen hand of the gale. Visibility was limited to about six feet. We couldn't see our buddies in their foxholes on either side of us, what a terrible night to grapple with Japanese infiltrators or a counterattack, I thought to myself all night long.
Considerable machine gun fire, bursts of rifle fire, and grenade explosions erupted throughout the night a short way down the line to our left. But all was mercifully quiet, albeit tense, in our immediate area. Next morning, I realized why we weren't molested by the enemy as the men to our left had been. For a considerable distance to our right and left, the ridge fell away, almost perpendicularly to the valley below. The Japanese simply couldn't crawl up the slick surface. In the latter days of May, while the Japanese held on to the center of their line around Shuri, the U.S. Army divisions to the east and the 6th Marine Division to the west around Naha finally made progress to the south. Their combined movements threatened to envelop the main Japanese defense forces in the center. Thus, the enemy had to withdraw. By dawn on the 30th of May, most of the Japanese 32nd Army had departed the Shuri Line, leaving only rear guards to cover their retreat. In the 61 days of fighting on Okinawa after D-Day, an estimated 62,548 Japanese soldiers had lost their lives and 465 had been captured. American dead numbered 5,309. 23,909 had been wounded, and 346 were missing in action. It wasn't over yet. Chapter 14 Beyond Shuri We pushed past Shuri over some muddy hills in the Army zone of action and came across a group of about 20 Japanese prisoners. Each man was stripped except for a G-string. They stood barefooted in the mud alongside a trail winding along the slope of the barren hill. Several dirty and battle-weary Army infantrymen guarded them. The captured enemy had been ordered by an interpreter, Army Lieutenant, to stand off the trail so Company's K column could pass. We slipped and slid, wearily toward the sound of firing up ahead. A grizzled rifleman in front of me and I had been cursing the mud and exchanging remarks about how glad we were to be past Shuri. Suddenly, a Japanese prisoner stepped in front of my friend, blocking his way. Get out of the way, you crazy bastard, growled the Marine. The soldier folded his arms calmly, raised his chin, and displayed a picture of arrogance. My buddy and I heated up fast. He pushed the Japanese backward and sent him sprawling into the mud. The enemy soldier sprang up quickly and assumed his former position. What's that crazy bastard doing, I yelled, as I dropped my mortar ammo bag and reached for my forty-five pistol. My buddy unslung his rifle, grasped it by the stock with his left hand and by the pistol grip with his right hand. He planted his muddy feet firmly on the trail, flexed his knees and growled, Get out of my way, you bastard. Other Marines behind us had halted when we did. Seeing what was happening, they started cursing the Japanese. What's the holdup? Move out! Someone behind us yelled. The Army First Lieutenant, he was actually wearing his silver bars on his collars, clean-shaven and spotless except for muddy combat boots, came along the column to ascertain the problem. Seeing my buddy's stance, and realizing he might soon have one less prisoner, he said, You can't mistreat these men. They are prisoners of war. According to the Geneva Code, 
POWs must be treated humanely. He looked desperate. The whole column of muddy, raggedy-ass Marines glared at and cursed the prisoners strung out alongside us on the trail. Screw the Geneva Code. If that slant-eyed son of a bitch don't move out of my way, I'll give him a vertical butt stroke in his big mouth and knock out every one of them goddamn buck teeth. My buddy slowly moved his rifle back and forth, and the enemy soldier's arrogant expression began to fade. The army lieutenant knew he had a bad problem on his hands, and he obviously didn't know how to solve it. It was commonly said that Marines rarely took prisoners. A couple of G.I. riflemen of the prisoner guard detail stood by relaxed and grinned their endorsement of our sentiments. They obviously had been in the meat grinder long enough to have no more love for the Japanese than we did. The lieutenant obviously wasn't one of their officers, but from some rear echelon outfit. Just then, one of our officers hurried up from the rear of the column. The army lieutenant was mighty relieved to see him and explain the situation. Our officers went over and quietly told my buddy to get back into ranks. He then told the army language officer that if he didn't get his prisoners out of the way, he, our officer, couldn't guarantee that some of them wouldn't get hurt. The army officer spoke kindly in Japanese to the POWs, and they all stepped farther back away from the trail, giving us plenty of room. The language officer acted and sounded more like an elementary school teacher giving little children directions than an officer giving orders to a bunch of tough Japanese soldiers. During the whole episode, most of the Japanese never appeared afraid, merely chagrined or ashamed because they had acted disgracefully by surrendering. Perhaps the one who acted so arrogantly thought that one last act of defiance would soothe his conscience somewhat. Most Americans at the time couldn't comprehend the Japanese determination to win or fight to the death. To the Japanese, surrender was the ultimate disgrace. We didn't feel that POWs should be mistreated or handled roughly, but neither did we feel that one should be allowed to block our path and get away with the act. My view that some language officers were often overly solicitous about the comfort of prisoners and unduly courteous to them was shared by other infantrymen in the meat grinder. We were too familiar with the sight of helpless wounded Americans lying flat on their backs and on stretchers, getting shot by Japanese snipers while we struggled to evacuate them. After the breakthrough, we moved rapidly through areas where the opposition was light or absent, our supply lines, communications, and casualty evacuation had a difficult time keeping up with us because the mud was still such a serious problem. Although the rain fell less frequently, it hadn't ceased. As our column moved along the base of a road embankment on one occasion, a Marine, walking along the road above us, carrying a field telephone and a small roll of wire, shouted down, and asked for the identity of our unit. His buddy followed him along the road at a little distance carrying a roll of wire. These men were clean-shaven and neat. They looked suspiciously like rear echelon people to us. Hey, what outfit you guys in? shouted the first man up on the road. K-3-5, I yelled. 
His buddy behind him asked him, What outfit did he say? K-3-5, whatever the hell that means. The effect on us was instant and dramatic. Men who had paid little attention to what seemed a routine inquiry looked angrily up at the man. I flushed with anger. My unit and I had been insulted. The mortar man next to me threw down his ammo bag and started up the embankment. I'll show you what the hell it means, you rear echelon son of a bitch. I'm gonna whip your ass. I wasn't given to brawling. The Japanese provided me with all the excitement and fighting I wanted. But I lost my head completely. I threw down my ammo bag and started up the embankment. Other mortarmen started up too. What's the dope? I heard a man back along the column shout. That rear echelon bastard up there cussed K Company, someone answered. Immediately, other company K men started up the bank. The two men up on the road looked utterly bewildered as they saw bearded, muddy marine infantrymen cursing, grounding their weapons, dropping their loads, and surging angrily up the embankment. One of our officers and a couple of NCOs saw what had happened and rushed up ahead of us. The officer turned and yelled, You people get back in ranks on the double! Move! Move! We stopped, each of us knowing that to disobey orders invited severe disciplinary action. The two men on the road had become frightened, and we saw them hustling along the road to the rear. They looked back anxiously several times to see whether they were being followed. We must have been an angry, menacing-looking bunch from their viewpoint. I suspect those two Marines knew the real meaning and essence of esprit de corps after that experience. We picked up our weapons and gear and moved out again below the road only to halt shortly. The officers consulted their maps, held a critique, and decided that place was as good as any for the company to leave the muddy low ground go up the bank, and take advantage of the coral-surfaced road, probably the east-west Naha-Yunabaru Highway, a segment of which our regiment captured about then. We moved up onto the road, took off our gear, and settled onto the side of a large ridge with a wide grass and tree-covered crest. Okinawan burial vaults and emplacements lay all along the slope of the ridge, but the Japanese hadn't left many men to defend it. However, they gave a good account of themselves before being wiped out. Toward dusk, I was examining a Japanese 75mm dual-purpose gun, which they had abandoned in perfect condition. Several of us had a lot of fun turning its cranks and wheels, which we didn't understand, but which moved the big barrel up and down, right and left. Our play was interrupted by the shriek of several enemy artillery shells that exploded up on the ridge crest near a group of Company K men. Corman! We raced up onto the ridge, hoping no more shells came in, but wondering who was hit and knowing we might be needed to help with the casualties. We could see the smoke from the shells and the Marines scurrying around to aid the casualties and to disperse. In the gathering twilight, I ran up to a little knot of Marines bending over a casualty. To my dismay, the wounded Marine was good-natured, cigar-chewing Joe Lambert, a demolitions expert I had known so long. I knelt beside him 
and was distressed to see that he had multiple wounds from shell fragments in his body. The men had eased the poncho under Lambert and were preparing to carry him down the ridge for evacuation. I wished him luck, made the usual jokes about not being too romantic with the nurses on the hospital ship, and asked him to drink a beer and think of me when he got stateside. The usual comments one made to a badly wounded friend who had little chance. Lambert looked up at me in the gathering darkness. With the stump of an unlighted cigar clenched in his teeth, he said with irony in his voice, Sledgehammer, ain't this a hell of a thing. A man been in the company as long as me and have to get carried out on a poncho. I made some feeble attempts to comfort him. I knew he was going to die, and I wanted to cry. Wish I could light that cigar for you, Cobber, but the smoking lamp is out. That's okay, Sledgehammer. One of those good-looking nurses will light it for you, I said, as they picked up the poncho and started off down the slope of the ridge with him. I stood up and looked at a nearby group of beautiful pines silhouetted against the darkening sky. The wind blew their fresh scent into my face, and I thought how much like southern pine it smelled. But poor, brave Lambert would never get back home again. I was thankful that when his luck finally ran out and he was fatally wounded, it happened on a high, clear, grassy ridge crest near a clump of fragrant pines and not back in the stinking muck of the quagmire around Shuri. Corporal Lambert was a great favorite in Company K. Any of us who had fought on Palaloo's Bloody Nose Ridge had seen him numerous times, standing above some Japanese cave, swinging a satchel charge of explosives on a rope until he got it just right, then releasing the rope and yelling, Fire in the hole! Just before the muffled explosion. He would grin then climbed down and rejoin us, wringing wet with sweat from his face to his boondockers. He would relight his cigar, which served in turn as a lighter for his satchel charge fuses, and discuss the damage done to the cave. He was big, round-faced, and jovial. Rumor said that he had been scheduled to return to the States after Palaloo, but refused because he wanted to remain with Company K. Not long after he was carried out, we learned that Lambert had died. It's one of the war's many personal tragedies that he was killed after having served so long and so bravely. The next day, we moved out into a wide valley below the ridge. We saw Japanese equipment and dead on several roads destroyed by the big U.S. bombardment the last week of May when the enemy had evacuated Shuri. We also encountered numerous Japanese supply dumps. Most of the food and rations didn't suit our tastes. The Japanese iron rations, which I had seen first in gauze sacks on Palaloo, tasted like dog biscuits. But I found several cans of preserved Japanese deep-sea scallops, which were delicious. Several cans of these stored in my pack were a welcome change from C&K rations. We made one rapid advance across a wide, grassy valley, only to be halted by snipers in some rocks on the crest of the opposite ridge. 
We set up the guns, registered in on the areas where snipers were, and began firing. Stretcher teams came and went up and down the slope of the open ridge. Four of us were ordered off for a stretcher team to pick up a corpsman who had been hit by sniper fire. We went up the gently sloping, grass-covered ridge and came to the dock. Another stretcher team passed us, carrying the Marine who the dock had been tending when he himself was wounded. The Marine had been shot by a sniper, and the corpsman had come to administer medical aid. While he was working over the wounded Marine, a Japanese shot him in the thigh. Although wounded painfully, he continued to work on his patient. Then, the sniper had shot Doc in the other thigh. As we arrived, he cautioned us to be careful, or we would get hit too. We quickly got him on a stretcher and took off as fast as possible. Doc was a fairly tall, well-built man, larger than any of us. We carried him a long distance, down the ridge and across the wide valley to a steep-sided ditch spanned by a footbridge. An ambulance jeep was waiting on the other side of the footbridge. We were all nearly exhausted from the exertions and lack of sleep of the past two weeks, and it was quite a struggle. Twice wounded though he was, he kept insisting we stop and rest for a while. But we four felt obligated to get him to the jeep and evacuated as soon as possible. Finally, we agreed to stop for a breather. Setting the stretcher down, we fell out flat on the grass, panting for breath. Doc talked to us calmly, admonishing us to take it easy and not to overexert ourselves. I felt ashamed. That unselfish, dedicated corpsman was more concerned because we were so tired from carrying him out than he was with his own wounds. We picked up the stretcher and got to the ditch. There on the bank, I saw a bush with several small red tomatoes. I managed to grab three or four tomatoes and put them on the stretcher as we got Doc across the narrow footbridge. I told him to eat them, that they'd make him feel better. He thanked me, but said we should eat them, because he would get good chow in the hospital. Who should walk around the jeep, just as we were loading our corpsman, but Doc Arrogant, notorious for painful shots on Pavuvu. I'll take those, he said, reaching for the tomatoes. The hell you say? I exclaimed, snatching them out of his hand. One of my buddies went up to him and said, You bastard! You'd take candy from a baby, wouldn't you? Arrogant looked surly, turned around, and went back around the jeep. Our doc handed me the tomatoes and insisted we eat them. We said we would, and wished him luck, as the jeep bumped off to the rear. We recrossed the footbridge and fell exhausted onto the grass. We had a smoke, divided up the juicy little tomatoes, cussed Doc Arrogant, and voiced our admiration for all other corpsmen. On 4 June, we moved rapidly southward, through open country, in a torrential rain. Although the opposition was sporadic, we still had to check out all the houses, huts, and former Japanese emplacements. While searching a small hut, I came across an old Okinawan woman, seated on the floor, just inside the doorway. Taking no chances, I held my Thompson ready, and motioned to her to get up and come out, 
she remained on the floor, but bowed her old gray head and held her gnarled hands toward me, palms down, to show the tattoos on the backs of her hands, indicating she was Okinawan. No, Nippon, she said slowly, shaking her head as she looked up at me with a weary expression that bespoke of much physical pain. She then opened her ragged blue kimono and pointed to a wound in the lower left side of her abdomen. It was an old wound, probably caused by shell or bomb fragments. It was an awful sight. A large area around the scabbed-over gash was discolored and terribly infected with gangrene. I gasped in dismay. I guessed that such a severe infection in the abdominal region was surely fatal. The old woman closed her kimono. She reached up gently, took the muzzle of my tummy, and slowly moved it so as to direct it between her eyes. She then released the weapon's barrel and motioned vigorously for me to pull the trigger. Oh no, I thought. This old soul, in such agony, she actually wants me to put her out of her misery. I lifted my tommy, slung it over my shoulder, shook my head, and said no to her. Then I stepped back and yelled for a corpsman. What's up, Sledgehammer? There's an old gook woman in there that's been hitting the side real bad. I'll see what I can do for her, he said, as we met about 50 yards from the hut. At that moment, a shot rang out from the hut. I spun around. The corpsman and I went down into a crouching position. That was an M1, I said. Sure was. What the hell, he said. Just then, a Marine emerged nonchalantly from the hut, checking the safety on his rifle. I knew the man well. He was attached at the time to company headquarters. I called to him by name and said, Was there a nip in that hut? I just checked it out. No, he said as we approached him. Just an old gook woman who wanted me to put her out of her misery. So I obliged her. The doc and I stared at each other and then at the Marine. That quiet, neat, mild-mannered young man just wasn't the type to kill a civilian in cold blood. When I saw the crumpled form under the faded blue kimono in the hut door, I blew up. You dumb bastard! She tried to get me to shoot her, and I called Doc to come help her! The executioner looked at me with a puzzled expression. You son of a bitch, I yelled! If you want to shoot at somebody so damn bad, why don't you trade places with that BAR man or a machine gunner and get out of that damn CP and shoot at Nips? They shoot back. He stammered apologies, and Doc cursed him. I said, We're supposed to kill Nips, not old women. The executioner's face flushed. An NCO came up and asked what happened. Doc and I told him. The NCO glared and said, You dirty bastard. Somebody yelled, Let's go, Sledgehammer. We're moving out. You guys shove off. I'll take care of this, said the NCO, 
to Doc and me. We ran off to catch up with the mortar section while the NCO continued to chew out the executioner. I never knew whether or not he was disciplined for his cold-blooded act. On the right of the 1st Marine Division, the 7th Marines extended its lines to the west coast and sealed off the Oroku Peninsula. Then the 6th Marine Division came in and fought a ten-day battle of attrition to annihilate the Japanese defenders there. The division killed nearly 5,000 Japanese, taking only 200 prisoners, at a loss of 1,608 Marines killed and wounded. On the 4th of June, the 1st Marines relieved the 5th Marines as the assault regiment for the 1st Marine Division's drive to the south. The 5th Marines went into reserve for the 3rd Marine Amphibious Force, a stance that still involved much danger for its weary Marines because of a mission to aggressively patrol and mop up behind the forward elements. We dug in as a secondary line, along a low ridge with some ruins of Okinawan houses behind us, and a broad, open valley stretching south to our front, as far as we could see. The rain ended the night of 5 to 6 June. I'll never forget the sensation of profound physical relief when I removed my soaked, muddy boondockers for the first time in approximately two weeks. As I pulled off my slimy, stinking socks, bits and shreds of dead flesh sloughed off the soles of my feet. A buddy, Myron Tessero, commented on the overpowering odor, only to discover that his feet were just as bad. My socks, a pair of khaki-colored, woolen army socks, thicker and heavier than our white Marine Corps issue, were so slimy and putrid I couldn't bear to wash them in my helmet. I had traded a candy bar to a soldier for them back in April. They were my prized possession because of their comfort when wet. With regret, I threw my prized socks aside and spaded dirt over them as though covering up a foul corpse. It was great to wash my feet, holding them up on an ammo box to let the sun shine down on them while I wiggled my toes. Everybody got his feet clean and dry as soon as possible. Mine were extremely sore and red over the entire soles almost to the point of bleeding. All of the normal friction ridges of the skin had sloughed off, and the soles were furrowed with deep, reddish grooves. But after drying them in the sun and putting on dry socks and boondockers, they soon felt better. Months passed, however, before the soles appeared normal again. We had our mortars set up in pits at the base of the low ridge along which the Company K line was dug in. George Surrett and I had a regular two-man foxhole on the ridge next to a road cut that came through at right angles to the ridge. During the nights we were there, we mortarmen took turns on the guns and fired flares periodically over our company area. Between patrols and nightly vigils, we began to get rested and dried out. We had air drops of supplies, food, water, and ammo. During the day, we could build campfires and heat rations, which all enjoyed. We had ten-in-one rations there, always a welcome change from the C and K rations. The method of airdrop used to supply water had not been perfected then. The water was contained in long plastic bags, four of which were stored in a metal cylinder attached to the parachute. 
Quite often, the impact of the cylinder hitting the deck caused one or more of the bags to break, and some or all of the water in it was lost. We always had a lot of fun when supplies were airdropped to us, even though it was hard work, running through the mud, collecting up the ammo, rations, and other supplies attached to the brightly colored chutes. Most of the time, Marine torpedo bombers made the drops while flying low over us. Their accuracy was remarkable. During the periods when deep mud covered much of the battlefield, we always welcomed a clear day, not only because we hated the rain, but because it meant our planes could be up and supply us with airdrops. Otherwise, supplies had to be manhandled miles through the mud. While we were in reserve, another mortarman and I were sent on a routine mission to carry a message to the West Coast regarding supplies. It was the kind of ordinary thing every infantryman was called on to do many times. Typically, it was good duty, because we were temporarily out from under the eagle eye of the company gunny sergeant, could move at our own pace, and do a little sightseeing along the way through areas already fought over and secured. It wasn't considered hazardous. Our instructions were straightforward. Our company gunny, Hank Boys, told us to keep on the main east-west road all the way to the beach and back. He told us who to contact and what to ask for. Then he warned us against screwing around souvenir hunting and cautioned us about the possibility of bypassed enemy. We started off in high spirits for what we thought would be an interesting jaunt into the area south of the Oroku Peninsula. We had gotten cleaned up by then. Our dungarees had been washed, and our leggings and boondockers were dry and scraped clean of mud. We carried the usual two canteens of water. We also had rationed chocolate bars because we would be gone several hours and could eat those on the move. My buddy was armed with a carbine. I carried the Tommy and my forty-five pistol. The weather had dried out, and it was an ideal day for a little harmless diversion from the patrols we had been making. After we moved out of our battalion area and onto the road, we saw almost no one. As we walked along the silent road, the only sounds in our immediate surroundings were our own voices, the crunching of our boondockers on the road, the muffled sloshing of the water in our canteens, and the occasional thump of our weapons' stocks against our canteens or K-bar scabbards. We moved in that silent world that characterized the backwash of battle. The area was replete with the floatsam of war. The storm front had passed, but its wreckage was left behind. Our experienced eyes read the silent signs and reconstructed the drama and pathos of various life-and-death struggles that had occurred. We encountered numerous enemy corpses, which we always passed on the windward side. We saw no marine dead, but a bloody dungaree jacket here, a torn boondocker there, a helmet with the camouflage cloth cover and steel beneath ripped by bullets, discarded plasma bottles, and bloody battle dressings gave mute testimony of the fate of their former owners. We passed through an embankment for a railroad track and entered the outskirts of a town. All buildings were badly damaged, but some were still standing. We stopped briefly to explore a quaint little store. 
displayed in its window were various cosmetics. In the street in front of the store lay a corpse clad in a blue kimono. Someone had placed a broken door over the pathetic body. We speculated he had been the proprietor of the little shop. We passed a burnt-out bus station with the ticket booth still standing in front. To our right and distant, the battle rumbled and rattled as the 6th Marine Division fought the enemy on the Oroku Peninsula. Without incident, we continued through the ruins toward the beach when an Amtrak came rattling toward us. The driver was the first living soul we had seen. We hailed him, and it turned out he was expecting us at the beach, but had started along the road hoping to locate us. After receiving information about our unit, he spun his Amtrak around and headed back toward the beach. With our mission completed, my buddy and I started back along the road through the ruins. We passed the little cosmetic shop and the dead Okinawan cover by the door and approached the bus station on our left. A gentle breeze was blowing. Only the clanking of a piece of loose tin on the ruined bus station roof broke the silence. If I blotted out the distant rumble of battle, our surroundings reminded me of walking past some deserted farm building on a peaceful spring afternoon back home. It seemed like an interesting place to take ten, explore the bus station, and eat our ration bars. We had saved time by meeting the Amtrak, so we could stop for a while. The harsh snapping and cracking of a long burst of Japanese machine gun bullets zipping chest high in front of us sent my buddy and me scrambling for cover. We dove behind the concrete ticket booth and lay on the rubble-strewn concrete, breathing hard. God, that was close, Sledgehammer. Too damn close. The enemy gunner had been zeroed in perfectly on his elevation, but he had led us too much. The bullets ricocheted and wind around inside the burned-out bus station. We heard the tinkle of glass as the slugs broke windows among the burned-out buses. Where the hell is that bastard? asked my buddy. I don't know, but he's probably a couple of hundred yards away from the sound of the gun. We lay motionless for a moment. The silence interrupted only by the peaceful, lazy clanking of the tin in the breeze. Cautiously, I peered out from behind the base of the ticket booth. Another burst of slugs narrowly missed my head and went clattering through the building after striking the concrete alongside us. That bastard zeroed in on us for sure, groaned my buddy. The ticket booth in front of the building was surrounded by an open expanse of concrete in all directions. The gunner had us pinned down tightly. My buddy peeped around his side of the narrow booth and got the same reception as I had. The enemy machine gunner then fired a burst across the top of the concrete portion of the booth shattering what was left of the windows in the upper part of the booth. We were sure that the Nambu gunner was up on the south side of the railroad embankment. Maybe we can get back among them buses and out of sight and then slip out of the rear of the building, my buddy said. He moved slightly to one side to look behind us, but another burst of fire proved his plan faulty. I guess we'll have to wait it out till dark, and then slip out of here, I said. Guess you're right. We sure as hell ain't gonna get out of here during the daylight without getting hit. He's got us pinned down tight. Sledgehammer, after all the crap we've been through, damned if we ain't between a rock and the hard place. God damn it to hell.
The minutes grew into lonely hours as time dragged by. We kept a sharp lookout in all directions in case other Japanese might slip in behind us while we were occupied by the machine gun. Toward late afternoon, we heard a burst of M1 rifle fire over in the direction where the enemy gunner was located. After a few minutes, we peeped out. To our delight, we saw a group of four or five Company K Marines striding along the road from the direction of the road cut. Look out for that Nambu, we yelled, pointing back toward where the fire had been coming from. A grinning Marine held up the machine gun and yelled, Rack him up! You guys okay? The gunny figured you'd run into trouble when you didn't come back and sent us out to look for you. By mid-June, familiar faces were scarce in Company K and in all the infantry units of the 1st Marine Division. On the 1st of June, the company lost 36 men to enemy action. Ten days later, 22 men left with immersion foot and other severe illnesses. Despite mid-month replacements, Company K moved toward its final major fight with about 100 men and two or three officers, only half of whom had landed at Hagushi two and a half months earlier. Carnage on Kunishi Ridge Toward the middle of June, we began to hear disturbing rumors about a place south of us called Kunishi Ridge. Rumors circulated that our division's other infantry regiments, the 7th Marines and later the 1st Marines, were involved in bitter fighting there and would need our help. Our hopes began to fade that the 5th Marines wouldn't be committed to the front lines again. We continued our patrols. I enjoyed my canned Japanese scallops and hoped there was no such place as Kunishi Ridge. But the inevitable day came with the order, Square away your gear. We're moving out again. The weather turned dry and warm as we moved south. The farther we proceeded, the louder the sound of firing became. The bumping of artillery, the thudding of mortars, the incessant rattle of machine guns, the popping of rifles. It was a familiar combination of noise that engendered the old feelings of dread about one's own chances as well as the horrible images of the wounded, the shocked, and the dead. The Inevitable Harvest Following the retreat from Shuri, the Japanese defenders of Okinawa withdrew into their final defensive lines along a string of ridges near the southern end of the island. The western anchor was Kunishi Ridge. In the middle was Yuza Dake. Farther east was Yaiju Dake. Kunishi Ridge was about 1,500 yards long, a sheer coral escarpment. The Japanese dug into caves and emplacements on its forward and reverse slopes. The northern frontal approaches to Kunishi lay wide open, flat grasslands and rice paddies across which the Japanese had perfect fields of fire. On the 12th of June, the 7th Marines made a pre-dawn attack and captured a portion of Kunishi. The Marines were on the ridge, but the enemy was in it. For four days, the Marines of the 7th Regiment were isolated atop the ridge. Airdrops and tanks supplied them, and tanks removed their dead and wounded. On the 14th of June, the 1st Marines attacked portions of Kunishi and suffered heavy losses for their efforts. On the same day, the 1st Battalion, led by Lieutenant Colonel Austin Schofner, former CO of 3-5 on Peleliu, attacked and captured Yuzadake, 
but suffered terrible casualties from the Japanese defenders there and from intense fire sent over from Yaijudake. Into the hellish confusion we went on 14 June, with the words still ringing in our ears. The 5th Marines may not be committed again. We plodded along the sides of a dusty road, next to tanks and Amtraks moving forward, and a steady stream of ambulance jeeps returning loaded with the youthful human wreckage of the battle for Kanishi Ridge. That afternoon, our company deployed along a row of trees and bushes on the south side of the road. We saw and heard heavy firing on Kanishi Ridge across the open ground ahead. My mortar section dug in near the road with our guns adjusted to fire flares over a picturesque bridge that remained intact over a high stream bank. A couple of us went to look at the bridge before dark. We walked down to the stream on a trail leading from the road. The water was crystal clear and made a peaceful gurgling sound over a clean, pebbly bottom. Ferns grew from the overhanging mossy banks and between rocks on both sides. I had the urge to look for salamanders and crayfish. It was a beautiful place, cool and peaceful, so out of context with the screaming hell close above it. The next morning, we relieved 1-1 on Yuzadake. As we moved up along a road, we passed a small tree with all the limbs blasted off. So many communication wires hung from it at all angles, that it looked like a big inverted mop. A ricocheting bullet whined between me and the man in front of me. It raised a little dust cloud as it smashed into a pile of dry brush by the roadside. Back into the meat grinder again, I thought, as we moved up toward the sound of heavy firing. Yuzadake looked terrible to me. It resembled one of the hellish coral ridges on Peleliu. We could see Kunishi Ridge on our right and the Yajudake escarpment on our left. Army tanks were moving against the ladder while machine guns and 75mm cannons hammered away. For the first time in combat, I heard the wailing of sirens. We were told that the army had put sirens on their tanks for the psychological effect it might have on the Japanese. To me, the sirens just made the whole bloody struggle more bizarre and unnerving. The Japanese rarely surrendered in the face of flamethrowers, artillery, bombs, or anything else, so I didn't understand how harmless sirens would bother them. We got mighty tired of hearing them wailing against the constant rattle of small arms and the crash of shellfire. While we were on Yuzadake, under sporadic enemy fire, 2-5 joined the 7th Marines, in the bitter fighting to capture the rest of Kunishi Ridge. The Japanese emplacements and caves received terrific bombardment by mortars, artillery, heavy naval gunfire, and airstrikes consisting of 25 to 30 planes. It reminded me more and more of Bloody Nose Ridge on Peleliu. The 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines, gained some ground on Kunishi Ridge, but needed help. Company K was attached to 2-5, and arrived just in time to help that battalion fight off a company-sized night counterattack on 17 June. Later that night, we heard that our company would attack the next morning to seize the remainder of Kanishi Ridge in the 5th Marine zone of action. Once again, we would enter the abyss of close combat.
We learned that we would move out well before daylight and deploy for the attack because we had to move across a wide open area to get to the ridge. An officer came along, giving us what sounded like a pep talk about how the 5th Marines could finish the job on Kanishi Ridge. We all knew that the 1st Marines and the 7th Marines had already been terribly shot up, taking most of the ridge. Moving in the darkness was something the old salts of Gloucester and Peleliu didn't like at all. We were stubborn in our belief that nobody but the Japanese, or damned fools, moved around at night. The new replacements, who had come into the company a few days before, seemed so pitifully confused, they didn't know the difference. But moving up under cover of darkness was the only sane way to approach Kanishi Ridge. The 1st Marines and the 7th Marines had already found it necessary to move that way to get across the open ground without being slaughtered. We moved slowly and cautiously across the dry rice paddies and cane fields. Up ahead, we saw shells exploding on and around the ridge as our artillery swished overhead. We heard the familiar popping of rifles, rattle of machine guns, and banging of grenades. Enemy shells also exploded on the ridge. We all knew that this was probably the last big fight before the Japanese were wiped out and the campaign ended. While I plodded along through the darkness, my heart pounding, my throat dry and almost too tight to swallow, near panic seized me. Having made it that far in the war, I knew my luck would run out. I began to sweat and pray that when I got hit, it wouldn't result in death or maiming. I wanted to turn and run away. We came closer to the ridge silhouette against the skyline. Its crest looked so much like bloody nose that my knees nearly buckled. I felt as though I were on Peleliu and had it all to go through over again. The riflemen moved up onto the ridge. We mortarmen were positioned to watch out for Japanese infiltrating from the left rear. We didn't set up our weapons. The fighting was so close in with the enemy on the reverse slope and in the ridge that we couldn't fire high explosives. Our 105mm artillery was firing over Kanishi Ridge while we moved into position in the dark. To our dismay, a shell exploded short in our company's line. The company's CP alerted the artillery observers that we had received short rounds. Another 105 went off with a terrible flash and explosion. Corman! Someone yelled. God damn it! We're getting casualties from short rounds, an officer yelled into his walkie-talkie. What's the word on those short rounds? The company executive officer asked. Says they'll check it out. Our artillery was firing across the ridge into and around the town of Kanishi to prevent the enemy from moving more troops onto the ridge. But each time they shot, it seemed that one gun fired its shells in a traversing pattern right along the ridge in Company K's lines. It was enough to drive anyone into a state of desperation. The Japanese were throwing grenades all along the line, and there was some rifle and machine gun fire. On the right, we began to hear American grenades exploding well within our lines. Hey, you guys. Nips must have gotten hold of a box of our grenades. Listen to that, would you? Yeah. Them bastards will use anything they can get their hands on. During the next flurry of grenades, we heard no more U.S. models explode within our area. 
Then, the word came along in the dark to be sure all the new replacements knew exactly how to use grenades properly. One of our new men had been discovered removing each grenade canister from a box of grenades, pulling the sealing tape from the canister, and then throwing the unopened canister at the enemy. The Japanese opened each canister, took out the grenade, pulled the pin, and threw the deadly pineapple back at us. The veterans around me were amazed to find out what had happened. The incident, however, was just one of many examples of the poor state of combat readiness of the latest group of new replacements. With daylight, I got a good look at our surroundings. Only then could I appreciate fully what a desperate, bitter battle the fight for Kanishi Ridge had been, and was continuing to be. The ridge was coral rock, painfully similar to Peleliu's ridges. But Kanishi was not so high, nor were the coral formations so jagged and angular as those on Peleliu. Our immediate area was littered with the usual debris of battle, including about thirty poncho-covered dead marines on stretchers. Some of our riflemen moved eastward along the ridge, while others moved up the slope. We still didn't set up our mortars. It was strictly a rifleman's fight. We mortarmen stood by to act as stretcher-bearers or riflemen. Snipers were all over the ridge and almost impossible to locate. Men began getting shot one right after another, and the stretcher teams kept on the run. We brought the casualties down to the base of the ridge, to a point where tanks could back in out of the view of snipers on the ridge crest. We tied the wounded onto the stretchers, and then tied the stretchers onto the rear deck of the tanks. Walking wounded went inside. Then the tanks took off in a cloud of dust along a coral road to the aid station. As many men as possible fired along the ridge to pin down the snipers, so they couldn't shoot the wounded on the tanks. Shortly before the company reached the east end of the ridge, we watched a stretcher team make its way up to bring down a casualty. Suddenly, four or five mortar shells exploded in quick succession near the team, wounding slightly three of the four bearers. They helped each other back down the ridge, and another stretcher team, of which I was a member, started up to get the casualty. To avoid the enemy mortar observer, we moved up by a slightly different route. We got up the ridge and found the casualty lying above a sheer coral ledge about five feet high. The Marine, Leonard E. Vargo, told us he couldn't move much because he had been shot in both feet. Thus, he couldn't lower himself down off the ledge. You guys be careful. The nip that shot me twice is still hiding right over there in those rocks. He motioned toward a jumble of boulders not more than twenty yards away. We reasoned that if the sniper had been able to shoot Vargo in both feet, immobilizing him, he was probably waiting to snipe at anyone who came to the rescue. That meant that anyone who climbed up to help Vargo down would get shot instantly. We stood against the coral rock with our heads about level with Vargo, but out of the line of fire of the sniper, and looked at each other. I found the silence embarrassing. Vargo lay patiently, Confident of our aid. Somebody's got to get up there and hand him down, I said. My three buddies nodded solemnly and made quiet comments in agreement. I thought to myself that if we fooled around much longer, the sniper might shoot and kill the already painfully wounded and helpless Marine. 
Then we heard the crash of another 105mm short round farther along the ridge. Then another. I was seized with a grim fatalism. It was either be shot by the sniper or have all of us get blown to bits by our own artillery. Feeling ashamed for hesitating so long, I scrambled up beside Vargo. Watch out for that nip, he said again. As I placed my hands under his shoulders, I glanced over and saw the entrance of the sniper's small cave. It was a black space, about three feet in diameter. I expected to see a muzzle flash spurt forth. Strangely, I felt at peace with myself and, oddly, wasn't particularly afraid. But there was no sound or sight of the sniper. My buddies had Vargo well in hand by then, so for a brief instant I stood up and looked south. I felt a sensation of wild exhilaration. Beyond the smoke of our artillery to the south lay the end of the island and the end of the agony. Come on, Sledgehammer, let's move out. With another quick glance at the mouth of the small cave, puzzled over where the sniper was and why he hadn't fired at me, I scrambled back down the rock to the stretcher team. We carried Vargo down Kanishi Ridge without further incident. After bringing down another casualty, I passed our company CP among the rocks at the foot of the ridge and overheard one of our officers talking confidently to Hank Boys. The officer said his nerves were almost shattered by the constant strain, and he didn't think he could carry on much longer. The veteran boys talked quietly, trying to calm the officer. The officer sat on his helmet, frantically running his hands through his hair. He was almost sobbing. I felt compassion for the officer. I'd been in the same forlorn frame of mind more than once, when horror piled on horror seemed too much to bear. The officer also carried a heavy responsibility, which I didn't have. As I walked past, the officer blurted out in desperation, What's the matter with those guys up on the ridge? Why the hell don't they move out faster and get this thing over with? Compassion aside, my own emotional and physical state was far from good by then. Completely forgetting my lowly rank, I walked right into the CP and said to the officer, I'll tell you what's the matter with those guys on the ridge. They're getting shot right and left, and they can't move any faster. He looked up with a dazed expression. Boys turned around, probably expecting to see the battalion or regimental commander. When he saw me instead, he looked surprised. Then he glared at me the way he did the time I had too much to say to Shadow back on Half Moon. Coming quickly to my senses and remembering that a private's advice to first lieutenants and gunny sergeants wasn't considered standard operating procedure in the Marine Corps, I backed away quietly and got out of there. Toward afternoon, several of us were resting among some rocks near the crest of the ridge. We had been passing ammo and water up to some men just below the crest. A Japanese machine gun still covered the crest there, and no one dared raise his head. Bullets snapped over the crest, and ricochets whined off into the air after striking rocks. The man next to me was a rifleman and a fine Peleliu veteran, whom I knew well. He had become unusually quiet and moody during the past hour, but I just assumed he was as tired and as weary with fear and fatigue as I was. 
Suddenly, he began babbling incoherently, grabbed his rifle, and shouted, Those slant-eyed yellow bastards. They've killed enough of my buddies. I'm going after them. He jumped up and started for the crest of the ridge. Stop, I yelled, and grabbed at his trouser leg. He pulled away. A sergeant next to him yelled, Stop, you fool! The sergeant also grabbed for the frantic man's legs, but his hand slipped. He managed to clutch the toe of one boondocker, however, and gave a jerk. That threw the man off balance, and he sprawled on his back, sobbing like a baby. The front of his trousers was darkened where he had urinated when he lost control of himself. The sergeant and I tried to calm him, but also made sure he couldn't get back onto his feet. Take it easy, Cobber. We'll get you out of here, the NCO said. We called the corpsman, who took the sobbing, trembling man out of the meat grinder to an aid station. He's a damn good marine, Sledgehammer. I'll lower the boom on anybody says he ain't. But he's just had all he can take. That's it. He's just had all he can take. The sergeant's voice trailed away sadly. We had just seen a brave man crack up completely and lose all control of himself, even to the point of losing his desire to live. If you hadn't grabbed his foot and jerked him down before he got to the crest, he'd be dead now for sure, I said. Yeah. The poor guy would have gotten hit by that goddamn machine gun. No doubt about it, the sergeant said. By the end of the day, Company K reached the eastern end of Kanishi Ridge and established contact with army units that had gained the high ground on Yuzadake and Yajudake. Mail came up to us, along with rations, water, and ammo. Among my letters was one from a mobile acquaintance of many years. He had joined the Marine Corps and was a member of some rear echelon unit of service troops stationed on northern Okinawa. He insisted that I write him immediately about the location of my unit. He wrote that when he found out where I was, he would visit me at once. I read his words to some of my buddies, and they got a good laugh out of it. Don't that guy know there's a war on? What the hell does he think the 1st Marine Division is doing down here anyway? Someone else suggested I insist not only that he come to see me at once, but that he stay and be my replacement if he wanted to be a true friend. I never answered the letter. A small patrol from the 7th Marines came by, and we talked with an old buddy. He said his regiment had been in terrible fighting for the several days it had been on Kanishi Ridge. Then we sat silently, ruefully watching a group of Marines far over to the right get shelled by large-caliber Japanese artillery. Word came along the line about the death earlier in the day of the U.S. 10th Commander, General Buckner. Not long after we were relieved on Kanishi Ridge, in the afternoon of 18 June, I asked Gunnery Sergeant Hank Boys how many men we had lost fighting on Yuzadake and Kunishi. He told me Company K had lost 49 enlisted men and one officer, half of our number of the previous day. Almost all the newly arrived replacements 
were among the casualties. Now, the company consisted of a mere remnant, 21% of its normal strength of 235 men. We had been attached to 2-5 for only 22 hours and had been on Kunishi Ridge for less time than that. Chapter 15 End of the Agony From the 11th to the 18th of June, the fierce battle for the Kunishi Yuza Yaiju Escarpment cost the 1st Marine Division 1,150 casualties. The fight marked the end of organized Japanese resistance on Okinawa. The battle for the Kunishi Escarpment was unforgettable. It reminded many of us of Peleliu's ridges, and we still weren't used to the fact that night attacks by Marines had played a significant role in capturing the difficult objective. Among my friends in the ranks, the biggest surprise was the poor state of readiness and training of our newest Marine replacements, as compared to the more efficient replacements who had come into the company earlier in the campaign. They had received some combat training in the rear areas before joining us. But most of the new men who joined us just before Kanishi Ridge had come straight from the States. Some of them told us they had had only a few weeks training or less after boot camp. It's no wonder they were so confused and ineffective when first exposed to intense enemy fire. When we had to evacuate a casualty under fire, some of the new men were reluctant to take the chances necessary to save the wounded Marine. This reticence infuriated the veterans, who made such threats against them that the new men finally did their share. They were motivated by greater fear of the veteran Marines than of the Japanese. This isn't to reflect on their bravery. They simply weren't trained and conditioned properly to cope with the shock, violence, and hellish conditions into which they were thrown. The rank and file, usually sympathetic toward new replacements, simply referred to them as fouled up as Hogan's goat or some other more profound but profane description. With a feeling of intense relief, we came down off Kunishi Ridge, late in the day of 18 June. After rejoining the other companies of 3-5, we moved in column on a road cut through the ridge. As we wound south, we talked with men of the 8th Marines, who were moving along the road with us. We were glad to see a veteran Marine regiment come in to spearhead the final push south. We were exhausted. The veterans in our ranks scrutinized the men of the 8th Marines with that hard professional stare of old salts sizing up another outfit. Everything we saw brought forth remarks of approval. They looked squared away, and many of them were combat veterans themselves. I talked to a 60mm mortarman who was carrying almost an entire cloverleaf of HE shells on a backpack rig. Asking why he was so overloaded, I was told his battalion commander wanted the mortarmen to try the arrangement because they could carry more ammo than in a regular ammo bag. I hoped fervently that none of our officers saw that rig. I also saw a machine gun squad with Nip Nemesis stenciled neatly on the water jacket of their thirty caliber heavy machine gun. They were a sharp-looking crew. 
We passed a large muddy area in the road cut. In it lay the body of a dead Japanese soldier in full uniform and equipment. It was a bizarre sight. He had been mashed down into the mud by tank treads and looked like a giant, squashed insect. Our column moved down into a valley at five pace intervals, one file on each side of the road. An Amtrak came clattering slowly along, headed toward the front farther south. It passed me as I was daydreaming about the delightful possibility that we might not get shelled or shot at anymore. But my reverie was terminated rudely and abruptly by whiz. Bang! Whiz! Bang! Disperse! Someone yelled. We scattered like a covey of quail. About ten of us jumped into a shallow ditch. The first enemy anti-tank shell had passed over the top of the Amtrak and exploded in a field beyond. But the second shell scored a direct hit on the left side of the Amtrak. The machine jolted to a stop and began smoking. We peeped out of the ditch as the driver tried to start the engine. His crewman peered back into the cargo compartment to assess the damage. Two more shells slammed into the side of the disabled Amtrak. The two Marines in the cab jumped out, ran over, and flopped down, panting into the ditch near us. What kind of cargo was in there, I asked. We got a full unit of fire for a rifle company. Thirty ball, grenades, mortar ammo, the works. Boy, she is gonna blow like hell when that fire gets to that ammo. The gas tanks are hit so bad, there's no way to put it out. The driver crawled off along the ditch to find a radio man to report that his load of ammo couldn't get through to the front. Just then, a man crawled over next to me and stood upright. I looked up at him in surprise. Every Marine in the area was hugging the deck, waiting for the inevitable explosion from the Amtrak. The man was clad in clean dungarees, with the new sheen still on the cloth, and he displayed the relaxed appearance of a person who could wash up and drink hot coffee at a CP whenever he was in the mood to do so. He carried a portable movie camera with which he began avidly filming the pillow of thick black smoke boiling up from the Amtrak. Rifle cartridges began popping in the Amtrak as the heat got to them. Hey, mate, I said, you better get down. That thing is going to blow sky high any minute. It's loaded with ammo. The man held his camera steady but stopped filming. He turned and looked down at me with a contemptuous stare of utter disdain and disgust. He didn't demean himself to speak to me as I cringed in the ditch, but turned back to his camera eyepiece and continued filming. At that moment came a flash accompanied by a loud explosion and terrific concussion as the Amtrak blew up. The concussion knocked the cameraman completely off his feet. He was uninjured but badly shaken and terribly frightened. He peered wide-eyed and cautious over the ditch bank at the twisted Amtrak burning on the road. I leaned over to him and said pleasantly, I told you so. He turned his no longer arrogant face toward me. I grinned at him with the broadest smile I could conjure, like a mule eating briars through a barbed wire fence as the Texans would say. Speechless, the cameraman turned quickly and crawled off along the ditch toward the rear.
Four or five marine tanks were parked close together in the valley downhill from us, about 100 yards away. Their heavily armored fronts faced up the valley to our left. The crewmen had been alerted by the first enemy round fired at the Amtrak. We saw them swinging their 75s toward our left and closing their turret hatches. Not a moment too soon. The entire Japanese 47mm gun battery opened rapid fire on the tanks. Too bad the movie cameraman had felt the call of duty summon him to the rear after the Amtrak exploded, because he missed a dramatic scene. The enemy guns fired with admirable accuracy. Several of their tracer-like armor-piercing shells hit the turrets of the tanks and ricocheted into the air. The tanks returned fire. In a few minutes, the Japanese guns were knocked out or ceased firing, and everything got quiet. The tanks sustained only minor damage. We went back onto the road and moved on south without further incident. Until the island was secured on 21 June, we made a series of rapid moves southward, stopping only to fight groups of diehard Japanese in caves, pillboxes, and ruined villages. The fresh 8th Marines pushed south rapidly. The 8th Marines going like a bat out of hell, a man said as news drifted back to us. We were fortunate in not suffering many casualties in the company. The Japanese were beaten, and the hope, uppermost in every weary veteran's mind, was that his luck would hold out a little longer until the end of the battle. We used loudspeakers, captured Japanese soldiers, and Okinawan civilians to persuade the remaining enemy to surrender. One sergeant and a Japanese lieutenant who had graduated from an Ivy League college and spoke perfect English gave themselves up in a road cut. Just after they came out and surrendered, a sniper opened fire on us. We eight or ten Marines took cover next to the embankment, but the Japanese officer and NCO stood in the middle of the road with the bullets kicking up dirt all around them. The sniper obviously was trying to kill them because they had surrendered. We looked at the two Japanese standing calmly, and one of our NCOs said, Get over here under cover, you dumb bastards! The enemy officer grinned affably and spoke to his NCO. They walked calmly over and got down as ordered. Some Company K men shot the gun crew of a 150mm howitzer and placed in the mouth of a well-camouflaged cave. The Japanese defended their big artillery piece with their rifles and died to the last man. Farther on, we tried to get a group of enemy in a burial vault to surrender, but they refused. Our lieutenant, Mac, jumped in front of the door and shouted in Japanese, Do not be afraid. Come out. I will not harm you. Then he fired a complete 20-round magazine from his submachine gun into the door. We all just shook our heads and moved on. About a half hour later, the five or six Japanese rushed out fighting. Some of our Marines behind us killed them. Our battalion was one of the first American units to reach the end of the island. It was a beautiful sight, even though there were still snipers around. We stood on a high hill overlooking the sea. Below to our left, we saw Army infantry advancing toward us, flushing out and shooting down enemy soldiers singly 
and in small groups. Army 81mm mortar fire kept pace ahead of the troops, and some of our weapons joined in coordination. We got a bit edgy when the Army mortar fire kept getting closer and closer to our positions, even after the unit had been apprised of our location. One of our battalion officers became furious as the big shells came dangerously close. He ordered a radio man to tell the army officer in charge that if they didn't cease fire immediately, our 81s would open fire on his troops. The army mortars stopped shooting. The night of 20 June, we made a defensive line on the high ground overlooking the sea. My mortar was dug in near a coral road and was to illuminate or fire HE on the area. Other guns of the section covered the seaward part of the company sector. Earlier, we had seen and heard some sort of strange-looking rocket fired by the Japanese from over in our army sector. The projectiles were clearly visible as they went up with a terrible screaming sound. Most of them exploded in the 8th Marines area. The thing sounded like bombs exploding. A call came for every available corpsman to help with casualties resulting from those explosions. The Japanese on Okinawa had a 320-millimeter spigot mortar unit equipped to fire a 675-pound shell. Americans first encountered this awesome weapon on Iwo Jima. I don't know whether what we saw fired several times during the last day or two on Okinawa was a spigot mortar. But whatever it was, it was a frightful-sounding weapon that caused great damage. The night turned into a long series of shooting scrapes with Japanese who prowled all over the place. We heard someone coming along the road, the coral crunching beneath his feet. In the pitch dark, a new replacement fired his carbine twice in that direction and yelled for the password. Somebody laughed, and several enemies started firing in our direction as they ran past us along the road. A bullet zipped by me and hit the hydrogen cylinder of a flamethrower placed on the side of the adjacent foxhole. The punctured cylinder emitted a sharp hissing sound. Is that thing gonna blow up? I asked anxiously. No, just hit the hydrogen tank. It won't ignite, the flamethrower gunner said. We could hear the enemy soldier's hobnailed shoes pounding on the road until a fatal burst of fire from some other Company K Marines sent them sprawling. As we field-stripped them the next morning, I noted that each carried cooked rice in his double-boiled mess gear, all bullet-riddled then. Other Japanese swam or walked along in the sea just offshore. We saw them in the flare light. A line of Marines behind a stone wall on the beach fired at them. One of our men ran up from the wall to get more carbine ammo. Come on, Sledgehammer. It's just like Lexington and Concord. No thanks. I'm too comfortable in my hole. He went back down to the wall, and they continued firing throughout the night. Just before daylight, we heard a couple of enemy grenades explode. Japanese yelled and shouted wildly, where one of our 37mm guns was dug in across the road, covering the valley out front. Shots rang out, then desperate shouts and cursing. Corman! Then silence. A new corpsman, who had joined us recently, 
started toward the call for help. But I said, hold it, Doc. I'll go with you. I wasn't being heroic. I was quite afraid. But knowing the enemy's propensity for treachery, I thought somebody should accompany him. As you were, Sledgehammer. You might be needed on the gun. Take off, Doc, and be careful, an NCO said. A few minutes later, he said, Okay, Sledgehammer. Take off if you wanna. I grabbed the Tommy and followed the corpsman. He was just finishing bandaging one of the wounded Marines of the 37mm gun crew when I got there. Other Marines were coming over to see if they could help. Several men had been wounded by the firing when two enemy officers crept up the steep slope, threw grenades into the gun emplacement, and jumped in swinging their samurai sabers. One Marine had parried a saber blow with his carbine. His buddy then had shot the Japanese officer, who fell backwards a short distance down the slope. The saber blow had severed a finger and sliced through the mahogany carbine forestock to the metal barrel. The second Japanese officer lay dead on his back, next to the wheel of the 37mm gun. He was in full-dress uniform with white gloves, shiny leather leggings, Sam Brown belt, and campaign ribbons on his chest. Nothing remained of his head from the nose up, just a mass of crushed skull, brains, and bloody pulp. A grimy marine with a dazed expression stood over the Japanese. With a foot planted firmly on the ground on each side of the enemy officer's body, the marine held his rifle by the forestock with both hands and slowly and mechanically moved it up and down like a plunger. I winced each time it came down with a sickening sound into the gory mass. Brains and blood were splattered all over the Marine's rifle, boondockers, and canvas leggings, as well as the wheel of the 37mm gun. The Marine was obviously in a complete state of shock. We gently took him by the arms. One of his uninjured buddies set aside the gore-smeared rifle. Let's get you out of here, Cobber. The poor guy responded like a sleepwalker as he was led off with the wounded, who were by then on stretchers. The man who had lost the finger clutched the Japanese saber in his other hand. I'm going to keep this bastard for a souvenir. We dragged the battered enemy officer to the edge of the gun emplacement and rolled him down the hill. Replete with violence, shock, blood, gore, and suffering, this was the type of incident that should be witnessed by anyone who has any delusions about the glory of war. It was as savage and as brutal as though the enemy and we were primitive barbarians rather than civilized men. Later in the day of 21 June 1945, we learned the high command had declared the island secured. We each received two fresh oranges with the compliments of Admiral Nimitz. So I ate mine, smoked my pipe, and looked out over the beautiful blue sea. The sun danced on the water. After 82 days and nights, I couldn't believe Okinawa had finally ended. I was tempted to relax and think that we would board ship immediately for rest and rehabilitation in Hawaii. 
That's what the scuttlebutt is, you guys. Straight dope. We're headed for Waikiki, a grinning buddy said. But long conditioning by the hardships that were our everyday diet in a rifle company made me skeptical. My intuition was borne out shortly. Get your gear on. Check your weapons. We're moving back north in skirmish line. You people will mop up the area for any nips still holding out. You will bury all enemy dead. You will salvage U.S. and enemy equipment. All brass above 50 caliber in size will be collected and placed in neat piles. Stand by to move out. A final chore. If this were a novel about war, or if I were a dramatic storyteller, I would find a romantic way to end this account while looking at the fine sunset off the cliffs at the southern end of Okinawa. But that wasn't the reality of what we faced. Company K had one more nasty job to do. To the battle-weary troops, exhausted after an 82-day campaign, mopping up was grim news. It was a nerve-wracking business at best. The enemy we encountered were the toughest of the diehards, selling their lives as expensively as possible. Fugitives from the law of averages, we were nervous and jittery. A man could survive Gloucester, Peleliu, and Okinawa, only to be shot by some fanatical, bypassed Japanese, holed up in a cave. It was hard for us to accept the order, but we did, grimly. Burying enemy dead and salvaging brass and equipment on the battlefield, however, was the last straw to our sagging morale. By Lord, why the hell we gotta bury them stinking bastards after we killed them? Let them goddamn rear echelon people get a whiff of them. They didn't have to fight them. Jeez, picking up brass? That's the most stupid, dumb, jerk-off of an order I ever did hear of. Fighting was our duty, but burying enemy dead and cleaning up the battlefield wasn't for infantry troops as we saw it. We complained and griped bitterly. It was the ultimate indignity to men who had fought so hard and so long and had won. We were infuriated and frustrated. For the first time, I saw several of my veteran comrades flatly refuse to obey an order. If some of us hadn't prevailed on them to knock off arguing hotly with an NCO, they would have been severely punished for insubordination. I'll never forget cajoling, arguing with, and begging two veteran buddies to be quiet and follow orders as I unstrapped my entrenching shovel from my pack. We stood wearily in a trampled cane field beside a bloated Jap corpse. Both buddies were three campaign men who were outstanding in combat, but had reached the end of their ropes. They weren't about to bury any stinking Japanese, no siree. I prevailed, however, just as Hank boys came over grim-faced and yelling at them to turn to. So we dragged ourselves back north in skirmish line. We cursed every dead enemy we had to bury. We just spaded dirt over them with our entrenching shovels. We cursed every cartridge case above 50 caliber in size we collected to place in neat piles. Never before 
were we more thankful to have the support of our tanks. The flame tanks were particularly effective in burning out troublesome Japanese in caves. Fortunately, we had few casualties. In a few days, we assembled in an open field and fell out to await further orders. The weather was hot, so we all took off our packs, sat on our helmets, drank some water, and had a smoke. We were to be there for several hours, Sinencio said, so we got the order to chow down. A friend and I went over to a little wooded area near the field to eat our K-rations in the shade. We walked into a completely untouched scene that resembled a natural park in a botanical garden. Low, graceful pines cast dense shade, and ferns and moss grew on the rocks and banks. It was cool, and the odor of fresh pine filled the air. Miraculously, it bore not a single sign of war. Boy, this is beautiful, isn't it, Sledgehammer? It looks unreal, I said as I took off my pack and sat down on the soft green moss beside a clump of graceful ferns. We each started heating a canteen cup of water for our instant coffee. I took out the prized can of cured ham I had obtained by trade from a man in the company CP. He had stolen it from an officer. We settled back in the cool silence. The war, military discipline, and other unpleasant realities seemed a million miles away. For the first time in months, we began to relax. Okay, you guys, move out. Move, move, out of here, an NCO said with authority ringing out in every word. Is the company moving out already? My friend asked in surprise. No, it isn't, but you guys are. Why? Because this is off limits to enlisted men, the NCO said, turning and pointing to a group of officers munching their rations as they strolled into our newfound sanctuary. But we aren't in the way, I said. Move out and follow orders. To his credit, the NCO appeared in sympathy with us and seemed to feel the burden of his distasteful task. We sullenly picked up our half-cooked rations and our gear, went back out into the hot sun, and flopped down in the dusty field. Some crap, eh? Yeah, I said. We weren't even near those officers. The fighting on this goddamn island is over. The officers have started getting chicken again and throwing the crap around. Yesterday, while the shooting was still going on, it was all buddy-buddy with the enlisted men. Our grumblings were interrupted by the sound of a rifle shot. A marine I knew very well reeled backward and fell to the ground. His buddy dropped his rifle and rushed to him, followed by several others. The boy was dead shot in the head by his buddy. The other man had thought his rifle was unloaded when his young friend had stood over him and placed his thumb playfully over the muzzle. Pull the trigger. I bet it's not loaded. He pulled the trigger. The loaded rifle fired and set a bullet tearing up through the head of his best friend. Both had violated the cardinal rule. Don't point a weapon at anything you don't intend to shoot. Shock and dismay showed on the man's face 
from that moment until he left the company a few weeks later. He went, we heard, to stand a general court-martial and a probable prison term. But his worst punishment was living with the horror of having killed his best friend by playing with a loaded weapon. While the company was still sitting in the field, five or six men and I were told to get our gear and follow an NCO to waiting trucks. We were to go north to a site where our division would make a tent camp after the mop-up in the south was completed. Our job was to unload and guard some company gear. We were apprehensive about leaving the company, but it turned out to be good duty. During the long and dusty truck ride to the Motobu Peninsula, we rode past some areas we had fought through. By then, we could barely recognize them. They were transformed with roads, tent camps, and supply dumps. The number of service troops and the amount of equipment was beyond our belief. Roads that had been muddy tracks or coral-covered paths were highways, with vehicles going to and fro and MPs in neat khaki directing traffic. Tent camps, Quonset huts, and huge parks of vehicles lay along our route. We had come back to civilization. We had climbed up out of the abyss once more. It was exhilarating. We sang and whistled like little boys until our sides were sore. As we went north, the countryside became beautiful. Most of it seemed untouched by the war. Finally, our truck turned off into a potato field not far from high rocky cliffs overlooking the sea, and a small island which our driver said was Ieshima. The land around our future campsite was undamaged. We unloaded the company gear from the truck. The driver had picked up five-gallon cans of water for us. Plenty of K-rations had been issued. We set up a bivouac. Corporal Vincent was in charge and we were glad of it. He was a great guy, and a Company K veteran. Our little guard detail spent several quiet, carefree days basking in the sun by day and mounting one century guard duty at night. We were like boys on a campout. The fear and terror were behind us. Our battalion came north a few days later. All hands went to work in earnest to complete the tent camp. Pyramidal tents were set up. Drainage ditches were dug. Folding cots and bedrolls were brought to us. And a canvas-roofed mess hall was built. Every day, old friends returned from the hospitals. Some hale and hearty, but others showing the effects of only partial recovery from severe wounds. To our disgust, rumors of rehabilitation in Hawaii faded. But our relief that the long Okinawa ordeal was over at last was indescribable. Very few familiar faces were left. Only 26 Peleliu veterans who had landed with the company on 1 April remained. And I doubt there were even 10 of the old hands who had escaped being wounded at one time or another on Peleliu or Okinawa. Total American casualties were 7,000 613 killed and missing, and 31,807 wounded in action.
Neuropsychiatric, non-battle casualties, amounted to 26,221, probably higher than in any other previous Pacific Theater battle. This latter high figure is attributed to two causes. The Japanese poured onto U.S. troops the heaviest concentration of artillery and mortar fire experienced in the Pacific, and the prolonged, close-in fighting with a fanatical enemy. Marines and attached naval medical personnel suffered total casualties of 20,020 killed, wounded, and missing. Japanese casualty figures are hazy. However, 107,539 enemy dead were counted on Okinawa. Approximately 10,000 enemy troops surrendered, and about 20,000 were either sealed in caves or buried by the Japanese themselves. Even lacking in exact accounting, in the final analysis the enemy garrison was, with rare exceptions, annihilated. Unfortunately, approximately 42,000 Okinawan civilians, caught between the two opposing armies, perished from artillery fire and bombing. The 1st Marine Division suffered heavy casualties on Okinawa. Officially, it lost 7,665 men killed, wounded, and missing. There were also an undetermined number of casualties among the replacements, whose names never got on a muster roll. Considering that most of the casualties were in the division's three infantry regiments, about 3,000 strength in each, it's obvious that the rifle companies took the bulk of the beating, just as they had on Peleliu. The division's losses of 6,526 on Peleliu and 7,665 on Okinawa total 14,191. Statistically, the infantry units had suffered over 150% losses through the two campaigns. The few men like me who never got hit can claim with justification that we survived the abyss of war as fugitives from the law of averages. It was over. As we finished building our tent camp, we began trying to unwind from the grueling campaign. Some of the Cape Gloucester veterans rotated home almost immediately, and replacements arrived. Ugly rumors circulated that we would hit Japan next, with an expected casualty figure of one million Americans. No one wanted to talk about that. On 8 August, we heard that the first atomic bomb had been dropped on Japan. Reports abounded for a week about a possible surrender. Then on 15 August, 1945, the war ended. We received the news with quiet disbelief, coupled with an indescribable sense of relief. We thought the Japanese would never surrender. Many refused to believe it. Sitting in stunned silence, we remembered our dead. So many dead. So many maimed. So many bright futures consigned to the ashes of the past. So many dreams lost in the madness that had engulfed us. Except for a few widely scattered shouts of joy, 
The survivors of the abyss sat hollow-eyed and silent, trying to comprehend a world without war. In September, the 1st Marine Division went to North China on occupation duty. The 5th Marines to the fascinating ancient city of Peking. After about four and a half months there, I rotated stateside. My happiness knew no bounds when I learned I was slated to ship home. It was time to say goodbye to old buddies in K-3-5. Severing the ties formed in two campaigns was painful. One of America's finest and most famous elite fighting divisions had been my home during a period of the most extreme adversity. Up there on the line, with nothing between us and the enemy but space, and precious little of that, we forged a bond that time would never erase. We were brothers. I left with a sense of loss and sadness. But K-3-5 will always be a part of me. It's ironic that the record of our company was so outstanding, but that so few individuals were decorated for bravery. Uncommon valor was displayed so often, it went largely unnoticed. It was expected, but nearly every man in the company was awarded the Purple Heart. My good fortune, in being one of the few exceptions, continues to amaze me. War is brutish, inglorious, and a terrible waste. Combat leaves an indelible mark on those who are forced to endure it. The only redeeming factors were my comrades' incredible bravery and their devotion to each other. Marine Corps training taught us to kill efficiently and to try to survive. But it also taught us loyalty to each other and love. That esprit de corps sustained us. Until the millennium arrives and countries cease trying to enslave others, it will be necessary to accept one's responsibilities and to be willing to make sacrifices for one's country, as my comrades did. As the troops used to say, if the country is good enough to live in, it's good enough to fight for. With privilege goes responsibility. A Roll of Honor Peleliu Veterans with K-3-5 at the end of Okinawa 1. James Allen 2. Charles Anderson 3. James C. F. Anderson 4. Franklin Bachelor 5. Henry Hank Boys Wounded, not evacuated 6. R. V. Bergen Wounded, returned to duty 7. J. T. Burke 8. Guy E. Farrar 9. Peter Fouts 10. G. C. Gear 11. Anton Haas 12. 
Julius Frenchy LeBeau. 13. Les Land. 14. Thorkel Toby Paulson. 15. Les Porter. 16. Bobby Reagan. 17. John Redifer. 18. D.B.A. Salsby. Wounded, returned to duty. 19. Vincent Santos. 20. George Surrett. 21. Henry K. Schaefer. 22. Mariel Snafu Shelton. Sick, returned to duty. 23. E. B. Sledge. 24. Myron Tessero. 25. Orly C. Ewells. 26. W. F. Benson. Of the approximately 65 Peleliu veterans who landed with the company on Okinawa, only the above survived death, injury, or illness and were present at the end of the battle. Many of the above had been wounded on Cape Gloucester or Peleliu. This has been an Audible Inc. production of With the Old Breed at Peleliu and Okinawa. Written by E.B. Sledge. Narrated by Joe Mazzello with Mark Vitor. And a bonus introduction read by Tom Hanks. Executive Producers For Playtone, Tom Hanks, Gary Getzman, and Kirk Sadusky. For Audible, Greg Voynow and Chuck Weinstock. Producer, Mike Charzik. Directed by Mark Kondracki. Music by Michael Whalen. Copyright 1981 by E.B. Sledge. Production copyright 2012 by Audible Inc. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.